Part 2. The Fruits of Infamy Chapter 16. The First Response The Reaction to the Attack in Washington As news of the attack on Pearl Harbor spread around the world, reports soon followed of other Japanese actions all over the Pacific. They struck Singapore and Southeast Asia, where the British had a big naval base. They struck Kotabaru on the British Malayan Peninsula and the British base in Hong Kong. They attacked U.S.-operated Clark Field in the Philippines, and they struck the U.S. islands of Guam and Wake. All this within seven hours and three minutes of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And then a few hours later, they hit U.S. air and naval bases in Manila and the mid-Pacific U.S. island of Midway. Before the attack, one of Roosevelt's major concerns had been that the American people would not support a war to defend the British or Dutch in Southeast Asia if the Japanese attacked them there. However, the attack on the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor had radically altered the situation. Now there was no doubt that the people would support a declaration of war. As FDR's meeting with congressional leaders on the evening of the attack broke up, Democrat House Speaker Sam Rayburn was asked, will the president ask for a declaration of war? FDR hadn't committed himself, but Rayburn volunteered that if he did, that is one thing on which there would be unity. Minority House Leader Joseph W. Martin agreed, there is only one party when it comes to the integrity and honor of the country. Senator David I. Walsh, chairman of the Naval Affairs Committee, a frequent critic of FDR's foreign policy. The unexpected and unprovoked attacks upon United States territory and ships, and the formal declaration of war by Japan, leave Congress no choice but to take speedy and decisive measures to defend our country. We must promptly meet the challenge with all our resources and all our courage. Within hours of the attack, many Japanese nationals in this country were picked up and detained. Congressional leaders made plans to question top military officials. The Morning After the Attack At noon, the President was driven up to Capitol Hill to address a joint session of Congress. The members of the House and Senate and their guests were assembled in the House chamber when the President entered. It was a somber occasion. The President was an eloquent speaker and everyone was anxious to hear what he had to say. Roosevelt began clearly and firmly. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States had been at peace with that nation, he said, and its envoys had still been in conversation with his government. The Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. FDR went on to state that the United States was not Japan's only target. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. This morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. The president called on the American people to come to the defense of the country. No matter how long it may take us to overcome the premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make very certain that this form of treachery shall never endanger us again. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. The President's short talk was a ringing call for the support of the American people. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounded determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God.
The president then asked the Congress to declare that, since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. With Congress's December 8 resolution, the United States was at war with Japan. Not with Germany, which, throughout most of 1941, FDR had considered the prime target. War Japan's Emperor Hirohito promptly declared war on the United States and Great Britain. England, Australia, Canada, the Netherlands East Indies, and Costa Rica all responded by announcing that a state of war existed between them and Japan. On the morning of December 11, Germany and Italy both declared war on the United States. FDR notified Congress, which promptly issued two joint resolutions resolving that the state of war between the United States and the government of Germany and the government of Italy, which has thus been thrust upon the United States, is hereby formally declared. Chapter 17. The Public Had Questions How much damage had the Japanese inflicted on Pearl Harbor? The people in this country were panic-stricken. Why had Japan attacked the U.S. fleet while negotiations with the U.S. were still ongoing? How much damage had been inflicted? Would the Japanese land in Hawaii? Would they attack the west coast of the United States? Would they attack Panama? Secretary of Navy Knox determined to investigate the situation in Hawaii himself. He called on President Roosevelt Monday morning to ask permission to fly to Pearl Harbor to inspect the carnage firsthand, to find out for himself how much damage had been done and to determine the responsibility for our force's apparent lack of preparedness. Roosevelt agreed to his trip. Knox spent the day gathering background material to study on the flight. Hawaii was still a territory, not yet a state. Secretary of Navy would be traveling outside the country, so Under Secretary of Navy James W. Forrestal would take over as acting secretary. Forrestal had not previously been on the list of those few top military and political officers privy to the closely guarded magic intercepts. However, as acting secretary, he was entitled to see them, and he asked to be briefed. Navy courier Lieutenant Commander Kramer assembled for Forrestal a sizable folder of the intercepts bearing on Pearl Harbor, took them to Forrestal's office on December 10, and spent some time going through the folder, giving Forrestal the general tenor of the way the thing shaped up from this traffic. It was a long trip to Hawaii in 1941, more than two days each way. The flight began on December 9. Accompanying Knox were his aide, Captain Frank E. Beatty, Lieutenant Commander Edward A. Hayes, USNR, Joseph W. Powell, Vice President of Bethlehem Shipbuilding Company, and two Knox assistants, one a specialist in shipbuilding matters. The Knox party flew first to Memphis, where the plane was gassed up, and then to El Paso, where they overnighted because of bad weather. The next day was rough. The plane iced up heavily going over the mountains, but arrived safely at San Diego, where a four-engine flying boat heavily loaded with medical supplies badly needed in Hawaii, was waiting to take them on the 2,000-plus mile overseas flight. They had trouble taking off, but finally made it. They encountered such turbulence and icing conditions at 7,000 feet that everyone donned full cold-weather flying gear and wrapped themselves in blankets. The pilot brought the plane down to 1,000 to 1,200 feet, where it was smooth but still intensely cold. Not knowing what to expect in Hawaii, Knox and his party prepared for the worst. As they approached the islands, the plane's machine guns were manned. Everyone donned life preservers and parachutes. To avoid being mistaken by some trigger-happy lookout for an enemy plane, the pilot followed his landing instructions precisely. They landed on Oahu on the morning of December 11. Once on the ground, Knox and his companions saw wreckage everywhere. The air station at Kaneoho seemed to have been completely devastated. So far as they could see, no planes remained in flying condition. 
The wreckage of Navy PBYC planes, which had been shot to pieces or burned, were visible on the ramps and in the water. The large hangars were burnt out. Pearl Harbor presented a tragic picture. All of our modern battleships, save the Colorado, were there, damaged in various degrees. The Arizona, a shattered mass of wreckage with smoke still pouring from her debris. The Oklahoma capsized. The Maryland, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania bombed or torpedoed. The Nevada, grounded near the hospital, bombed in her valiant effort to clear the harbor. Admiral Kimmel met Knox and his companions at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, grim and unlike the gay tourist hotel of peacetime days. They met some of Kimmel's staff at his quarters. Later, General Short joined them. Neither Kimmel nor Short attempted to justify their lack of readiness to oppose the attack. They readily acknowledged that the Japanese air attack on the island of Oahu on December 7th was a complete surprise to both the Army and the Navy. Its initial success was due to a lack of state of readiness against such an air attack. While the likelihood of an attack without warning by Japan was in the minds of both General Short and Admiral Kimmel, both felt certain that such an attack would take place nearer Japan's base of operations, that is, in the Far East. An air attack had appeared, extremely unlikely because of the great distance which the Japs would have to travel to make the attack, and the consequent exposure of such a task force to the superior gunpower of the American fleet. Moreover, they had not expected an attack by the Japanese while negotiations were still going on in Washington, as the Hawaiian press had reported. Kimmel had received a general warning from the Navy Department on November 27. His chief fear had been of a submarine attack, and he had made all necessary provisions to cope with such an attack. As a matter of fact, the air attack was accompanied by a submarine attack. Two Japanese submarines were sunk, one ran ashore, and one small two-man submarine penetrated the harbor. According to Knox, at the time of the attack, neither Short nor Kimmel had any knowledge of the plain intimations of some surprise move, made clear in Washington through the interception of Japanese instructions to Nomura, in which a surprise move of some kind was clearly indicated by the insistence upon the precise time of Nomura's reply to Hull at one o'clock on Sunday. In contrast to Kimmel, Short had considered sabotage the most imminent danger to the army because of the known presence of large number of alien Japanese in Honolulu. The Army's sabotage alert unfortunately called for bunching the planes on the various fields on the islands close together so that they might be carefully guarded against possible subversive actions by Japanese agents. This bunching of planes, of course, made the Japanese air attack more effective. Short's fear of a Japanese fifth column was by no means unjustified. Japanese agents had provided the Japanese Navy with exact knowledge of all necessary details to plan the attack, including exact charts showing customary positions of ships when in Pearl Harbor, exact location of all defenses, gunpowder, and numerous other details. Papers captured from the Japanese submarine that ran ashore indicated that the exact position of nearly every ship in the harbor was known and charted. It is acknowledged that the best means of defense against air attack consists of fighter planes. However, the number of such planes available to the Army for the defense of the island was far from adequate. This, Knox remarked in his report, was due to the diversion of this type of plane before the outbreak of the war to the British, the Chinese, the Dutch, and the Russians. The next best weapon against air attack is adequate and well-disposed anti-aircraft artillery. The dangerous shortage of this type of gun, Knox reported, is through no fault of the Army commander who had pressed consistently for these guns. The Army carried out no morning patrol on December 7. The Navy sent out at dawn a 10-bomber air patrol which searched the southern approach to the islands, considered the most likely direction from which an attack might be expected. 
they made no contacts with enemy aircraft. The Navy's condition of readiness was described as Condition 3, which meant that about one-half of the broadside and anti-aircraft guns were manned, and all of the anti-aircraft guns were supplied with ammunition and were in readiness. The Japanese Air Force planes had swept over Pearl Harbor in three waves. The torpedo planes flying low appeared first over the hills surrounding the harbor, and in probably not more than 60 seconds were in a position to discharge their torpedoes. The first wave was substantially but not completely unopposed. The first return fire from the guns of the fleet began, it is estimated, about four minutes after the first torpedo was fired, and this fire grew rapidly in intensity. The second wave over the harbor was resisted with far greater firepower and a number of enemy planes were shot down. The third attack over the harbor, about an hour and 20 minutes after the first, was met by so intensive a barrage from the ships that it was driven off without getting the attack home, no effective hits being made in the harbor by this last assault. Knox and his companions visited the naval hospital where they saw hundreds of wounded, many suffering horribly from burns and shock. He was distressed by the huge number of dead and wounded. The sight of those men made me angry as I have ever been in my life. It made me realize what a big job lay ahead of us. He was tremendously impressed also by the courage, daring, and heroism demonstrated by many servicemen and civilians in fighting back at the attackers and in rescuing men from burning ships and the harbor's oil-covered flaming waters. Friday, December 12th was taken up with interviews with Hawaii's leading industrialists and senior army officers. Knox, a veteran newspaper man, assembled the raw materials he would need for his report, information about damage to ships, possible sabotage, casualty lists, copies of Japanese charts, damage repairs, ship repair yards, and many photographs. Knox writes his report and delivers it to FDR. Knox and his party took off Friday evening. Knox spent most of that night on the flight back to the mainland drafting his report. By morning, it was pretty well finished in rough handwritten form. The plane landed in San Diego at 10.30 a.m., and when it took off the next leg of the journey, Knox had borrowed portable typewriter, paper, and carbon. By the time they landed in El Paso at 4 p.m., Lieutenant Commander Hayes, a former court stenographer, had it finished in typed form. They gassed up, but the weather closed in and they had to spend another night in Midland, Texas. On Sunday evening, they arrived in Washington and Knox went directly to the White House to deliver his report to Roosevelt. The original copy bears a notation in FDR's handwriting. 1941, given me by FK, 10 p.m., December 14, when he landed here from Hawaii, FDR. The next morning, Knox returned to the White House. FDR had gone over Knox's report and written out in pencil a series of points concerning the Pearl Harbor attack, which he told Secretary Knox to use at his press conference on the subject. FDR's notes, after deleting matters that an enemy should not be allowed to learn, contained all the information that could then, with the security of the nation at stake, be released to the public. The Army and Navy were to assume equal responsibility and blame for the damage caused by the Japanese attack and for the failure to be prepared for such an attack. Knox's Press Conference That afternoon, 200 newspaper reporters filed into Knox's office. With FDR's penciled notes as a guide, Knox issued a formal release and fielded the reporters' questions. Except for his praise of the performance of U.S. servicemen during the attack, his release bore little resemblance to the report he had made to the president. It began. My inspection trip to the island enables me to present the general facts covering the attack, which hitherto have been unavailable. Number one, the essential fact is that the Japanese purpose was to knock out the United States before the war began. This was made apparent by the deception practiced, by the preparations which had gone on for many weeks before the attack, 
and the attacks themselves, which were made simultaneously throughout the Pacific. In this purpose, the Japanese failed. Number two, the United States services were not on the alert against the surprise air attack on Hawaii. This fact calls for a formal investigation, which will be initiated immediately by the President. We are all entitled to know it if A. There was any error of judgment which contributed to the surprise. B. If there was any dereliction of duty prior to the attack. Knox went on to name some of the ships that were damaged. He admitted that Army losses were severe, and he cited the latest figures on Navy killed and wounded. Officers 91 dead and 20 wounded. Enlisted men, 2,638 dead and 636 wounded. He then described in detail some of the acts of heroism and valor on the part of the Navy men fighting the Japanese, and told of remarkably heroic rescues of men from the water after their ships had gone down. The following important points in the report Knox turned into the president were specifically omitted in his formal press release. Number one, in spite of the information available in Washington, Kimmel and Short had received no warning from Washington since November 27. The Army had then considered the most imminent threat to be from sabotage, and the Navy, warned that Southeast Asia was Japan's likely target, was concerned with a possibility of a submarine attack on the fleet at Pearl Harbor. Most importantly, neither Kimmel nor Short had any intimation of some surprise move made clear in Washington through the interception of Japanese instructions to Nomura by the insistence upon the precise time of Nomura's reply to Hull at 1 o'clock on Sunday, i.e. 7.30 a.m. in Hawaii. For security reasons, of course, the press couldn't be told that the Japanese instructions had been intercepted and decoded in Washington. But Knox could have admitted, without revealing anything of significance to the Japanese, that it was not astonishing that the Hawaiian commanders had been caught by surprise. Number two, the army in Hawaii didn't have enough fighter planes for the necessary reconnaissance because of the diversion of this type of plane to the British, the Chinese, the Dutch, and the Russians. Number three, U.S. soldiers and sailors responded to the Japanese attack within four minutes of the launching of the first Japanese torpedo, and the intensity of their firing increased to such an extent that the third and last wave of Japanese planes was driven off without getting the attack home. Although Knox praised the valor of U.S. personnel in fighting back when attacked, he didn't mention the promptness with which they got into action, nor the fact that the intensity of their firing increased to such an extent that the third and last wave of Japanese planes, only an hour and 20 minutes after the first one, was driven off without getting the attack home, no effective hits being made in the harbor. Number four, the unsuitability of Pearl Harbor as a site for a large concentration of naval vessels. In his report, Knox raised the question. In view of the attack and the serious damage inflicted by it, the usefulness and availability of this naval station must be studied. Pending these studies and the addition of satisfactory safeguards, no large concentration of naval vessels can be permitted at Pearl Harbor. Knox recognized that Admiral Richardson had had reasonable grounds for the doubts he had raised with FDR concerning the advisability of holding the fleet at Pearl Harbor. While for security reasons some of these points could not be revealed, it would have been possible to admit, number one, surprise, number two, inadequate equipment, number three, prompt retaliation, and number four, previous errors in judgment, without giving aid or comfort to the enemy. However, such admissions might have led our own people to ask embarrassing questions. For instance, who was responsible for providing the commanders in the field with intelligence? Who had the responsibility for seeing that they were properly warned and adequately equipped and supplied? And why was the fleet headquartered at Pearl Harbor anyway? Knox said the president would launch a formal investigation into the attack. In response, the two houses of Congress agreed to drop their proposals to conduct their own investigations.
Chapter 18, The Cover-Up Begins The First Week After the Attack in Washington After the attack, the efforts of U.S. citizens immediately turned in three directions. Number one, to avenge the dastardly act. Number two, to investigate the damage done by the Japanese. And number three, to understand the reasons for the attack. Among top Washington officials, civil and military, there was a fourth concern, namely to prevent public knowledge of any acts of commission or omission on their part that might have contributed to the tragedy and to conceal any implication of their possible complicity or responsibility for having provoked the attack. The members of Congress were anxious to learn as much as possible about the Pearl Harbor disaster, and they promptly set the wheels in motion to conduct various investigations. Senator David L. Walsh of Massachusetts and Representative Carl Vinson of Georgia chairman respectively of the Senate and House Naval Affairs Committees, met with Admiral Stark on December 8. They asked him just how much damage had actually been done to the ships at Pearl Harbor. Stark answered by giving exact details. Four ships sunk. The Arizona, the California, West Virginia, and Oglala. Two ships capsized, the Oklahoma and the Utah. And 12 other ships damaged, some heavily. Walsh immediately called a meeting of the Senate Naval Affairs Committee. Senator Harry Flood Byrd of Virginia and several others advised Walsh to go directly to the president. Ask him to tell the truth to the American people. Walsh agreed that the truth should be told, but, as a former member of the America First Committee who had opposed Roosevelt's foreign policy, he was hesitant at first to be the one to go to the president with such a request. After further urging, however, he agreed to do so. When Walsh asked FDR to tell the American people the truth about Pearl Harbor, the president flew into a rage. He demanded Walsh divulge the source of his information. Walsh acknowledged that it came directly from the Navy and Admiral Stark. Roosevelt responded, Stark should never have given out the facts about Pearl Harbor, not even to the chairman of the Senate Committee on Naval Affairs. Then, referring to the battleship sunk, Roosevelt said, Why in hell should we admit that they're sunk? They're resting in only a couple of feet of water. We'll raise them. On December 10, Walsh publicly acknowledged that President Roosevelt must be the judge of information about war operations to be given to the American public. For that reason, the committee will make no effort to question naval officials on the extent of ship losses at Pearl Harbor. He was satisfied. He said the president had told all he could. The president, as commander-in-chief, Walsh continued, is in the position of having to determine the line of demarcation between giving as much information as possible to the American public and of refraining from giving information that will be comforting to the enemy. On December 10, Harry S. Truman, then chairman of the Senate Defense Investigating Committee, announced that his committee believes that it should not investigate military and naval strategy or tactics, and that therefore, no attempt will be made to inquire into the circumstances of the Japanese surprise attack at Pearl Harbor Sunday. Squelching Rumors and Keeping Wartime Secrets Magic had always been a closely guarded secret, of course, and now it was most imperative for the sake of the war effort to keep the Japanese from knowing that their purple code had been broken. As the enormity of the Pearl Harbor catastrophe became apparent, the top Washington officials realized more strongly than ever that they would have to keep the public from learning how much had been known about Japanese affairs in Washington before the attack. Otherwise, they would be asked to explain why, when they had had so much information, the Army and Navy in Hawaii had so little, and why our military forces in Hawaii had been so poorly prepared. To preserve their own reputations, therefore, Washington officials who had been privy to magic had to maintain its secrecy. 
A meeting to discuss Pearl Harbor was held shortly after the attack in the office of the Director of Naval Communications, presided over either by Admiral Noyes, Director of ONI, or Captain Redmond, Assistant Director of Naval Communications. A whispering campaign against Admiral Kimmel and Admiral Block, Commandant of the 14th Naval District, Hawaii, was then getting in full swing. Noyes told his subordinates, There were altogether too many rumors running around the Navy Department and people running to the newspapers, getting in the newspapers and on the radio, saying all manners of things against Admiral Kimmel and Admiral Block, which were not true, that we had to put a stop to. These rumors ourselves, if we knew anything, let it die with us, and not originate any rumors ourselves. The section heads were given standing orders not to talk, not to spread the gossip against Kimmel and Block, to keep anything we had to ourselves until we were called to a witness stand to testify officially. They were told to pass that word on to their subordinates. They should tell all their people not to talk. There was too much loose talk going around, that there would undoubtedly be an investigation later, and that anybody who had anything to say would be called before that investigation and permitted to say all they had to say, if they had anything to say, and if we had written out anything to destroy it immediately. Anyone who had kept any notes or anything in writing should destroy them immediately. If these papers weren't destroyed, there was a chance somebody might see them and start something the note-taker hadn't intended. We were in an emergency situation, and there was panic running through the Navy Department at that particular time. The order to destroy the papers came down from the office of Chief of Naval Operations Stark. According to Captain Safford, in charge of the Security Section of Naval Communications, it seemed a perfectly logical and reasonable order, and he carried it out, passing that word on to his immediate subordinates. The order applied only to unofficial notes or personal records. The section heads were not given any instructions to destroy files or any official records. Concerning security in the Army, General Marshall warned his staff officers shortly after the attacks that it was mandatory that knowledge of the magic intercepts never be made public. Marshall told them that they would have to go to their graves with this secret. With respect to Navy security, Stark testified that anybody who was let in on that magic had to sign a paper never to disclose it, practically so long as he lived. He said, for instance, that his aide during the Pearl Harbor investigations, Lieutenant Commander Richmond, pretty near signed his death warrant if he were to give anything out about it. Short and Kimmel relieved of their commands. Action on the relief of Admiral Kimmel and General Short was prompt. Upon Knox's return from Hawaii, he conferred with Stimson. Stimson talked with Marshall. As a result, a decision was reached for the relief of both Kimmel and Short. There was no hint in Knox's report of any misconduct on Kimmel's part. No charges were made. No trial was held. Stark was not consulted beforehand. After coming from the White House, Knox directed that Kimmel be relieved. Knox had no discussion with Stark as to the reasons. But Stark said, A commander-in-chief would not be removed without the president's permission. I imagine that had been discussed with the president because the future of those two officers, Kimmel and Short, at that time was on a high level. Kimmel's dismissal letter dated December 16 was from the Secretary of the Navy and bore the initials of Stark in Admiral Nimitz, then Chief of Personnel. Secretary of War Stimson discussed Short's situation with Marshall. Short was then promptly relieved of his command, on the direction of the Secretary of War. His dismissal letter, also dated December 16, was signed by General Marshall. Although relieved of their duties in mid-December, both Kimmel and Short were still in the service awaiting further assignments. They remained in Hawaii. 
Kimmel and Short had devoted their lives to preparing themselves to defend the United States. Their efforts and their accomplishments over the years had earned them respect and advancement to positions in the military hierarchy. Kimmel and Short had been given no indication that their actions had not been completely honest and honorable. Yet, at the very moment when trained and experienced men were in greatest demand, they were abruptly relieved of their commands. Without any charges having been made, without a hearing, without having had a chance to face their accusers, and without an opportunity to defend themselves. Pressure for an Investigation Senator Tom Connolly of Texas, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, called for a thorough investigation of the leadership at Hawaii. He said, The statement of the Secretary of the Navy that neither the Army nor the Navy were on alert at Hawaii is astounding. It is almost unbelievable. The Naval Commander and Army General should be vigorously investigated. Theirs is a responsibility, and it ought to be determined whether either or both are inefficient or criminally negligent. They must be one or the other. I have always been a big Navy man. I am pained and grieved at its seeming failure of its high duty. At his press conference following his own investigation, Knox had avoided potentially damaging statements. Still, questions would undoubtedly be asked as to why the military forces at Pearl Harbor had not been better provided with planes and anti-aircraft artillery. Why had they not been more adequately supplied with intelligence? And why had the Navy been based in such a vulnerable position far from our shores? It was becoming obvious that if the administration was to retain its good name, an official investigation would have to be arranged to answer such questions. Less than 24 hours before the Japanese attack, the Navy Department had announced that the U.S. fleet was second to none. Yet now many of its ships had been sunk or set ablaze and were resting in the mud at the bottom of Pearl Harbor. More than 2,500 officers and enlisted men were dead and 650 more were wounded. Why had seasoned Army and Navy officers who had spent lifetimes preparing to defend the nation been taken so completely by surprise? Why had they been caught with their defenses down? Why had they been so ill-prepared? The people were entitled to answers. Any tragedy, especially one of this magnitude, leads to recriminations and doubts. Many of the individuals involved, directly or indirectly, with the Pearl Harbor disaster, must have had second thoughts about whether things might have turned out differently if only they had followed another path. Certainly, the Pearl Harbor commanders themselves must have wished they could turn back the clock and have a second chance. Admiral Kimmel, for one, confessed after the attack that he wished he had taken the other course when offered the promotion to commander-in-chief. Undoubtedly, some Washington officials must have also had doubts about whether they had followed the correct path. Suppose they had tried to ameliorate Japanese-U.S. relations instead of aggravating them. Also, given what they knew in Washington about the likelihood of Japanese aggression, could they have done a better job of alerting and provisioning the field commands for defending themselves? At President Roosevelt's direction, with the security of the nation at stake, most of Secretary Knox's findings on his trip to Hawaii had been withheld from the public. Of course, we cannot know whom Knox really considered responsible, but one admiral, William H. Stanley, commented that he thought Knox was very sensitive of the failure of the Navy Department and of himself properly to alert the Commander-in-Chief in Pearl Harbor. Knox appeared conscious of his share in the blame for the surprise at Pearl Harbor. The Japanese 1 p.m. message, which had sparked Marshall's last-minute December 7 dispatch, had been intercepted early in the morning of December 7, but apparently it wasn't decoded and ready for delivery until about 9 a.m. Army courier Colonel Bratton said he had it about 9 o'clock or shortly before. 
He had then tried desperately to reach Army Chief of Staff Marshall. Captain McCollum testified that Navy Courier Kramer had brought it to him just before 9.30 a.m., and that he, McCollum, had then handed it to Chief of Naval Operations Stark. Stark had apparently phoned FDR, but taken no further action. According to some reports, Marshall was with Stark in his office sometime that morning. Still, nothing was done. Apparently, no special action was taken on the 1 p.m. message until after 11.25 a.m., when Marshall arrived in his office and Bratton was finally able to deliver it to him personally. Marshall did not read it until after reading the other Japanese messages that awaited him. Only then did Marshall draft his message advising the field commanders of the 1 p.m. delivery time for the Japanese reply to the U.S. note of November 26. By the time these warning messages had been encoded and sent to Manila, Pearl Harbor, etc., it was 11.58 a.m. After the attack, Marshall must have felt uneasy. He began that very afternoon to check on the disposition of his last-minute message to his field commanders. He asked for an immediate report on the delivery of that message. Lieutenant Colonel Edward F. French of the U.S. Army's Signal Corps wired a follow-up service message trying to track down when that message to Pearl Harbor had been delivered and to whom. It had gone to San Francisco by Western Union, which had a tube running across the street to the RCA. From there, it had gone via RCA's powerful transmitter to Hawaii. According to French, that was the quickest means at his disposal at the time. French told Western Union that he wanted to know whose hands that message got into. This inquiry went on late until the night, and two in the morning we hadn't as yet received the reply. French also talked to the signal officer over there, in Hawaii, on the wire, and told him it was imperative that French inform General Marshall as to who received that message. To track Marshall's message, Washington wired officials in Hawaii on December 9, asking them to advise immediately exact time of receipt of our number 529, Marshall's message. December 7, at Honolulu exact time, deciphered message transmitted by Signal Corps to staff and by what staff officer received. Hawaii's reply on December 9, signed by General Short, stated that the message was delivered to Honolulu, downtown via RCA, at 7.33 a.m. of the 7th, received, still in code, at the signal office, Fort Shafter, at about 11.45 a.m. It had then still to be deciphered, and it didn't reach the adjutant general until 2.58 p.m. in the afternoon. Many other principals concerned with the nation's defenses may also have had doubts and questions concerning the responsibility for the disaster. Some of them undoubtedly looked on the prospects of a formal investigation with mixed emotions. Chapter 19. The Administration Initiates an Investigation Roberts Commission Appointed On December 16, the President named a five-man board with Supreme Court Justice Owen J. Roberts as chairman to investigate the attack. In addition to Roberts, it included two retired Navy officers, one retired and one active Army officer according to Admiral William H. Stanley, former Chief of Naval Operations, and a member of the Commission, FDR handpicked the other four members in consultation with Stimson, Marshall, and possibly Knox, so that a majority could be trusted to conclude that Short and Kimmel were primarily responsible for the Pearl Harbor disaster. The Commission's assignment was to decide whether any derelictions of duty or errors of judgment on the part of the United States Army or Navy personnel contributed to such successes as were achieved by the enemy. If any such derelictions or errors were found, it was to determine who were responsible therefor. The Commission's authority was limited to investigating Army and Navy personnel only, no civilian personnel.
the Commission begins hearings. The Commission convened in Washington December 17, with only four of its five members present. When Admiral Stanley arrived the next day, he found the Commission to be a mixed, and a very mixed-up, presidential commission with civilian, naval, and military members, for which there was no precedent in law, custom, or jurisprudence. He was shocked at the irregularity of the procedure of the commission and of the reliance placed upon unsworn testimony. It was empowered to prescribe its own procedure, but as originally set up, it did not have the legal power to do anything which would be usual and essential to carry out the purposes for which it had been formed, to summon witnesses, enforce their attendance, administer oaths, to take testimony. Stanley protested at this lack of formal authority. Washington Testimony, Unsworn The Commission members knew nothing of pre-attack events except what they had read in the newspapers. They began by questioning top military officials on the Washington situation. None of the officers was sworn, nor were they cross-examined. No transcripts, only brief summaries of their remarks were published. Secretary of State Hall had agreed to advise the Commission by letter as to warnings of probable Japanese attack he had received from Stimson and Knox. The Secretaries of War and Navy, interviewed jointly by the Commission members, offered the fullest cooperation of their departments. General Marshall and Admiral Stark appeared together and furnished information showing that Kimmel and Short had been specifically warned of the likelihood of a probable outbreak of war. On October 16, November 24, and November 27, 1941, General Marshall related informative or warning messages sent to the commanding general of the Hawaiian Department, including his December 7 message to General Short, which had been dispatched on the morning of December 7, but which had not reached Short in Hawaii until after the attack. The tenor of this unsworn testimony was that Washington had been fully alert to the possibility of a surprise Japanese attack and of sudden raids on Pearl Harbor. Stark was obliged to admit, however, that all the warnings sent out from Washington to the fleet commanders in the months before the attack concerning the possibilities of attacks and expeditions against positions in the Far East conveyed the idea that both he and Marshall believed the Far East would be the locality where the major sustained Japanese effort would be initiated. Hawaii was not specifically mentioned as a point of attack. The Director of Naval Intelligence Division acknowledged that secret information had been received in Washington leading the Navy to conclude in November that the Japanese were contemplating an early attack. According to him, care was taken to see that these two officers, Kimmel in Hawaii and Admiral Hart in the Philippines, were kept fully advised as to developments, so he assumed that they had been sent this information. Pearl Harbor Testimony Under Oath On completion of the Washington testimony, the members of the commission flew to Pearl Harbor. By then, Congress had approved a joint resolution granting the Commission power to conduct a proper investigation and authorizing it to administer oaths and affirmations, examine witnesses, and receive evidence. Thus, the military officers in Hawaii testified under oath. Both Short and Kimmel were still in the service, although they had been relieved of their respective commands on December 16, shortly after the attack. Short's staff was available to help him. Kimmel's staff had put to sea with the fleet, so he had little help in preparing his testimony. Hawaii Sworn Testimony, Responsibility According to the plan then in effect, Army and Navy coordinated their operations for the defense of Pearl Harbor. The three principals, Kimmel, Block, and Short, had been very frank with each other, talk things over, and Short believed they had enjoyed closer cooperation in the last eight to ten months than ever before.
Testimony revealed clearly that responsibility for the protection of Pearl Harbor's shore-based establishments rested on the Army and Navy jointly. The Army's role was basically to defend onshore establishments, the naval base, and the fleet when it was in harbor. The Navy's responsibility was offensive, to support the Army by operations at sea. The Navy was not responsible for the defense of the base in case of an air raid, but it was responsible for the naval elements that could be made available to the Army and the Army Air Force for the defense of Pearl Harbor. Kimmel was not included in the joint Army-Navy plan for defending the base's onshore establishments. He fully expected when the fight came on that he wouldn't be down there in the harbor, that he would be on the high seas fighting. According to him, the fleet was to have freedom of action, to go and come without being concerned about the safety, except for the broader strategy of operations. As Kimmel put it, a fleet base is a haven for refit, supply, and for rest and recreation of personnel after arduous duties and strenuous operations at sea. Pearl Harbor's defense was in the hands of the Army. The Navy's aircraft carriers were of special concern. Planes could not take off from a docked carrier, so when in port, both carrier and any planes would be vulnerable to attack and destruction. For safety's sake, when in harbor, carrier aircraft were flown off their mother ships. Thus, the Navy required shore air bases for the use of carrier aircraft in order to maintain them in a proper state of training for war readiness, and so that, in the event of being caught in port, those planes could be useful. Those shore air bases, also needed to outfit the carrier planes with bombs and ammunition, were an Army responsibility. When the planes assigned to carriers or to the Marines were shore-based, they came under the Commander Fleet Air Detachment. Air combat, Army pursuit airplanes, anti-aircraft artillery, and the Aircraft Warning Service, radar, were under the command of the Army's Interceptor Commander. Radar, still in its infancy in 1941, was not fully operational on the morning of December 7. It was then operating for drill purposes only. Hawaii Sworn Testimony, The Surprise Element Knox, recalling 11-month-old correspondence between him and Stimson, considered an air bombing attack or an air torpedo plane attack the greatest potential dangers and urged Stimson to have the Army improve Pearl Harbor's readiness to meet such attacks. Stimson assured Knox that the Hawaiian Department is the best equipped of all our overseas departments and he was working to further improve its defensive capabilities. New pursuit planes had been promised. Aircraft warning service equipment and barrage balloons were on order. Block, who had once held Kimmel's position as commander-in-chief of the fleet, said that the possibility of a Japanese air raid on Pearl Harbor had always been a consideration, but in all estimates of the situation that he was familiar with, it was considered remote. Nevertheless, in March, Major General F.L. Martin, commander of the Army's Hawaiian Air Force, and Rear Admiral P.N.L. Bellinger, commander of the Navy's Naval Base Defense Air Force, had examined the prospects of an attack on the fleet in Hawaii. The most likely and dangerous form of attack on Oahu would be an air attack, launched from one or more carriers. In a dawn air attack, there is a high probability that it could be delivered as a complete surprise, in spite of any patrols we might be using, and that it might find us in a condition of readiness under which pursuit would be slow to start. The two commanders recommended daily patrols as far as possible to seaward through 360 degrees to reduce the probability of surface or air surprise. However, they realized that this can only be effectively maintained with present personnel and material for a very short period and as a practicable measure cannot therefore be undertaken unless other intelligence indicates 
that a surface rate is probable within rather narrow time limits. Distance reconnaissance, a Navy responsibility, was generally acknowledged to be the best assurance against an approaching surprise attack. However, Block reported that reconnaissance planes were in serious short supply on the islands. It was estimated that to patrol 360 degrees continually would have required 200 to 300 planes. On paper, Block testified he had been given 108 patrol planes for that specific purpose, distance reconnaissance, none of which had ever arrived, not one of them. We had a plane building program, and on that plane building program, the assignment of the 14th Naval District was nine squadrons of patrol planes and two squadrons of observation planes, and they were the district forces that were supposed to do this reconnaissance, but there were none of them ever delivered here because they hadn't been built. 24 of Oahu's 72 patrol bombers were then out with the task forces Kimmel had sent to reinforce the bases on Wake and Midway. Only 36 planes were still at Oahu, 12 of which were under overhaul. There were nowhere nearly enough planes in Hawaii to carry out any distant reconnaissance. Block related his experience in 1938 when he had been commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet. They endeavored to make the 360-degree search with the planes they had, and we had a tremendous number of casualties. In a few days, they lost something like four or five planes, and two of them lost all the crews. They lost the other planes that went down, but recovered the personnel. The lesson from this maneuver was that, to conduct a search efficiently and to maintain it, required a large number of planes, and they had to be operated more or less day on and day off, so that one day they, the crews, would go out. The next day they could rest. In other words, the strain on the personnel was greater than it was on the materiel. The Navy under Kimmel had been diligent in conducting reconnaissance, mainly anti-submarine patrols covering the 25 to 50 mile belt around the island that the available planes could cover. However, Kimmel admitted that he had considered an air attack highly improbable and patrols to the northward not justified. Had he had warning that an air attack was anywhere near probable, he said, I would have used everything we had. Everything. But given the state of the planes, it seemed more prudent to conserve them for action in the war that was anticipated. In addition to considering the likelihood of submarine and air attacks, the Navy had also considered the possibility of a torpedo attack. However, this threat had generally been discounted because of the shallowness of the approach to Pearl Harbor. So the use of anti-torpedo baffles for Pearl Harbor or other harbors in the 14th Naval District was not recommended. In June, the Navy Department again concluded that a torpedo plane attack in Pearl Harbor's relatively shallow water was unlikely. In any event, no anti-torpedo baffles were installed. There had been gossip in the newspapers in the States to the effect that there had been a lot of drinking and that some in the high command were not fit for duty, on Sunday morning, December 7. Both Kimmel and his aide, Admiral Theobald, denied that drunkenness was a contributing factor. No liquor is allowed on board ship. According to Kimmel, there had been very little drunkenness among the officers and men of this fleet. We have dealt very seriously with the incidents which were reported by the patrol, and they have been isolated incidents. Nor was Kimmel conscious of the special dangers of a Sunday when more passes and leaves were issued on Saturdays and fewer men and officers were apt to be aboard ship, alert, and ready for action. There were not appreciably more absences of officers and men on Sunday than any other day. True, some commanding officers were ashore, but that depended on whether or not their families were in Hawaii. There were a great many officers here who had no families and they slept on board. So if there were fewer officers aboard, it was not entirely due to its being a weekend.
Hawaii Sworn Testimony Preparedness As Admiral Richardson prepared to relinquish command of the U.S. Pacific Fleet in January 1941, he and Kimmel, who was preparing to take over command, collaborated in a letter to Chief of Naval Operations Stark concerning the security measures required for the protection of fleet units at sea and in port. Surprise raids on Pearl Harbor or attempts to block the channel, they wrote, were possible. The fleet was severely handicapped in preparing for such contingencies by certain market deficiencies in the existing local defense forces and equipment both Army and Navy. Moreover, many of the fleet's facilities were obsolescent. Richardson and Kimmel urged that correcting these critical deficiencies be given priority over the needs of the Continental Districts, the training program, and material aid to Great Britain. Short, who was responsible for the protection of the fleet when in Pearl Harbor, said, It was practically impossible to protect the ships in such a restricted area against the serious attack, no matter how much you tried. With so many ships docked so close together, he could not have guaranteed that no enemy plane could get in and make a hit. Some would be bound to suffer losses. Throughout 1941, the Hawaiian commanders, Kimmel, Short, and Block, had pressed repeatedly for additional men and equipment. They received some reinforcements, but these failed to build up the Hawaiian forces as hoped, and other factors were steadily eroding them. Regular and experienced officers were being detached at an alarming rate, and many trained enlisted men were not planning to re-enlist when their duty was up. In May 1941, about a quarter of the Pacific Fleet's ships had been transferred to the Atlantic on orders from Washington. Moreover, relatively few of the new planes, men, and guns that reached Hawaii remained there. Most continued on to the West. The Army was engaged in ferrying planes to the Asiatics. Long-range patrol bombers were being flown to the Philippines via Hawaii, Midway, Wake, and Australia. Over and above the Army's defensive role at Pearl Harbor, the Army Air Corps had a very specific mission of preparing combat teams to ferry planes, B-17s, to the Philippines. No one can just step into the cockpit of a B-17, a flying fortress, from his training ship and immediately fly it across the Pacific. A pilot must first train on B-18s and A-20s and then serve as a B-17 co-pilot before taking over as a full-fledged B-17 pilot. It would have been risky to send a plane across the Pacific with a half-trained crew, and Short only had six bombers at his disposal to do all this training. Short couldn't, number one, use these six bombers for training pilots for ferrying missions, and at the same time, number two, turn them over to Navy for long-range reconnaissance, and also, number three, keep them scattered about, warmed up 24 hours a day, and ready to take to the air. He didn't have enough planes to accomplish both number one and number two, and he hadn't considered the threat serious enough to justify number three. On October 17, Stark had wired Kimmel. Because of the great importance of continuing to reinforce the Philippines with long-range army bombers, you are requested to take all practical precautions for the safety of the airfields at Wake and Midway. The plan was to ferry some 60 long-range bombers out to the Philippines via Hawaii and Wake. As Kimmel was responsible for the defense of Wake and for the defenses of Midway, and for putting Marines and guns and all other defensive weapons out there, he proceeded to strengthen their defenses as best he could. The war warning message of November 27th had instructed Kimmel to carry out the tasks assigned in WPL 46, that is, to get ready to attack the Japanese bases in the Marshall Islands. Two other dispatches on that same day ordered him to prepare troops for our advanced bases and to transport 25 Army pursuit planes with ground crews to Wake and Midway. 
Stationing these planes on Wake and Midway must not be allowed to interfere with planned movements of Army bombers to Philippines. Kimmel realized the Army was short of planes. Shortly before reinforcing Wake and Midway, he had wanted the Army to participate in Navy maneuvers. But the Army could not do it because they were engaged in ferrying these planes to the Asiatics and in getting their planes in a ferrying condition here. They had their problems too, Kimmel said. Short and Kimmel met with staff members on November 27 to discuss the transfer from Oahu of 25 pursued planes each to Wake and Midway, as Washington had ordered. Kimmel questioned his war plans officer. What is your idea of the chances of a surprise raid on Oahu? McMorris replies, I should say none, Admiral. At the time, Short said, there was no exception taken to that statement by either Admiral Kimmel or Admiral Block, and apparently the Navy felt that they had definite information of the location of carriers and major ships of the Japanese, and that there was no question in their minds of the possibility or probability of a surprise attack upon Oahu. The construction of the airfields on Wake and Midway had to be carried out under the most adverse conditions. We were faced with the necessity of building bases and of protecting them at the same time. The dispatch of reinforcements there would seriously weaken Hawaii's defensive forces. It was finally decided to send only half the number of planes Washington had suggested. Rightly or wrongly, Kimmel testified, we eventually had there about 350 Marines and six 5-inch guns and 12 3-inch guns and the number of machine guns, and we had 12 fighting planes there. On November 28, Kimmel dispatched a convoy under Admiral William F. Halsey with men and planes to wake. Because there had been a warning from the Chief of Naval Operations that the conversations with the Japanese representatives were about to break down and to be prepared for eventualities, all the ships in Halsey's convoy were to assume a condition of readiness for instant combat and to maintain strict radio silence. On December 5, Kimmel sent out a second convoy under Admiral J.H. Newton with a squadron of planes bound for Midway. Block, who had taken over the responsibility for the security of the base, had written the Navy Department about the weakness in the pursuit planes, bombing planes, and anti-aircraft guns. The Army had dispatched to Hawaii a large number of pursuit planes and some heavy bombers, but no anti-aircraft guns were forthcoming. When Block pressed his need for planes and vessels, he was told they were doing everything within their power to get them and would send them as soon as they could. As a result of Block's efforts, Pearl Harbor finally obtained one division of destroyers four destroyers, only one of which has any listening gear, and one division of four minesweepers. In accordance with Kimmel's order, the destroyers were stationed at the harbor entrance, the minesweepers swept the channel, the nets were operating, and boom and harbor patrols were executed. However, anti-aircraft protection of Pearl Harbor was weak. Block was also charged on paper with a responsibility for distant reconnaissance. 108 patrol planes had been promised for that purpose, none of which had ever arrived, not one of them. Before December 7, Short received three serious warning messages from Washington, October 16, November 27, and November 28. All three messages emphasized right straight through that we must not disclose our stand and that we must not alarm the population and that we must take measures to protect against sabotage, against espionage, and against subversive action. Nowhere did they indicate in any way the necessity for protecting against attack. They also did indicate definitely that we must avoid publicity and avoid alarming the public. Short instituted what was known as Alert Number 1 for sabotage. If the Army had gone to the next higher alert, Alert Number 2, 
All anti-aircraft guns would have been set out with live ammunition right alongside. People would then have noticed. And that short maintained would have violated the War Department's intentions to not alarm the population. On November 29, he detailed the precautions being taken against subversive activities. Washington made no objection whatever to Short's report that he was alerted for sabotage. Short told the commission, If they had any idea that that was not a correct order, they had all the opportunity from November 27 to December 7 to come back and say, we do not consider the action taken by you as sufficient and that you should instead take action to defend yourself against their attack. He took Washington's failure to object to his action as tacit agreement with the course he had taken. He did not see how he could draw any other conclusion. Short believed that if Washington really wanted him to know something urgently, it would have contacted him by its speech scrambler telephone. Short had a secret phone with connections to the secret phone right in the chief of staff's office. Short had talked with Marshall repeatedly on this telephone, which was the fastest thing that could possibly come through, taking only about 15 minutes to establish contact. While not considered as safe as code, they, scrambler phones, are reasonably safe. Washington didn't phone short with a special warning between November 27 and December 7. The Office of Navy Intelligence's ONI December 5 summary of the Japanese naval situation reported that extensive preparations are underway for hostilities. Troop transports and freighters were pouring continually down from Japan and northern China coast ports headed south, apparently for French Indochina and Formosan ports. And the intelligence Kimmel and Short received from Washington during this period indicated that the Japanese forces were heading for Southeast Asia and were expected to strike in the far west at the Philippines, Thailand, the Kra Peninsula, or possibly Borneo, about 3,000 miles from Hawaii. Both Kimmel and Short had prepared contingency plans detailing what to do in case they were attacked. Kimmel was by no means convinced that we were going to get into the war at this time and that we would become involved immediately. That was, of course, he said, his mistake. Nevertheless, he had made plans for going to war. From November 30 on, he had prepared daily memoranda to show what the initial steps would be when war would come. On the morning of December 6, Kimmel had gone over his December 5 memorandum, which had set forth the steps to be taken in case of American-Japanese war. He said they were alive to the possibility of war. In accordance with the security measures we had in effect, he pointed out, Patrol Wing 2 did not have to wait for specific instructions. It set out immediately after the attack began to search for the enemy. Hawaii Sworn Testimony Intelligence the members of the Roberts Commission learned from witness after witness about the intelligence available to the Hawaiian commanders. It came principally from four sources. Number one, observation. Number two, deciphering of some minor Japanese codes, DAK2. Number three, direction finding, DF, stations that analyzed radio beams broadcast from Japanese ships. And number four, advice forwarded from the ONI and Chief of Naval Operations, CNO, in Washington. Responsibility for intelligence in Hawaii was divided between two authorities. The Combat Intelligence Unit, concerned primarily with the functions of the enemy and enemy movements, and the District Intelligence Officer, who has more to do with defense, subversive activities, aliens, sabotage, and that sort of thing. Commander Joseph John Rochefort of Combat Intelligence tried to cover every possible transmission by the Germans, Italians, Japanese, through his DF stations, 
and the interceptor watch, which intercepts enemy transmissions in the form of radio messages and copies the radio messages intact. His operators were able to pick up transmissions from Tokyo and the Japanese fleet. Then there was also the search watch, which searched from the bottom of the radio band to the top. To discover what the Japanese fleet was doing, the intelligence officers in Hawaii did their best to piece together what they could learn from the intercepted radio transmissions, radio beams, and their search watch. Otherwise, all they knew of the impending crisis, except for the Washington dispatches reporting Japanese ship movements in the vicinity of the South China Sea, was gleaned from the Honolulu newspapers. And according to press reports, the threat appeared to have abated temporarily. Japanese-U.S. conversations in Washington were continuing. From about November 1 on, Hawaiian intelligence personnel realized something was afoot. They couldn't put their fingers on it exactly, but it was apparent that something was building up, just as it had been several years earlier, when the Japanese were preparing to move against the Chinese island of Hainan, and again in the spring of 1941, when they were getting ready to go into Indochina. About November 25 or 26, it became apparent that Japanese submarines and aircraft carriers, and probably a battleship division, were concentrated in the Marshall Island area south of Wake. By the end of the month, it looked as if everything, except for some ships still in the Marshalls, was west of that, down around Palau, not far from the Philippines. This formation just didn't seem logical, but Hawaiian intelligence was positive, from their study of the traffic, that the carriers were in the Marshalls. So they sent a dispatch to this effect to the Navy Department in Washington. About a day after that, the carriers just completely dropped from sight. Never heard another word from them. They just completely dropped out of the picture approximately the 1st of December, battleships likewise. Fleet Intelligence Officer Lieutenant Commander Edwin Thomas Layton estimated they were in port having completed two weeks' operations and they are having an overhaul for new operations. In addition to the traffic buildup, Hawaiian intelligence had another hint of impending Japanese action, the fleet's frequent code changes in late 1941. The Japanese normally change their sea and shore calls twice a year, on the 1st of November and the 1st of March or April. But in 1941, they didn't wait for November. They changed their codes a month early, on October 1. Then they changed them again on November 1, and still again on December 1. The Japanese were apparently planning something. But what? Where? When? The Army's Hawaiian Department relied on information supplied by the 14th Naval District, the War Department's G2 in Washington, which got its information through ONI. Members of the Roberts Commission asked again and again why the Hawaiian forces were surprised so completely. The intelligence that reached Hawaii from Washington in the weeks and months preceding December 7, 1941, warned repeatedly that a strike was expected in Southeast Asia, thousands of miles from Pearl Harbor. Kimmel summarized, and the department by their dispatches evidenced considerable concern about the security of their outlying bases. Even Commission Chairman Roberts admitted that anyone who reads those telegrams will see that the naval intelligence indicated aggressive movements many thousand miles from Pearl Harbor. The buildup of Hawaii's defenses had been neglected at the expense of other theaters of war, as Kimmel had noted. Repeated requests by the Hawaiian commanders for more men and material had been ignored. Post-attack revelations in Hawaii Immediately after the attack, officials of the FBI entered the Japanese consulate in Honolulu. They interrupted the burning of papers, arrested the consul, and seized Japanese codes and papers. Short said they got almost a complete file. With the help of these codes, the Navy was soon able to decipher communications which had passed between Tokyo and the Japanese consul 
in the weeks preceding the attack. These captured communications undoubtedly included the ships and harbor messages that had been intercepted in Hawaii before the attack, forwarded still in code by airmail on Washington's orders, then decoded, translated, and made available before December 7 to Washington officials, though not to the Hawaiian commanders. On December 9, Kimmel saw translations of these messages. They made it very clear that Tokyo had attached a special importance to information concerning the locations of ships in Pearl Harbor. Apparently, Japan had no intention of attacking Pearl Harbor in the absence of a large number of our battleships and aircraft carriers. One message sent to Tokyo by the Japanese consul on December 3 itemized. Elaborate arrangements to report the Japanese submarines and Japanese vessels at sea, the departure of aircraft carriers and battleship from Pearl Harbor by number 1. Broadcast advertisements over KGMB at 0945 daily. Number two, a system of lights from a house on Lanikai and Kalama during the night and visual day signals at Lanikai from a starboat during daylight. Number three, further visual warning of the absence of aircraft carriers and battleships was a bonfire to be shown on the island of Mari near the Kula Sanitarium. Had Kimmel known on December 3 when the Japanese consul sent this message to Tokyo that a series of signals was being set up to indicate which ships were in the harbor and which were out, he would have immediately reported it to Washington and would have considered it almost equivalent to a declaration of war. If he had had this information on December 6, he would have ordered all units to sea because the best dispositions against surprise air attack can be effected with the fleet at sea. But he and Short knew nothing of any such message. They undoubtedly had suspected that Japanese spies on Oahu had been watching the ships in the harbor although they certainly didn't know that messages about ship locations had been decoded, translated, and read by many top U.S. officials, days, even weeks before the attack. Likewise, the Roberts commissioners probably did not know that some of these messages had been available in Washington prior to the attack. At least none of the Washington officials they questioned had mentioned them. Back in Washington, some admissions by Marshall. The commission completed its Hawaiian hearings and departed on January 10, 1942. On January 15, the members arrived back in Washington and resumed questioning Washington officials for one day. They again questioned Marshall, Stark, Turner, and Garrow. The most significant testimony was that given by Marshall, this time under oath. Marshall admitted that even with the superior intelligence available to him, he had been surprised by the attack. Japanese movements were going on around the Philippines. Marshall recalled, and if anything happened, they were going to get it. So in point of priority, if we had turned to the telephone to send a warning, he certainly would have turned to the Philippines first. Washington had had evidence also of gathering strength in the Mandate Islands, air and naval vessels. We assumed that Guam would be wiped out of the picture right at the start, that they, the Japanese, would carry the matter right up to Hawaii I didn't anticipate. Marshall admitted also that he had fully anticipated a terrific effort to cripple everything out there by sabotage. He had considered the local Japanese population to be the greatest threat to Hawaii. On top of that, he admitted his failure to realize that Short's alert for sabotage called for bunching the planes. Yet the specific purpose of alert number one, as stated in the Hawaiian Department's standard operating procedure, was to defend the airfields and vital installations against acts of sabotage and uprisings. It was for this reason that Short ordered the planes kept in the vicinity of the landing mat or the apron in groups so they could be guarded very closely. 
As for naval reconnaissance, Marshall had assumed that, as a result of the November 27 war warning, the Navy would have dispatched overwater patrols to search for enemy ships. He appeared unaware of the shortage of planes in Hawaii. When Stark and Turner were questioned again, this time under oath, they appeared to have a more realistic view of the Hawaiian supply situation than Marshall. Turner had assumed that they had a long-range reconnaissance, although he knew that there were an insufficient number of planes there to conduct a long-range reconnaissance search 360 degrees, extending over a considerable period of time. At the time of the November 27 war warning when Stark had ordered Kimmel to undertake defensive deployment in accordance with his war plan, he had expected Kimmel to take dispositions to avoid surprise so far as he could with what he had. However, Stark had thought that Kimmel would have been able to include air patrols. Stark had also expected Kimmel to get more planes and personnel and so on out to wake in Midway, if possible, and to send his task forces some task forces to see in readiness to catch any raiders. And this, Stark admitted, Kimmel had done. According to Garrow, the November 27 war warning had called for carrying out reconnaissance and other means of guarding against a surprise attack. Short's failure to do so, Garrow said, did not constitute a direct disobedience of that directive, although he considered it a failure to obey orders. Garrow was quite critical of Short for not having conducted more extensive reconnaissance. The commission finished questioning Washington witnesses within the day and then began preparing its report. Commission Findings In the month the commission existed, it took testimony from 127 witnesses in Washington and Hawaii. Its findings came to 2,173 pages of evidence and exhibits. It spent January 20 to 23 drafting its report. The report was finished on January 23 and delivered to the president on the morning of January 24. The commission then adjourned. The report was published in full in the New York Times on January 25, 1942. To Commissioner Stanley, it appeared that the majority of the members were prejudiced against Kimmel from the start. This prejudice even carried over to the way Kimmel's remarks were recorded. They were carelessly transcribed, contained errors, and when he suggested certain revisions, the commission inserted his corrections by interleaving the text of each suggested revision on a page immediately following each page referred to, making his testimony difficult to read. To mollify him, the corrected transcript was printed in full at the end of the Commission's published hearings, just preceding the exhibits. What had the members of the Commission learned in their month of hearings? They had learned that the intelligence available in Hawaii was meager indeed, and even misleading. All available clues had pointed to a Japanese strike in Southeast Asia, thousands of miles west of Pearl Harbor. The Commission members had learned that Pearl Harbor was lacking in planes, anti-aircraft guns, and other material needed for the defense of the base due to the demands of other theaters of war. They had discovered what they had known before they started their investigation, that the Hawaiian commanders had been surprised by the Japanese air attack. But they had also discovered that Chief of Staff Marshall had been just as surprised. Nevertheless, the Commission placed the responsibility for the extent of Japan's success in surprising the fleet on the two Hawaiian commanders. The commission appeared to place considerable credence on the January 24, 1941 letter from Secretary of Navy Knox to Secretary of War Stimson, written 11 months before the attack, suggesting that, if war eventuates with Japan, it is believed easily possible that hostilities would be initiated by a surprise attack upon the fleet or the naval base at Pearl Harbor by air bombing attack, air torpedo plane attack, 
sabotage, submarine attack, mining, or bombardment by gunfire. Disregarding later letters, intelligence, and communications to the commanders in the field about the movements of the Japanese in the South China Sea, the commission implied that this should have sufficed to alert the Hawaiian commanders against a surprise attack. The commission found that the commanders operated under some disadvantage. The personnel, materiel, and equipment were insufficient to place the forces on a war footing and maintain them on that footing for an extended period of time. Yet the report continued. These deficiencies did not preclude measures which would have, to a great extent, frustrated the attack or mitigated its severity. Moreover, in spite of the recognized shortage of reconnaissance planes, the Commission held that means were available for distant reconnaissance, which would have afforded a measure of security against a surprise attack. The Commission admitted that the Hawaiian commanders were handicapped by lack of information as to Japanese dispositions and intent, which would have been vital to the defense of Pearl Harbor. Nevertheless, in the Commission's view, the lack of such knowledge rendered more urgent the initiation of a state of readiness for defense. According to the Commission report's conclusions, the responsible commanders in the Hawaiian area had prepared plans which, if adapted and used for the existing emergency, would have been adequate. The Commission members had heard testimony to the effect that the Army and Navy officials in Hawaii had cooperated with one another and had enjoyed fairly good working relations. Yet they charged that the Hawaiian commanders had failed to confer and to adapt and use the existing plans to meet the emergency. The Commission maintained that if the Hawaiian commanders had complied with orders issued by the Chief of Staff and the Chief of Naval Operations, November 27, 1941, the Army's aircraft warning system and inshore air patrols and the Navy's distant reconnaissance should have been operating. The Army and Navy aircraft artillery should have been manned and supplied with ammunition, and a high state of readiness of aircraft should have been in effect. None of these conditions was in fact inaugurated or maintained for the reason that the responsible commanders failed to consult and cooperate. The members of the Commission had heard testimony to the effect that the only sure way to be forewarned of an approaching air attack was through continual 360-degree long-range reconnaissance. But they had also learned that the planes and personnel available in Hawaii were completely inadequate for carrying out such reconnaissance. Moreover, they had learned that anti-aircraft artillery is ineffective against low-flying planes. Even with round-the-clock, far-ranging reconnaissance and an all-out alert, some of the early torpedo planes that made the first strike on December 7 would undoubtedly have been able to penetrate the defenses and surprise the defenders. They recognized that there were deficiencies in personnel, weapons, equipment, and facilities to maintain all the defenses on a war footing for extended periods of time. But, they held, these deficiencies should not have affected the decision of the responsible commanders as to the state of readiness to be prescribed. The members of the commission were much interested in Marshall's last minute, December 7, message to the field commanders sparked by the 1 p.m. message. They questioned him about it but made no criticism of his dilatory tactics in sending it out. Nor did they comment on his failure to use his scrambler phone and they did not criticize Stark's failure to act when he first saw the 1 p.m. message at about 9.30 that Sunday morning. They knew that Marshall's last-minute warning did not reach Short and Kimmel until well after the Japanese planes had departed Hawaii, but they discounted the difference its timely arrival prior to the attack would have made because of the general lack of preparedness. In the light of the warnings and directions to take appropriate action transmitted to both commanders, 
It was a dereliction of duty on the part of each of them not to consult and confer with the other respecting the meaning and intent of the warnings and the appropriate measures of defense required by the imminence of hostilities. The commission found Kimmel and Short at fault for having failed properly to evaluate the seriousness of the situation. These errors of judgment were the effective cause for the success of the attack. The Roberts Commission purpose, as stated in the executive order setting it up, was to investigate the contributory negligence of the military only. However, the commission went beyond its official authorization. It gratuitously absolved the top Washington officials, civilian and military, of any blame in a way that was not supported in the commission's published record. It stated specifically in its report that the secretaries of state, war, and navy had all fulfilled their respective obligations satisfactorily. It also stated that the top Army and Navy officers in Washington, that is, Marshall and Stark, had both fulfilled their command responsibilities properly and had issued suitable and timely warnings to the Hawaiian commanders. On the other hand, the commanders in Hawaii, Short and Kimmel, were pronounced guilty of dereliction of duty. They had demonstrated a lack of appreciation of the responsibilities vested in them and inherent in their position as commanders-in-chief, Pacific Fleet, and Commanding General, Hawaiian Department. Retirement of General Short without condonation to future disciplinary action. When the Roberts report came out, Short was in Oklahoma City awaiting further assignment. He was completely dumbfounded. To be accused of dereliction of duty after almost 40 years of loyal and competent service was beyond his comprehension. On January 26, he telephoned Marshall, an old and trusted friend of 39 years standing. Short asked Marshall if he should retire. Stand pat, Marshall said, but if it becomes necessary, I will use this conversation as authority. Short had faith in Marshall's judgment and loyalty. He told Marshall that he would place himself entirely in his hand. However, Short was a gentleman. As he hung up the phone, he decided it wasn't quite fair to Marshall to have to use the conversation as authority. He felt Marshall should not have to assume the responsibility of deciding Short's fate on the basis of oral instructions alone. So he wrote out a formal application for retirement and sent it along with a personal covering letter to Marshall. Under existing conditions, he wrote, he would very much prefer to remain on the active list. However, he enclosed his application for retirement so that you may use it should you consider it desirable. In hope of softening any judgment against him, Short then reminded Marshall that 12 B-17s arrived from the mainland in the midst of the attack without ammunition, with guns cosmolined and with skeleton crews, resulting in the destruction of four of these planes. The War Department, which had dispatched these planes from the mainland during the night of December 6 through 7, apparently had not anticipated the attack on Pearl Harbor. Short considered that a strong argument that the War Department had agreed with Short that sabotage was the most dangerous thing to the Hawaiian Department. By the afternoon of Short's call, Marshall was of the opinion that we should accept General Short's application for retirement today and to do this quietly without any publicity at the moment. The Judge Advocate General saw no objection to this procedure and stated, quite informally, that he considered a court of inquiry unnecessary and that a court-martial would not be in the public interest at this time. When Marshall received Short's written application a couple of days later, he forwarded it to the adjutant general to hold pending instructions from Stimson. The president asked for assurance that accepting Short's retirement would not preclude his later court-martial and suggested including a phrase in the letter reading roughly as follows. Provided it is agreed by you that this is no bar to be used legally or otherwise to subsequent court-martial proceedings. 
Judge Advocate Major General Myron C. Kramer questioned the advisability of bringing a retired officer to court-martial. Kramer was doubtful that a conviction could be obtained in Short's case. The offenses charged against General Short are offenses of omission or nonfeasance, which require a much stronger showing to justify a trial than those involving misfeasance or malfeasance. Moreover, for the President to discharge General Short summarily under the provisions of Article of War, would tend even more strongly than a dismissal by a sentence of a general court-martial to enable him afterward to claim persecution. To avoid the possibility that the president's exercise of discretion in terminating the officer's active service on his own application might constitute a bargain that Short would not further be prosecuted for known offenses occurring prior to retirement. Kramer suggested that Short's request for retirement be accepted with the understanding that it will not constitute a condonation of his offenses, if any, on the part of the War Department, or be considered a bar to any future trial by general court-martial, in case such trial should be deemed advisable. Acting on Kramer's advice, Stimson, on February 14, 1942, instructed that a saving clause be included in the letter accepting Short's retirement, without condonation of any offense or prejudice to any action on behalf of the government. The War Department's February 17, 1942, letter to Short accepting his application for retirement read as follows. By direction of the President, Major General Walter C. Short, upon his own application, is retired from active service to take effect February 28, 1942, without condonation of any offense or prejudice to future disciplinary action. General Short was out of the Army by March 1, 1942. Retirement of Admiral Kimmel without condonation to future disciplinary action. On January 25, Stark talked about Kimmel with Knox. Kimmel was then notified on orders from Washington, from Knox himself, Kimmel learned later, that Short had submitted a request for his retirement. Until then, Kimmel had not thought of retiring. However, he took that as a suggestion that I submit a similar request. Therefore, on January 26, he too submitted his request for retirement. Two days later, Kimmel was informed by phone that his notification of Short's request for retirement was not meant to influence him. However, Kimmel wrote back that same day that he wished his request for retirement to stand, subject only to determination by the department as to what course of action will best serve the interests of the country and the good of the service. Kimmel gathered that Stark did not really expect Kimmel would be retired at that time. Nevertheless, the question of Kimmel's retirement moved ahead. The wording to be used in the Navy Department's letter of acceptance was raised with the Navy's Assistant Judge Advocate General. At FDR's request, Attorney General Francis Biddle and Acting Assistant Solicitor General Edward Dickinson were consulted. Several suggestions with respect to the wording were made by FDR and others. FDR was anxious to have the matter settled. Finally, a phrase very similar to that suggested for the War Department's letter to Short was agreed on. On February 19, Kimmel received formal notification from Knox that he would be placed on the retired list on March 1. Knox's letter read in part, This approval of your request for retirement is without condonation of any offense or prejudice to future disciplinary action. Ever since the attack, blame and opprobrium had been heaped on both Kimmel and Short. They had received abusive letters and even threats on their lives. When Kimmel read the second paragraph of Knox's letter with its conditional approval of his request for retirement, he promptly wrote Stark. Was the letter to be published to the country as a promise that I will be disciplined at some future time? Kimmel stood 
ready at any time to accept the consequences of his acts. He did not wish to embarrass the government in the conduct of the war, but he felt that his crucifixion before the public has about reached the limit. He felt that publication of the secretary's letter with its conditional approval of Kimmel's retirement would further inflame the public and do him a great injustice. Kimmel regretted the losses at Pearl Harbor just as keenly, or perhaps more keenly, than any other American citizen. He wished he had been smarter than he was and able to foresee the events of December 7. He had devoted all his energy to his job and had made the dispositions he considered called for. He could not reproach himself for any lack of effort. He had been willing to accept all this for the good of the country out of his loyalty to the nation. But he did think that in all justice, the department should do nothing further to inflame the public against him. He thought he was entitled to some consideration even though some may have believed he had erred grievously. Kimmel was retired effective March 1 after more than 40 years of service in the Navy. On or about that date, Kimmel was notified, through the public press, that the Secretary of the Navy had directed that charges and specifications be prepared to bring him to trial by General Court Martial at some future time. Kimmel and Short find post-attack positions contributing to the war effort. Both men soon found civilian positions in which they could contribute to the war effort. Short became head of the traffic department at the Ford Motor Company plant in Dallas, Texas, which was devoted entirely to making war equipment. Kimmel took a position with a New York firm of consulting marine engineers, Frederick R. Harris Incorporated, where he helped design the first large sectional floating dry dock capable of holding a battleship. These dry docks saw much service in the war in the Pacific. Resentment of the Hawaiian commanders did not cease. In August 1942, public curiosity was aroused by the news that Kimmel was holding a civilian job in New York. Was he receiving retirement pay in addition to his pay as a civilian employee? Yes, he was, the Navy Department replied. As a retired Navy officer, he was clearly entitled to three-quarters retired pay or $6,000 a year, and it is absolutely legal for him or any other retired Naval officer to take a civilian job and draw his retirement from the Navy at the same time. Kimmel was expected to get the routine retired salary from the Navy until the prospective court-martial is established to try him. Chapter 20, 1942-1944 Top Secret on the Washington Home Front Once we had declared war, a wave of patriotism swept over the country. All open criticism of the government's foreign policy ceased. Yet a desire to know the truth simmered under the surface. Many people believed that Admiral Kimmel and General Short, who had been pilloried in the eyes of the public, should have a chance to present their side of the story in open court but attempts were being made to forestall their court's martial. There were, of course, legitimate reasons why their case should not be investigated while the war was going on. Information would undoubtedly be revealed in a court-martial trial that would be damaging to the war effort. It would undoubtedly be brought out, number one, that the Japanese were still using their diplomatic code, purple, for secret messages. As our armed forces were gaining information from reading purple intercepts, which was valuable for fighting the war, this was a legitimate argument for postponing a trial. A trial would probably reveal also, number two, that U.S. intelligence personnel had deciphered purple before the attack on Pearl Harbor and had been reading Japanese intercepts ever since. Also, number three, that Washington had, therefore, had considerable pre-attack intelligence about Japanese intentions. And number four, that little of this pre-attack intelligence had been sent to Pearl Harbor. 
The administration and top military officials were determined that there be no security leaks about purple and magic, the intelligence derived from it. Some of them may also have harbored guilt about the information they had sent or had failed to send our military commanders before the attack. If that was the case, they would not have wanted it known that our decryption of Japanese intercepts had started before the attacks. Thus, those who were anxious to delay or postpone indefinitely a hearing for Kimmel and Short, because they did not want it to be revealed that we were decoding post-attack Japanese messages, had the support of those who wanted to conceal the fact that we had been reading pre-attack Japanese messages. To safeguard this major source of intelligence, Army and Navy personnel familiar with Purple had been sworn to secrecy. General Marshall himself, in his office a week after the attack, had warned his staff officers to go to their graves with the secret of magic. Then, in 1944, witnesses to appear before the Army Pearl Harbor Board were again sworn not to reveal the facts, i.e. the Purple Code Decrypts. Similar precautions had also been taken in the Navy. Admiral Stark testified, Anybody who was let in on that magic had to sign a paper never to disclose it, practically so long as he lived, or ever to talk about it, not ever. Navy intelligence officers, too, were warned to maintain security. Sometime within the week following Pearl Harbor, then-Commander Safford and other officers were called into conference in the office of the Director of Naval Communication, Admiral Noyes. All section heads were asked to tell all their people not to talk. Any written memoranda, personal notes, not official files, were to be destroyed immediately, and the officers were to pass that word on to their subordinates. But questions about Pearl Harbor did not let up. Post-attack personnel shakeup. As we have seen, both Admiral Kimmel and General Short were preemptorily removed from their commands after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Replacement officers were named, then promptly retired from the military. Some suspicion rested on Chief of Naval Operations Stark for not having kept Kimmel and Admiral Hart in the Philippines better informed. On March 26, Admiral E.J. King took over Stark's position as CNO. Stark was, in effect, kicked upstairs, transferred out of Washington, sent to London, and on April 30, 1942, given command of the recently established, March 17, 1942, United States Naval Forces Europe. Chief of Staff Marshall appeared to be above reproach. In spite of questions about his whereabouts on the morning of December 6, he remained in his position and went on later to still more important and prestigious positions. Special Representative of the President to China with Ambassadorial Rank, 1945-1946, Secretary of State, 1947-1949, and Secretary of Defense, 1950-1951. He even received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1953 for his proposal, which became known as the Marshall Plan for U.S. government grants to help post-war Europe's economic recovery. Naval intelligence and naval communications were especially hard hit by personnel changes. The Navy's traditional pride in service at sea meant that the path to promotion clearly lay in sea duty. Those who served in intelligence were much less likely to advance. As a result, few naval officers were willing to make a career in cryptography. One notable exception was Commander L.F. Safford, who had been in charge of the security section of naval communications and had made brilliant contributions to deciphering and intercepting Japanese intercepts. Shortly after the United States entered the war, he was promoted to captain, January 1, 1942. But at the same time, his duties and responsibilities were sharply curtailed. Commander A.H. McCollum, head of the Far Eastern Section of Naval Intelligence, in December 1941, was another victim of the post-attack reorganization of naval operations. 
He had recognized the seriousness of the Japanese threat prior to the attack and had drafted messages to the Pacific commanders warning of impending Japanese action. His superiors had watered down his message so much, however, that they failed to deliver the sense of urgency McCollum had intended to convey. McCollum got disgusted with naval intelligence and applied for sea duty. En route to his new post in the Southwest Pacific, he passed through Hawaii. There, he was a guest of honor at a party given by several officers who had served on Kimmel's staff. McCollum told them some of the things he had known through his work with intelligence in Washington. Cracks in the Administration's Wall of Secrecy One of the officers in Hawaii who heard McCollum speak was Commander Joseph John Rochefort, Chief Intelligence Officer, District Staff of the Commandant in Hawaii. Rochefort spoke Japanese. His work in radio intelligence, cryptography, and cryptanalysis had made him one of the mainstays of the intelligence unit at Pearl Harbor. It had been his responsibility to prepare daily intelligence summaries for Kimmel's fleet intelligence officer, Lieutenant Commander Edwin Thomas Layton. In spite of his knowledge and expertise, Rochefort became a victim of the post-attack personnel changes in intelligence. He was transferred out of cryptography in October 1942, ordered to Washington, and assigned to command a floating dry dock in San Francisco. In preparation for his new assignment, he was sent to New York to consult with a marine engineering firm of Frederick R. Harris Incorporated. In New York, Rochefort encountered his old boss, Kimmel, who was then himself working on floating dry docks for the Harris firm. Rochefort told him what McCollum had reported about pre-attack knowledge in Washington. Thus, by a series of coincidences, Kimmel learned in late 1942 that crucial information about Japanese intentions had been available in Washington prior to the attack which had not been relayed to him in Pearl Harbor. Another responsible Navy officer who left intelligence was Lieutenant Commander Alwyn Dalton Kramer, a Japanese-language scholar. In late 1941, he had been in charge of the translation group of the Communications Security Group in Washington. As Navy courier, he had delivered many confidential intercepts, including magic, to top Navy officers during the crucial weeks preceding the attack. In June 1943, Kramer was transferred to Pearl Harbor and in January 1944, he was ordered to sea duty in the South Pacific. Kimmel and Short Waive Statute of Limitations Over and over again, Kimmel reviewed in his mind the orders he had received as fleet commander and his responses to them. He kept asking himself what sins of commission or omission he could have committed. He even began to think that perhaps he had been somewhat responsible for the disaster. Yet he could never figure out just how. Until he spoke with Rochefort in late 1942, he had assumed, as Stark had assured him, that he was being supplied with all available intelligence necessary for him to fulfill his responsibilities as Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet. Not until he learned from Rochefort of McCollum's revelations did Kimmel have any hint that Washington officials had been privy to crucial information that had been denied him in Hawaii. The only hope Kimmel and Short had for vindication was to obtain a hearing at which they could reveal the orders under which they had been operating prior to the attack and to explain why they had taken the actions they had. They were both anxious for a speedy and open court-martial. According to the regulations then in effect, the opportunity for the government to court-martial Kimmel and Short for any alleged offenses they might have committed and with which they might be charged would expire in two years, on December 7, 1943. The Navy, in no hurry to see the commanders court-martialed, was willing to extend the deadline or even to let the statute of limitations expire. Kimmel, for his part, was anxious not to let that happen, lest the chance for a hearing be lost forever. He reminded Knox, September 17, 1943, 
of his desire for a speedy trial in open court. However, Kimmel wrote he did not wish to put his own interests above those of the national welfare which he recognized appears to require that my trial be delayed. Knox sympathized with Kimmel and commended him for his patriotic spirit, which was, he said, in keeping with the best naval traditions. Kimmel was eager to do battle and undertook an active campaign to learn the truth. He would not let the matter rest. He began to prepare for the hearing he hoped to have. In November 1943, he asked Knox for copies of Navy Department dispatches, letters, intelligence reports, etc., sent between January 1 and December 17, 1941, plus copies of the war plans and operating plans that were in effect on December 7, 1941. In January 1944, on the advice of his trusted longtime friend, Captain Robert A. Lavender, U.S. Navy, Kimmel hired Charles B. Rugg of the Boston law firm of Ropes, Gray, Best, Coolidge, and Rugg to help in his crusade. On January 27, Kimmel, Rugg, and Lavender met to discuss the situation. Kimmel asked Rugg to go to Washington and try to arrange to have the deadline for his court-martial extended. Rugg warned him, Admiral, this is the crossroads. If I go down there and have this statute, the extension of the court-martial statute of limitations, passed, we're going to be in for a tempestuous time. It could mean embarrassment and unfavorable publicity. If we don't pursue this matter, Rugg went on, they may drop this business and you will be free from any more public discussion. Kimmel was determined that the American people know this story, and he authorized Rugg to go all out to see that it is done. He was prepared to face the consequences, embarrassment, misunderstanding, time, anything, he told Rugg, go to it. Thus, it was largely as a result of Kimmel's effort that the statute of limitations on court-martialing Kimmel and Short was extended, six months from December 7, 1943, to June 7, 1944, and extended yet again to December 7, 1944. Short also wanted a chance to present his case, but he was a very different personality and less aggressive than Kimmel in his pursuit of a hearing. Captain Safford Talks with Kimmel Captain Safford played a key role in the whole Pearl Harbor picture, both before the attack and also afterwards during the investigations. He served with the Navy Department Communications Intelligence Unit from May 1936 until after the attack. He had worked in radio intelligence and cryptology, the deciphering of codes. As chief of the Communications Security Section of Naval Communications during the months preceding the Pearl Harbor attack, he was responsible for the security of the secret Japanese intercepts and for keeping them from reaching unauthorized hands. In the fall of 1943, Safford, by the direction and instruction of the Director of Naval Intelligence, was under orders to work on a history of radio intelligence from 1924 to 1941. Like most people in the country, Safford had believed that Kimmel had failed to fulfill adequately his responsibilities as fleet commander, that he had been remiss in interpreting the intelligence and orders sent him, and thus was partially culpable for the severe damage done to the fleet during the Japanese attack. Because of his pre-Pearl Harbor responsibilities, Safford expected that he would be called to testify in any Kimmel court-martial proceedings that might be held. So as he looked through the files for the historical research to which he was assigned, he started to review the pre-Pearl Harbor situation also and to assemble material he would need as a witness. To his amazement, he discovered that the intelligence derived from the Japanese intercepts which Safford's section had decoded in the months before the attack, had not been forwarded to the Pearl Harbor commanders as we had assumed. When he realized this, he was aroused by the injustice of the situation. In effect, Kimmel had been dismissed from his position and pilloried 
because he had not been sent the pre-attack information available in Washington. In February 1944, Safford called on Kimmel in New York. He told Kimmel that many Japanese messages had been intercepted and deciphered prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor. He gave Kimmel a verbal summary of their contents. From the few notes he had made and from his memory, Safford related much of the information that had been known in Washington from reading those intercepts, information which would have been invaluable to the Pearl Harbor commanders. When he returned to Washington, he sought to document his statements, but he searched in vain. The crucial intercepts were missing from the files. On March 23, 1944, Kimmel asked Edward B. Hanafy, a lawyer in the same legal firm as Rugg, to come on board also to assist in his case. Hanafy promptly started work on the Kimmel case. Kimmel would not let it die. 1944 became a year of inquiries and investigations. Lest some individuals in the military who might have the knowledge concerning the attack became casualties of the war. The hard inquiry was set up. Both the Army and Navy held separate but concurrent hearings. These hearings were supplemented by the follow-up Clark, Clausen, and Hewitt inquiries that extended into 1945. On the grounds of military security, all these inquiries were conducted in the greatest secrecy behind closed doors, and their reports were not released to the public. Many facts that exonerated Kimmel and Short were revealed in these closed-door hearings. Yet these facts were not made public. At the end of 1944, Kimmel and Short were still the principal culprits in the eyes of the public, their negligence considered responsible for the extensive loss of ships, planes, and men at Pearl Harbor. 1944 was also a presidential election year. FDR was running for an unprecedented fourth term. Thus, political considerations, as well as military, played a role in these investigations. How should these secret reports be handled? What would the public think if it knew the truth was being concealed? How would the voters respond if they knew the facts that had been uncovered by these investigations? What would they think of the top civilian and military authorities who were still directing the war effort if they learned from these reports about their pre-war decisions? How much information could or should be made public? The top brass in Washington faced a dilemma. Chapter 21. 1944, A Year of Investigations The public was no closer in 1944 to unraveling the mystery surrounding the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor than it had been in January 1942. Even though a speedy and public trial at which Kimmel would have an opportunity to present his side of the story was impossible, because of the need for wartime security, Kimmel began to prepare. Any such hearing or trial would have to depend on the testimony of witnesses with knowledge of the pre-December 7 situation, many of whom stationed in combat positions from the northern Atlantic to the southwest Pacific could become war casualties. On Kimmel's recommendation, therefore, or as a result of his prodding, Secretary Knox issued a precept or order instructing retired Admiral Thomas C. Hart, commander-in-chief of the U.S. Asiatic Fleet in the Philippines before the attack, to conduct an inquiry for the purpose of recording and preserving testimony pertinent to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, TH, on 7 December 1941. Thus, Hart was to examine such members of the naval forces, as were thought to have knowledge of facts pertinent to the said surprise attack. It was to be a sort of one-man board to take testimony. Hart would soon be contacting Kimmel officially. Kimmel had reservations about Hart's inquiry. Not only could it not be free and open, but it was too narrowly focused. It was to be limited to examining members of the naval forces concerning events pertinent to the said surprise attack. Kimmel pointed out that many non-Navy personnel, Army personnel, and civilians should also be examined. 
and they should be questioned not only about events pertinent to the said surprise attack, but also about events that took place sometime prior to said attack and of events at places not in the Hawaiian Islands that have an important bearing on the actual attack. The testimony of such persons should also be taken and preserved. Moreover, Kimmel maintained that he had a right to be informed of the nature and cause of any accusation against him. Although Knox assured Kimmel that this examination would be in no sense a trial, and Kimmel would be permitted to introduce matter pertinent to the examination, to cross-examine witnesses, etc., Kimmel still had qualms. The legal character of the inquiry was unclear. It would have some characteristics of depositions, others of court of inquiry, and still others which were neither those of depositions or courts of inquiry. Kimmel's counsel, Robert A. Lavender, pointed out that it was important that any testimony taken should be sealed and delivered to the judge advocate of the court as custodian and presented to the accused in a reasonable time for examination, and to make objections as to the introduction of evidence. As there was no assurance that the heart inquiry testimony taken would be sealed and held inviolate under a court-martial, or that a witness's testimony would not be used in a court-martial unless he was dead, insane, or could not appear for some other reason. Kimmel declined to attend or participate in the proceedings before Admiral Hart. The Hart Inquiry, March 7, 1944, through June 15, 1944 In the course of interviewing naval officers, Hart traveled from Washington, D.C. to New York, San Francisco, Pearl Harbor, the USS Iowa, and the island of Guadalcanal in the Southwest Pacific. Most of the men he questioned had served with Kimmel in Pearl Harbor prior to December 7, 1941, but several had held positions in Washington at the time of the attack and testified from a Washington viewpoint. By December 1941, there seemed little doubt among those who were following events closely that war with Japan was inevitable. As a matter of fact, in Hawaii on Sunday, November 30, 1941, precisely one week before the attack, banner headlines on page one of the Honolulu Advertiser read, Kurusu bluntly warned nation ready for battle. British held Singapore was reported on the alert. All troops there had been called to active duty. The Philippines were threatened by Japanese encirclement. War seemed likely, but all signs pointed to its breaking out thousands of miles from Hawaii, possibly in Singapore or the Philippines. Hart questioned naval officers who had been at Pearl Harbor during the attack. Witness after witness confessed that he had been no less surprised than Kimmel by the sudden air attack. Practically, all the information available to them had directed their attention elsewhere. Generally speaking, they were supportive of Kimmel's pre-attack decisions and actions. Rear Admiral W.W. W. Smith, Kimmel's chief of staff in December 1941, testified that when he saw the December 3 dispatch concerning the burning of documents by the Japanese at Hong Kong, Singapore, Batavia, Manila, Washington, and London, he had little doubt that they were about to make a hostile move. We had been told that heavy Japanese movements were on the way to the southward. It did not occur to us, Smith testified, that the attack was coming in our direction. We did expect a submarine attack, but not an air raid on Pearl Harbor, although plans were made to meet one, as I have said, by the stationing of ships in condition of readiness. Rear Admiral Arthur C. Davis, who at the time of the attack was serving as Fleet Aviation Officer of the Pacific Fleet, had thought a surprise air attack was possible but he had considered it preventable only by the most extensive searches and efforts for which neither the planes nor the men necessary were available in Hawaii. Even under the best of circumstances, Davis said testifying in 1944, when an attack might be expected, it isn't easy to sight an incoming enemy force. We have ourselves quite often made an attack wherein Japanese search planes fail to sight our forces, 
even though in many of these cases we know that they were making intensive search flights. In the Guadalcanal landing, as an example, a Japanese search plane under scattered cloud conditions came close enough to our force actually to be sighted by long-range telescope from the Enterprise, but failed to see and report the force. Due to their dependence on Washington, the men in intelligence in Hawaii had no more reason to expect a surprise air attack on Pearl Harbor than had the men on the Navy ships and planes. There were serious gaps in their intelligence. Captain Edwin T. Layton, late intelligence officer at the time of the attack, said intelligence was evaluated information and a commodity of which you can never have quite enough. It is like a jigsaw puzzle with parts missing. The whole picture is rarely available as important pieces are missing. He was convinced the State Department must have had information during the pre-attack period that would have been of value to the Commander-in-Chief. On the morning of December 6, when Leighton delivered to Kimmel a report on the sightings of Japanese ships in the Gulf of Siam and Kamran Bay, the thought of attack on Pearl Harbor at that time was very far from most people's minds. Naval officers questioned by heart rejected the Roberts Commission charge that Kimmel and Short had failed to confer and cooperate. Admiral W.W. W. Smith, Rear Admiral Walter S. Anderson, Commander, Battleships Battle Force Pacific Fleet, and Admiral William F. Halsey, Commander, Aircraft Battle Force and Task Force 2, at the time of the attack, all said that their relations were excellent. Admiral Kimmel personally spent a great deal of time socially with General Short in golf and other forms of exercise. This enabled them to discuss things in an informal way. But Army-Navy cooperation was common in Hawaii. At this time, there were many Army officers that went to sea with the task forces to obtain a first-hand knowledge of what the Navy was doing. At the same time, many naval officers went on maneuvers with the Army. Witness after witness supported Kimmel's claim that he had been handicapped in opposing the Japanese air attack because of too few planes and anti-aircraft guns and insufficient personnel. According to Admiral Smith, Kimmel had asked for men so many times that some members of the staff advised him that he was only boring the department. He would ask for 20,000 men, 10,000 to fill vacancies in the fleet, and 10,000 more for training. And the answer he invariably got was that the men are not available, they are needed in the Atlantic. Vice Admiral William Satterley Pye, commander at the time of attack of Battle Force United States Pacific Fleet and commander of Task Force 1, testified about the June 1941 detachment of ships from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Three battleships, four light cruisers, one squadron of destroyers, and other ships had been transferred earlier, so that the power of the Pacific fleet had been materially reduced in order to strengthen the forces in the Atlantic. Witness after witness pointed out that planes and flight crews available in Hawaii were clearly insufficient for long-range surveillance. Commander Patrick C. Bellinger of Patrol Wing 2 estimated an overall force of approximately 200 planes, 84 planes flying daily, and 252 crews would be required to conduct a search through 360 degrees to a distance of at least 800 miles, assuming a 15-mile radius of visibility. Given 25-mile visibility, 150 planes and 225 flight crews flying 16 and a half hours per day would be needed to search a radius of 800 miles. The total of 24,750 plane hours would consume 1,980,000 gallons of gasoline per month and require an average of 82.5 engine changes plus 182 spare engines per month. And still, the effectiveness of the surge would be only about 50%. The Hawaiian Command then had only 81 planes, 9 were undergoing repair, 58 were in commission, and 14 were in the air. However, because of physical fatigue, about two crews are needed for every plane in operation. 
and the number of flight crews in Hawaii on December 7 fell far short of the number required. Rear Admiral, commander at the time of the attack, Willard A. Kitts, Fleet Gunnery and Training Officer, U.S. Pacific Fleet, did not think Kimmel was unduly occupied with training matters to the extent that he lost sight of the other aspects of readiness and security. He believed the success of the training in gunnery had been borne out by the splendid performance that the anti-aircraft batteries of the fleet put forth on the 7th of December. At least 28 planes were shot down by vessels of the fleet. Not a bad performance for men who had never fired a shot in action, and considering the number of guns engaged. Bellinger, who had been commander of the Naval-based Defense Air Force, thought it was foolish to think that such a skeletonized organization, as the Pacific Fleet was then, functioning on the basis of cooperation by the Navy and Army Air Forces, and set up to be put in motion by special orders or by an emergency occurring, remained practically non-existent except during periodic drills, could go into action and function effectively at the occurrence of an actual emergency. An organization of this nature to be effective must function 24 hours every day and prior to an air raid not subsequent thereto. Bellinger testified that he knew of no man who, under the circumstances, could have done more than Kimmel did. Admiral Halsey pointed out that the problem was one of balancing security against training and how far he could afford to let his trained men go and still have his fleet ready for instant action. He was constantly going over in his mind how far this should go. Kimmel was very much against the transfer of so many trained men and the influx of so many recruits under the conditions that faced us. Kimmel's task as commander-in-chief was a juggling act. In the light of his orders and available intelligence, he had to weigh the relative importance of training against that of preparations for war. He did not dare overemphasize one to the neglect of the other. Rear Admiral Wilson Brown, commander of the fleet's scouting force, Task Force 3, spoke well of the fleet's pre-war training. The high state of efficiency maintained while doubling the size of our fleet in two years, the seamanship, gunnery, and fighting ability of our Navy during two years of war reflects the quality of our naval leadership and of our training processes during the pre-war period as well as during the war period. The success of the Japanese Brown held was not due to laxity on the part of U.S. personnel, but rather to the detailed information the Japanese had about our fleet. Admiral Hart examined nine witnesses who had not been in Pearl Harbor during the weeks before the attack, including several who had then held important positions in Washington and had been privy to especially important pre-attack intelligence. Rear Admiral Ingersoll, Assistant Chief of Naval Operations, Rear Admiral Turner, Chief of Navy's War Plans Division, Rear Admiral Wilkinson, Director of Naval Intelligence. They were all just as surprised as the Hawaiian officers had been that the Japanese had targeted Pearl Harbor. Hart caught up with Wilkinson on Guadalcanal in the South Pacific. Wilkinson had taken over as Director of Naval Intelligence in the midst of the October 1941 radical personnel shifts. From Wilkinson's testimony, Japan's immediate objective appeared to be the occupation of the southwestern coast of Indochina, Kampot, and possibly Bangkok over Lower Siam on the Malay Peninsula. Japanese troop transports and freighters were pouring continually down from Japan and northern China coast ports headed south, apparently for French Indochina and Formosan ports. Much activity was going on in the Mandates, the mid-Pacific islands under Japanese control consisting of large reinforcements of personnel, aircraft, munitions, and also construction material with yard workmen and engineers. However, naval intelligence assumed that the major capital ship strength remains in home waters, as well as the greatest portion of the carriers. 
The United States was keeping a close eye on the Japanese ship movements, according to Wilkinson, because of the tentative American-British agreement that any movement beyond certain geographical limits, 100 degrees longitude, 10 degrees north latitude, in Southeast Asia would be considered as a casus belli for England and as a matter of grave concern for the United States. Wilkinson said Turner believed, without specific evidence, that the Japanese would launch an attack on the Philippines, where the U.S. Asiatic fleet was based. Otherwise, according to Wilkinson, U.S. territory did not appear directly threatened. Ingersoll told the inquiry that, while the government could not guarantee that we would enter the war if Japan attacked Great Britain, in line with the ABC agreement, they fully believed that we would do so. In our conversations with the British, however, we never could make a firm commitment that any particular time the United States would enter the war, for the reason that, unless we were attacked first, the executive department did not have the power to put the country into war. Ingersoll testified that the United States was virtually at war with Germany in the Atlantic, although without benefit of a war declaration. It was felt that Germany was the principal enemy to be disposed of first. Nevertheless, Ingersoll said, we felt that the war would be precipitated in the Pacific and that we would only become involved in the war in the Atlantic as a result of war in the Pacific. As a matter of fact, efforts had been made to get our merchant vessels out of the Far East and out of other areas in the Pacific where they could be captured by the Japanese. The Atlantic situation did not preoccupy our attention to the exclusion of the Pacific. Ingersoll had anticipated Japan would strike without a declaration of war, but that her surprise attacks would be made against the Philippines and Guam, with possibly raiding attacks on our outlying small islands to the westward of Hawaii, and submarine attacks against our shipping around Hawaii. He did not recall anyone in operations representing to Admiral Stark that the war would be precipitated by an air attack on Pearl Harbor. Captain Safford's Testimony Captain Lawrence F. Safford of the Security Intelligence Section of the Navy's Communications Division met informally with Hart and related to him from memory some of the information Washington had derived from decrypted Japanese intercepts before the attack. Hart cautioned him against making statements he couldn't prove and asked him to check the record before returning to give formal testimony. Safford returned to the Navy Department and looked for the pertinent intercepts, but they were missing. Therefore, when Safford testified formally before the Hart inquiry on April 29, 1944, he again spoke from memory and a few notes. However, he was able to recall in considerable detail many of the important Japanese dispatches that had been intercepted, deciphered, translated, and read by top military and administration officials in Washington before the attack. As early as the spring of 1941, May 22, they had received positive proof of Japanese plans for the conquest of southeastern Asia and the southwestern Pacific. Further indications of Japan's plans for aggression in the southwest Pacific and against Southeast Asia were picked up in September and October. On November 4, we received information that Japan's internal situation, both political and economic, was so desperate as a result of the U.S. embargo that the Japanese government had to distract popular attention by a foreign war or by some bloodless diplomatic victory. We learned on November 12 that the Japanese government regarded November 25 as the deadline for negotiations then being conducted in Washington. It was obvious that Japan was preparing for offensive military operations of some nature. The pace of the urgent intercepts picked up toward the end of November. On November 24, 1941, we learned that November 29 was definitely the governing date for offensive military operations of some nature. We interpreted this to mean that large-scale movements for the conquest of Southeast Asia 
and the Southwest Pacific would begin on that date, because at that time Hawaii was out of our minds. On December 1, U.S. officials learned that Japan was going to attack Britain and the United States. Then on December 4, we received definite information that Japan would attack the United States and Britain, but would maintain peace with Russia. At 9 p.m., Washington time, December 6, 1941, we received positive information that Japan would declare war against the United States at a time to be specified thereafter. This information was positive and unmistakable and was made available to military intelligence at the same time. Because this information was so important, it was distributed as a rush job by Lieutenant Commander Kramer. Much of the December 6 information was distributed over the telephone by Admiral Wilkinson and by Secretary Hull. The following officials were given this information that night. President Roosevelt, via the White House aide, Secretary Hull, Secretary Stimson, Secretary Knox, Admiral Stark, Rear Admiral Turner, Rear Admiral Wilkinson, Rear Admiral Beardall. Lieutenant Colonel R.S. Bratton, U.S. Army, was given the same information at 9 p.m., December 6, for dissemination to War Department officials. And we did not know any more, except that he got a copy over to Secretary Hull by 10 o'clock. Finally, at 10.15 a.m., Washington time, December 7, 1941, we received positive information from the Signal Intelligence Service, War Department, that the Japanese declaration of war would be presented to the Secretary of State at 1 p.m., Washington time, that date. Before that message was presented to the Secretary of the Navy, Kramer appended a note to the effect that 1 p.m. Washington time was sunrise in Hawaii and approximately midnight in the Philippines, and this indicated a surprise air raid on Pearl Harbor in about three hours. According to Safford, two specific messages received in Washington before the attack gave pretty clear indications that Japan intended to declare war on the United States. The wind's message intercepted December 4 was regarded as definitely committing the Japanese government to war with the United States and Britain. And the message received in the evening of December 6 constituted positive information that Japan would declare war against the United States at a time to be specified thereafter. Hart says, Is there any documentary report which shows the date and hour of delivery of the foregoing information to various officials? Safford replies, There is no documentary evidence. Safford was testifying, he said, on the basis of his recollection of Lieutenant Commander Kramer's verbal reports. Records of all the Japanese intercepts had been made and filed at the time, but in 1944, Safford could find no copies whatsoever. Hart stated, Was any of the foregoing information under dates of November and December 1941 disseminated by the main Washington unit direct to the corresponding unit in 14th Naval District, Hawaii? Safford replies, no, sir, that was not permitted by a written order then in force. But there was one exception. On the 3rd of December, I prepared OPNAV Secret Dispatch 031855. In sending this information, I was overstepping the bounds as established by approved war plans and joint agreement between naval communications and naval intelligence. This information was sent to Manila for action and it was routed to Pearl Harbor for information. It reported the Japanese government's orders to its emissaries throughout the world to destroy their codes and code machines. Hawaii could not possibly have gained this information through their own efforts. The dissemination of such intelligence was the duty, responsibility, and privilege of the Office of Naval Intelligence, not of Safford's Communications Intelligence Unit. This was Safford's first testimony before a Pearl Harbor investigation. He had not been asked to testify before the Roberts Commission. 
His revelations were startling. No one appearing before Roberts had hinted at the availability of such intelligence as Saffer described. And of the Washington witnesses questioned by Hart, only Turner and Ingersoll had said anything that might have been interpreted as referring to the Japanese intercepts. Safford appeared to know what he was talking about, but he was unable to produce copies of any of the Japanese messages to support his testimony. Almost three years had passed since he had actually seen any of the intercepts he was describing. How much, if any, of Safford's detailed testimony could be believed? Safford's memory could be playing tricks on him. Secretary of Navy Knox died suddenly of a heart attack on April 28, 1944, while the heart inquiry was in progress. James V. Forrestal, then Undersecretary of the Navy, was sworn in as his successor on May 19. Hart concluded his inquiry on June 15th and adjourned to await the action of the convening authority. The testimony of witnesses was recorded and submitted with the several documents and exhibits introduced to Forrestal. Safford Finds the Missing Intercepts After testifying at the Hart inquiry, Safford continued to search for the intercepts, but he was unsuccessful. All copies seemed to have disappeared. Safford was mystified. Finally, someone told him about a packet of papers in a Navy safe labeled P.H., perhaps that contained the documents he was looking for. It did. It contained an almost complete set of the missing Japanese intercepts. Safford then had copies made and restored to the files. No one has ever been able to explain how the four original copies of each intercept produced for the government's Army and Navy permanent files and held under tight security, had been lost or destroyed. Apparently, this one set of intercepts survived because of a series of coincidences. On December 9, almost immediately after the attack, Navy Secretary Knox flew to Hawaii to investigate the damage done by the Japanese. He didn't return until December 14. Hawaii was then a territory, not yet a state. With the secretary out of the country, Undersecretary James V. Forrestal became acting secretary. Forrestal had known nothing of purple and had not been privy to magic. On assuming the responsibilities of secretary, he asked to be briefed. Therefore, apparently on orders of Admiral Noyes, Director of Naval Communications, Lieutenant Commander Kramer, Japanese translator, and Navy courier, assembled for Forrestal a special folder of intercepts and other papers relative to the break in diplomatic relations with Japan. Because of Safford's familiarity with the traffic, Kramer had gone over the folder with Safford to check for completeness. Then, both Commander McCollum of Far East Intelligence and Kramer briefed Forrestal, explaining the significance of the various messages and the way things shaped up from this traffic. When Knox returned and Forrestal was relieved of his position as acting secretary, his bundle of intercepts must have been tossed in a safe and forgotten. Court Martial Deadline Extended The tides of war had shifted by this time. The Allies were preparing to launch a second front in Europe. The Axis powers were on the defensive both in Europe and in Asia. Many people, Republicans and some anti-New Deal Democrats, were beginning to ask why, after all this time, it was still necessary to maintain secrecy about the Pearl Harbor attack. Why couldn't the truth be told? Was the administration trying to hide something? Safford had told Kimmel about the important Japanese intercepts. But except for what he had learned about them from Rochefort in 1942, Kimmel had only Safford's word that they had ever existed. Even so, Kimmel didn't want to lose the chance of having his day in court. Whenever anyone asked him about his possible court-martial, he always replied that he was ready. He had always wanted a free, open, and public hearing. In the critical years following Pearl Harbor, Kimmel had understood why he had to bear in silence the burden of shame heaped upon him by the report of the Roberts Commission, 
and by published interpretations of that report. However, he felt that now, with our armed forces on the offensive on all fronts, he owed it to his family, friends, and the public to make it clear that he wanted a trial by court-martial at the earliest practicable date, to be held under a shadow of blame for an additional prolonged and indefinite period is intolerable. The public has a right to know what happened. And he, Kimmel, had an American's right to his day in court. Kimmel sent his attorney, Charles B. Rugg, and his assistant, Edward B. Hanafy, to Washington in the spring of 1944 to try to have Congress extend a deadline for his court-martial. After a rather heated debate, Congress approved another six-month deadline extension and at the same time passed a joint resolution calling for investigations of the Pearl Harbor attack by both the Army and the Navy. FDR signed the joint resolution against the advice of Secretary of War Stimson and Knox. In signing, he stated that he was sure the Congress did not intend that the investigation should be conducted in a manner which would interrupt or interfere with the war effort. On the strength of this confidence, I have approved the resolution. Thus, by appearing to approve further investigations of Pearl Harbor, the politically astute president succeeded in shifting the responsibility for any delay to his secretaries. Chapter 22, Army Pearl Harbor Board The Army Pearl Harbor Board, APHB, was authorized by Congress to ascertain and report the facts relating to the attack made by Japanese armed forces upon the territory of Hawaii on 7 December 1941 and to make such recommendations as it may deem proper. Lieutenant General George Grunert was appointed president of this Grunert board. Two other Army generals also served, Major General Henry D. Russell and Major General Walter H. Frank. Colonel Charles W. West and Harry A. Tolman had non-voting positions as recorder and executive officer respectively, and Major Henry C. Clausen was assistant recorder. The Grunert board convened in Washington, D.C. on July 20, 1944. Being an Army board, it was primarily interested in Army's role, especially that of Army Chief of Staff Marshall and Hawaiian Commander General Walter Short. The board's members first reviewed the reports of earlier investigations and studied materials supplied by various government agencies and congressional committees. It also wrote Secretary of War Stimson and Army Chief of Staff George C. Marshall, listing the subjects the board hoped to cover when they testified. The APHB did not have the power of subpoena, but, in no instance, was its invitation to appear and testify ignored. The questioning alternated among the members. The board interviewed 151 witnesses and was in continuous session until October 20, 1944. Because of the nature of the revelations, much of the testimony taken during the final segment of the proceedings was kept off the record and preserved in a separate, top-secret report. Army Chief of Staff General Marshall U.S.-Japan relations in 1941 increasingly tense. Marshall, the board's first witness, stated, We were very fearful of some warlike act by the Japanese which immediately would have brought about a state of war in the Pacific, for which at the time we were not prepared. There were numerous indications, all of which indicated a very serious crisis developing in the Pacific in relation to Japan. Marshall said he and Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Stark made it very clear to the Secretary of State that it was of the utmost importance to delay so long as possible any outbreak in the Pacific. We anticipated beyond a doubt a Japanese movement in Indochina and the Gulf of Siam and against the Malay Peninsula. We anticipated also an assault on the Philippines. We did not, so far as I can recall, anticipate an attack on Hawaii. We thought with the addition of more modern planes that the defenses there would be sufficient to make it extremely hazardous for the Japanese to attempt such an attack. In a joint November 27 memorandum, Marshall and Stark told the President emphatically, 
The most essential thing now from the United States viewpoint is to gain time. After consultation with each other, United States, British, and Dutch military authorities in the Far East agreed that joint military counteraction against Japan should be undertaken only in case Japan attacks or directly threatens the territory or mandated territory of the United States, the British Commonwealth, or the Netherlands East Indies. Or should the Japanese forces move into Thailand west of 100 degrees east or south of 10 degrees north, Portuguese Timor, New Caledonia, or the Loyalty Islands. Very soon after Short assumed command of the Hawaiian Department, Marshall advised him, February 7, 1941, of his responsibility for protecting the fleet. The fullest protection for the fleet is the rather than a major consideration for us. There can be little question about that. Please keep clearly in mind in all of your negotiations that our mission is to protect the base in the naval concentration, and that purpose should be made clearly apparent to Admiral Kimmel. When asked if the mission of the Army out there was the protection of the Navy, Marshall answered, yes, that is the reason for the Army's being there. Cooperation between Pearl Harbor Commanders Admiral Kimmel and General Short the Roberts Commission had blamed the Pearl Harbor disaster to some extent on the failure of the two Pearl Harbor commanders, Kimmel and Short, to cooperate. Short acknowledged that there had been some instances when the channels of communication between the Army and Navy seemed to break down. For instance, he did not learn until December 8 about the submarine sunk near Pearl Harbor at about 6.45 a.m. on December 7. However, generally speaking, he thought the Army's relation with the Navy in Hawaii and his personal relationship with Kimmel had been good. Kimmel's associates and Hawaiian locals who were questioned agreed. General Short defends his sabotage alert. Short had been charged by the Roberts Commission with an error in judgment for having instituted alert number one to guard against sabotage and for not having alerted for such an attack as that of December 7. The Army's July 14, 1941 Standard Operating Procedure, effective November 5, 1941, had described three alerts. So Marshall was familiar with them. However, he had some definite ideas about implementing them. He did not want the Hawaiian Air Force used to defend against sabotage and ground attacks or to provide military police duty. He wrote short on October 10 that using the Air Force for anti-sabotage seems inconsistent with the emphasis we are placing on air strength in Hawaii. Marshall told Short to use his Air Force for its normal purposes and not upon anti-sabotage guard duty. War Department's November 27 War Warning Message number 472 had read, Negotiations with Japan appear to be terminated. If hostilities cannot, repeat, cannot be avoided, the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. This policy should not, comma, repeat, not, comma, be construed as restricting you to a course of action that might jeopardize your defense. Prior to hostile Japanese action, you are directed to undertake such reconnaissance and other measures as you deem necessary, but these measures should be carried out so as not, comma, repeat, not, comma, to alarm civil population or disclose intent. Short found this confusing. He should undertake such reconnaissance and other measures as you deem necessary, but these measures should be carried out so as not, comma, repeat, not, to alarm civil population or disclose intent. Because of this stricture, Short had decided upon alert number one, designed specifically to guard against sabotage, espionage, and subversive activities, rather than one of the more aggressive alerts. Short had then radioed Washington, as requested, that he had alerted to prevent sabotage. Short explained still further the reason for his sabotage alert. Hawaiian Intelligence, G2, had received a message, number 473 
from General Sherman Miles, Director of Military Intelligence, G2, advising that subversive activities may be expected. Miles explained that President Roosevelt had delegated to the FBI, ONI, and to his Military Intelligence Division responsibility for counter-subversive activities. When Miles found that nothing had been said about subversion in General Marshall's November 27 war warning, he felt it necessary to warn all G2 departments. The policy had already been laid down, Miles said, by General Marshall's telegram. He was simply backing up Marshall's policy and emphasizing the form of attack for which he, Miles, was responsible. Upon receiving the War Department's November 27 war warning, Shore thought, from the caution about not taking any provocative measures against Japan and not alarming the public, there was still some possibility of avoiding war with Japan. To take the message of the 16th of October in regard to Japan's change in prime ministers from Kanoye to Tojo, and the 27th of November together, they indicated to me, short, that they were still hopeful of avoiding hostilities. Stark didn't hear anything further from the War Department except the short November 28 message, number 482, which went into detail about sabotage, telling Short to protect his establishments against subversive propaganda and espionage. Short interpreted the several messages from the War Department in Washington as approving his sabotage alert. Other witnesses questioned by the Grunert Board also believe Short had been justified in his decision to alert for sabotage. Short had been given no indication that the negotiations in Washington were reaching a breaking point. He had not been told that we were negotiating with the British and Dutch about coordinated military action in the Pacific area. If he had known more about what was going on in Washington and about the attitude of Washington officials, it would undoubtedly have made him more conscious that war was practically unavoidable. Washington officials see war as imminent. In their testimony, various Washington officials traced the deterioration of U.S.-Japanese relations back to various points in time. General H. H. Arnold, chief of the Army Air Forces, said it had been apparent as early as January 1941 that relations were quite strained. General Leonard T. Garrow, acting or assistant chief of war plans, said the general buildup between July and November led to the conclusion in November that war with Japan might occur. Marshall said it had been a gradual process. He had come to the conclusion, sometime in the fall of 41, that war with Japan was inevitable. General Miles of military intelligence also saw the situation as precarious from November 27. When we learned that we had practically given what probably would be considered by them, the Japanese, an ultimatum, I considered war as very probable, if not inevitable. I thought that very definitely an action by Japan, a pretty radical action, would be taken almost at once, that that necessarily would be an overt and open attack on the United States. However, Miles pointed out, war was not the only possibility. There were a good many things that Japan could have done, if she did break those negotiations, short of open war with the United States, and we were considering all of those matters. What did Short know of the growing U.S.-Japanese crisis buildup? Not much. Short believed he knew, in an indefinite way, that U.S. policy from sometime in August or September of 1941 was largely one of delaying, playing for time, with the realization that war with Japan was inevitable. But he had not been told about the September 1941 conference when General Marshall and others who were in conference with the Secretary of State had decided that war with Japan was inevitable. Nor had he known that we were negotiating with the British and Dutch about coordinated military action in the Pacific area. And, no one had told him, an agreement had been reached with all nations, the effect of which was that if the Japanese moved forces into Thailand 
west of 100 degrees east or south of 20 degrees north, we would regard that as an act of war. Basically, he knew only what was in the papers. Short learned from an October 16 Stark Kimmel message of the resignation of Japan's Prime Minister Kanoye and the rise to power of the more militant General Hideki Tojo, creating a grave situation. Hostilities between Japan and Russia are a strong possibility, since the U.S. and Britain are held responsible for her present desperate situation. There is also a possibility that Japan may attack these two powers. All concerned with the existing grave situation were to take due precautions. Short believed he had done that with his alert number one. We had had all the utilities guarded, all the bridges, and I just simply cautioned people that were responsible for that guarding to be unusually careful. Short's interpretation was that the Navy Department felt sure Japan was going to attack Russia. An attack on the U.S. and GB was only a possibility. After discussion with the Army's G-2, Army Chief of War Plans Garrow reached the conclusion at the time that the Navy estimate was more pessimistic than we believed it should be. Accordingly, the War Department sent short an October 20th follow-up radiogram, in effect toning down the Navy's warning. Following War Department estimate of Japanese situation, for your information, stop. Tension between United States and Japan remains strained, but no, repeat, no abrupt changes in Japanese foreign policy appears imminent. On November 24, the Navy sent another pessimistic message to its field commanders, including Kimmel. Chances of favorable outcome of negotiations with Japan very doubtful. This situation, coupled with statements of Japanese government and movements, their naval and military forces indicate to our opinion that a surprise, aggressive movement in any direction, including attack on Philippines or Guam, is a possibility. The commanders were advised. Chief of Staff has seen this dispatch, concurs and requests action addies, addresses, to inform senior army their areas. Short did not recall seeing this pessimistic Navy message. Marshall defended Washington's warnings as adequate to have alerted Short to be prepared for the crisis that was coming. In our own view, Marshall testified, an alert of the character, particularly the character of the two that occurred at the time, the naval alert and then the later army alert, were sufficient for any commander with a great responsibility. Short thought that, if Washington ever really believed that an attack on the United States was imminent, it would have found some means to inform him as commander in the field, if necessary by scrambler phone. Ordinarily, you could get through in 10 or 15 minutes. It was reasonable to believe, Short testified, that if there was going to be a hostile attack, they would have tried to get it to us by more than one means of communication. Thus, he had been forced to conclude that there was a feeling still at the time that secrecy was more important than the time element. But there had been no word from Washington. Under Grunert's questioning, Marshall admitted that it would have been both possible and feasible to have sent the substance of the secret information to the commanding generals of the overseas departments by courier or otherwise. However, Marshall had been so sensitive to the threat of endangering Washington's source of intelligence, the magic intercepts, that he had considered it unwise to do so. Planes and ships for Hawaii, not a high priority. The board questioned Admiral Block about the Navy's effort to obtain planes. In 1940, the Navy had gotten money for a 15,000-plane program, a number of PBYs, of which about 108 were allocated to the 14th Naval District, Hawaii, and 150 or so to the U.S. Pacific Fleet. At that time, the fleet only had 81. Block said he was quite persistent in trying to get the planes. Commander-in-Chief Kimmel knew and he supported me. The correspondence went to the Navy Department asking for these planes. 
and I was told repeatedly they would be given to me, but they would not be given to me until some time that was indefinite in the future. It wasn't a question of appropriation, it was a question of priorities. The war was in the Atlantic, Pacific wasn't in the war. They say it in the war plan, the war is in the Atlantic, the Pacific is a more or less quasi-defensive theater until they get around to it. According to Admiral William S. Pye, Commander Battle Force Pacific Fleet and Commander Task Force 1, the situation was said to be serious, as early really as April 1941. However, he reminded the board, the Navy Department had detached from the Pacific Fleet in June, one battleship division, one light cruiser division, and two destroyer divisions to send into the Atlantic. It hardly seemed to the commanders in the Pacific that if the situation was as bad as it was said to be, that was the time to be moving a large portion of our fleet into the Atlantic, especially as the British fleet itself was many times superior to the available German ships. Not only had the Pacific fleet been gutted, Pye said, but the commanders encountered resistance from Washington whenever they asked for men and material. During the same period, it became most difficult for the commander-in-chief of the Pacific fleet to obtain patrol planes or even to obtain carrier planes, and up to December 7, not even all of the carriers were equipped with their normal number of planes, by acts rather than by words. Washington failed to indicate urgency. This led to the almost uniform opinion that while war was probably in the offing, it was not expected to come without warning. At least the necessary steps to prepare for a surprise attack were not being taken. The impression given was that if war came, it would be upon the initiative of the United States. Navy Alert to Submarine Attack Threat Grunert questioned Pai about reconnaissance in Hawaii, the areas in which the fleet operated and patrolled with the available aircraft. Grunert stated, Would it have been reasonable to assume that the enemy could not well approach with aircraft carriers to make an attack on the mainland? I replied, It should be recalled that we were not in a state of war. The patrol was primarily to determine the possible presence of submarines. If attacks had been made by submarines and the submarine not sighted or sunk or captured, there would have been no way for us to prove definitely that it was not an internal explosion in the ship rather than a torpedo. In addition to that, there was always the possibility that German crews might man Japanese submarines or might, in the last analysis, even bring their submarines to the Hawaiian Islands in order to try to force us into war. The implication of the November 27 war warning was that there was great danger of a submarine attack. Grunert replies, Then it would appear from what testimony we have had to date that the Army was sabotage-minded and the Navy may have been submarine-minded. I replies, I think there is no question but what the Navy was submarine-minded. Pearl Harbor attack surprised Washington officials as well as Hawaiian commanders. The principal task of the U.S. Embassy in Japan, particularly of its military and naval officers, was to obtain information concerning probable action on the part of the Japanese Army and Navy. Yet in the months before the attack, the embassy officials in Japan had found this to be increasingly difficult. Ambassador Gru cabled from Tokyo on November 17, 1941. The embassy's field of naval or military observation is restricted almost literally to what could be seen with the naked eye, and this is negligible. According to General Miles, Chief of Army's G2, Military Intelligence, many of our sources of intelligence had dried up. To have avoided being surprised on the morning of December 7 would have called for knowing about Japan's naval bases, staging areas, and within rather fairly narrow limits, the expected time of the attack and the direction of approach. He testified, I did not think any intelligence officer ever thought that he could be sure of picking up a convoy or attack force or task force in Japan 
before it sailed and know where it was going. It would have been almost a military intelligence miracle. I did not believe the people in Washington expected the attack any more than the people in Honolulu. He thought the attitude of the officers of the fleet was just about the same as the attitude of the War and Navy Departments. Pai, who met Secretary of Knox right upon his arrival in the Hawaiian Islands about December 10, said, The first thing Knox said to me was, No one in Washington expected such an attack, not even Kelly Turner. Admiral Kelly Turner was in the War Plans Division, was the most aggressive-minded of all. Marshall testified that he had sent Major General Arnold, Commanding General, Army Air Force, and Deputy Chief of Staff to California specifically to expedite the departure of the B-17 bombers to the Philippines. Arnold in turn testified that in view of the strained relations with Japan, we were doing what we could to prepare for any eventuality that might occur without causing an overt act against the Japanese. We had not been so much worried about the immediate attack on Hawaii. It was always a possibility. But we all thought there certainly would be an attack against Midway and Wake. The B-17s left the West Coast for Hawaii without ammunition, because at that time it was a question of gasoline or ammunition for that long 2,400-mile hop. So they did not take the ammunition, and they got there right in the middle of the Pearl Harbor attack. Obviously, Arnold said, we made an error, an error in judgment. Somebody had to weigh the fact against their certainty of arriving there by providing sufficient gasoline against the probability of their using their machine guns and not getting there because they were carrying ammunition. The fact that bombers had been dispatched to Honolulu, unarmed, en route to the Philippines on the night of December 6-7, through 7, told Short that the War Department felt that there was no danger of an air attack on Honolulu, or between Honolulu and San Francisco. The extra weight in ammunition was considered a greater hazard than it was to take a chance of meeting the Japs without any ability to return their fire. Very definitely, Short said, their estimate was exactly the same as his. They were not expecting an air attack on Honolulu. Philippines considered the most likely target. Relationships between the United States and Japan were deteriorating in October and November 1941. Washington was expecting a Japanese strike somewhere in the Western Pacific or Southeast Asia. It seemed logical that she would attack the Philippines to keep the United States from intercepting Japanese ships and planes bound for Southeast Asia. Thus, the War Department had been trying desperately to build up U.S. defenses there. According to Marshall, we were pouring through Hawaii on the way to the Philippines, convoys with men and material for the Philippines, rushing everybody. Everything was being pushed to the last extreme. From the information that we were receiving, Marshall felt that they, the Japanese, were now getting in a highly nervous state because of the arrival of supplies in the Philippines. One magic message had asked the Japanese Consul General in Manila, to check up immediately on the presence of flying fortresses in the Philippines. The Japanese consul in Manila was also reporting the tremendous unloading procedures being carried out at night and the movement of things at night from the docks and everybody barred from the vicinity. Marshall concluded that the Japanese were in a critical posture as to what they must do to prevent us from building up further in the Philippines. Our own belief, Marshall said, was that, once we got the planes out there, and particularly these convoys that were then on the Pacific, which had, compared to what the Philippines already had, a wealth of material, the Japanese would be in an extremely delicate strategic position in trying to carry out any enterprise to the south of the Philippines. Marshall realized that the shipments being rushed out to the Philippines must be alarming Japan. Nobody could look at that buildup, he told the board, without realizing that something very critical was in the wind. Our great problems was how to do these things, 
the shipments and collecting the means and getting them out, particularly to the Philippines, which passed entirely through Hawaii, without giving such notice to the Japanese that it would have an unfortunate effect in our stalling off this affair. The Joint Board of the Army and Navy Conference on November 3 had urged postponing hostilities as long as possible. The November 5 Marshall-Stark Memorandum to FDR had recommended that we not issue an ultimatum that might provoke Japan to attack. Yet, on November 26, Hull had handed the Japanese ambassadors the U.S. ultimatum he knew the Japanese government would not accept. Washington's eyes appeared to be glued on the Philippines. Throughout this time, relatively little thought was given to Hawaii. Further confirmation of Washington's neglect of Pearl Harbor and its concentration on the Philippines came when Marshall appeared before the board on September 29, 1944. He was asked specifically about the 1 p.m. message of December 7 and his radiogram to Hawaii, which had left Washington shortly after noon that day, but was delayed in transit and failed to reach Pearl Harbor until after the attack. Grunert asked Marshall's reasons for not using the telephone to inform General Short of the information contained in the Chief of Staff's radiogram of 7 December 1941. Marshall said that if he had used the scrambler phone to relay that message, he would certainly have called MacArthur in the Philippines first, and then I would have called Panama Canal second. He had thought we were open in a more vulnerable way in the Panama Canal than we were in Hawaii. The messages sent short in Hawaii had been terse and rather cryptic, advising him that hostilities between Japan and Russia are a strong possibility. Since the U.S. and Britain are held responsible by Japan for her present desperate situation, there is also a possibility that Japan may attack these two powers. Short had been led to believe, by the urgency of the shipments passing through Hawaii to the Philippines, that Washington must have had definite reasons for believing that the Philippine Islands were the U.S. territory most seriously threatened by Japanese attack. Kimmel tells the APHB about important intelligence not sent Pearl Harbor commanders. On Friday, August 25, several days after Kimmel testified before the Navy Court of Inquiry, he was called to the witness stand by the APHB, which was going on concurrently. He was asked the usual questions about his relationship with Short and other matters pertaining to conditions before the attack. Kimmel then discussed intelligence. He said he got information from the Navy Department, so far as the efficiency of the Japanese Air Force was concerned. But his sources had then been limited for he could not send people to the mandated islands to discover what the Japanese were doing there. His orders were not to go anywhere near them. We wanted to go into the Gilberts to make some surveys down there. And the answer was that we should not evince any interests in the Gilberts because the Japs might find out that we were interested. In any event, Kimmel said, a movement such as that would have had to be approved by the Navy Department. Kimmel was convinced that no reconnaissance of the mandates would have been permitted by the Navy Department at that time. He had a statement to make about the information which was supplied to the two responsible commanders in Hawaii. He and Short had thoroughly considered all such information and had taken the action which we deemed appropriate. There was no disagreement between the Army and Navy and none between me and my personal advisors. However, Kimmel said, since Pearl Harbor information has come to my knowledge that vital information in the hands of the War and Navy Departments was not supplied to responsible officers in Hawaii. In particular, that the War and Navy Departments knew that Japan had set a deadline of 25 November, later extended to 29 November for the signing of an agreement, after which they would take hostile steps against the United States. That on 26 November, an ultimatum was delivered to Japan by the United States. 
This was done notwithstanding a joint recommendation to the President by General Marshall and Admiral Stark that no ultimatum of any kind should be made to Japan. Immel said he had been advised of this recommendation and had received no qualification of that information. Moreover, he said he had had no knowledge of the delivery of the ultimatum to Japan on 26 November 1941. Further, Kimmel said he was certain that several days prior to 7 December 1941, there was information in the War Department and the Navy Department that Japan would attack the United States and very probably that the attack would be directed against the fleet at Pearl Harbor, among other places. That there was information in the War and Navy Departments on 6 December 1941 that the hour of attack was momentarily imminent and that early on 7 December 1941, the precise time of the attack was known. It was known at least three or probably four hours before the attack. All this information, Kimmel said, was denied to him and to Short, yet he felt they were entitled to it. He had believed that if the War and Navy Departments had had such information, they would surely have furnished it to them. Had we not been denied this, many things would have been different. Had we been furnished this information as little as two or three hours before the attack, which was easily feasible and possible, Kimmel said much more could have been done. When Kimmel finished his statement, Grunert said, Some of the things to which you have referred may become the subject of further investigation before the board is through. And he asked if Kimmel would provide his source. Kimmel agreed to cooperate to the best of my ability in conformity with the restrictions which had been imposed upon me. The APHB members could not then pursue Kimmel's leads as they were flying to San Francisco and Pearl Harbor to question other witnesses. Kimmel's testimony raised new questions. Grunert wrote Marshall another letter saying he wanted to ask Marshall about information brought to the attention of the board, which it did not have when you testified before. APHB flies to San Francisco and Hawaii. En route to and from Hawaii, the board stopped in San Francisco to investigate charges of shoddy construction carried out for the Army by the Hawaiian constructors. In Hawaii, the board asked Army officers and local businessmen about Short's preparation for the island's defense. Generally speaking, they approved of Short's defense preparations. And except for a few Japanese connected with the consulate, American businessmen did not question the loyalty of most ethnic Japanese. The APHB members left Hawaii for Washington on September 13 and resumed their hearings on September 26. Only when they were back in Washington were the Grunert board members able to follow up on Kimmel's revelations. And the board did not actually obtain copies of the documents on which they were based until October 6, when the board was winding up its hearings. In view of the sensitivity of this material and to safeguard the confidentiality of witnesses, their remarks were not included in the regular printed hearings but placed in a separate top-secret supplement. Ambassador Grew describes the Tokyo situation. Joseph C. Grew had been U.S. Ambassador to Japan from June 14, 1932, until December 7. Once the two nations were at war, he was placed under house arrest and held until an exchange of diplomats could be arranged. Grew was questioned about U.S.-Japanese relations in general. The trend of our relations during the years 1940 and 41 was almost steadily downhill. Grew thought that in the embassy they had done everything possible to arrest that trend, but we were up against what I would call a tidal wave of military extremism in Japan. Not being a defeatist by nature, I was unwilling to admit that war was inevitable up to the last minute. Grew had warned Washington that economic embargoes should not be imposed until we were prepared to go all the way through with whatever might result from those embargoes. Our relations with that country were bound to go steadily downhill and it might and probably would end in war.
And he reminded the board there were not only the embargoes, but also the freezing order and the denunciation of our treaty and commerce with Japan. Gru thought the attack must have been a surprise also to the civil authorities in Japan. It was perfectly possible, he said, that the cabinet was not informed of the plans for attacking Pearl Harbor. He had had a conversation with Foreign Minister Togo at half past midnight on December 7, about three hours before the attack, and was convinced from the nature of that conversation that Mr. Togo did not at that moment know that Pearl Harbor was about to break. Gru added, That does not for a moment mean that they were not informed of the likelihood that under certain circumstances war might occur. Of course, they knew that without any shadow of doubt, and Nomura and Caruso knew that too. I was referring purely to the attack on Pearl Harbor itself. General Short raises more questions. After Short appeared before the APHB, he asked to be furnished the testimony of other witnesses, and the board had agreed. When he appeared again on September 29th, he said he was concerned about the criticism levied against the Hawaiian commanders because the attack had taken them by surprise. They were not the only ones surprised. He was convinced the attack had been a surprise to Washington officials also. On the theory that actions speak louder than words, he pointed to Washington's pre-attack actions. He reminded the board of Washington's constant denials of requests for increases in personnel, for money for the improvement of defenses, and things like sending out planes from California the night before the attack without ammunition, all kinds of things that were really stronger in their effect than mere words. Assuming that they were acting in good faith, Short continued, you have to arrive at the conclusion that they undoubtedly were not contemplating an air attack on Honolulu. The Army had also been considered negligent because its radar was not operational, and had not warned of the impending attack that morning. That was not due to the command's negligence. Rather, Short said, it was due to a shortage of supplies for the radar, such as vacuum tubes and so forth. In an October 1941 memorandum, radar equipment had been requested adequate to operate 24 hours daily, but it had been radically cut back to allow only two hours of operation per day. Why? Because according to the War Department, the United States was not threatened with attack. Short raised three important questions. Number one, had the APHB learned anything about the coded messages several witnesses had mentioned? For instance, what was the basis for Justice Roberts' question concerning a Japanese code message intercepted and broken down by the department in Washington, which gave certain keywords which would be flashed over the radio directing the attack on Pearl Harbor? Number two, what new intelligence had prompted Marshall to send the message concerning the Japanese delivery time to the field commanders at noon on December 7th? Number three, what were the grounds for Kimmel's statement to the board about information available in Washington during the crucial days before the attack, information not furnished Short and Kimmel? Short was anxious to learn about the coded messages. He had written Stimson that very day asking that a search be made and that if it, the information, is not to be found in the War Department's files, that a demand be made on the Navy for the information. Short felt that all pertinent evidence should be made available to the board and to him because the War Department had not permitted him to have a representative attend the APHB hearing and examine witnesses. However, Short's path to securing this information wasn't easy. When he wrote Secretary of War Stimson later, September 29, 1944, asking for permission to see the secret documents, Stimson agreed that Short's military counsel, Brigadier General Thomas H. Green, should have access to this material, October 2, 1944. Grunert tried to countermand that permission, but the War Department refused. Grunert was told to comply with the instructions of the Secretary of War as issued, 
and to allow Green to see the top-secret material. But Short was not allowed access. Green was even asked to sign a letter, swearing that you have been appropriately warned relating to the military security concerning these matters. Marshall remembers some events, does not recall others. When Marshall appeared before the board again, he was asked about the question in Grunert's letter of August 31, 1944. Marshall was asked about the Japanese-imposed deadlines, November 25 at first, then November 29. The first date of the 25th of November puzzled us greatly, Marshall said. The only thing that we could think of at the moment was that on that day the anti-Comintern pact expired. During all this period, the Japanese had been involved in actions in the China theater and towards Indochina, which indicated that they were either about to embark on a war in the Malaysia area, at least, or were in the process of carrying out very dire infiltration operations. However, we later received information from our secret sources that the date had been extended to the 29th of November. That, in our view, wiped out any thought that the original date of the 25th of November pertained to the anti-Comintern pact. November 29th arrived and passed, and we entered into December without anything happening other than the continuation of these movements, which we could follow fairly well down the China coast and Indochina, and headed quite plainly towards Thailand and the Gulf of Siam. In all the past procedures of the Japanese, they had taken very bold measures, on the assumption, I presume, that they could get away with them without the United States entering into war. Their feeling, so nearly as we could determine, was one that the United States would not participate in a war and they could take advantage of that by doing things that otherwise would immediately provoke a state of war. Throughout November, Marshall and Stark were urging the administration to postpone any confrontation with the Japanese until they could build up their Philippine defenses. The British, preoccupied at home with their struggle against Germany, were overextended and wanted to avoid open conflict with the Japanese. Yet the embargo on oil to Japan with the cooperation of the British and Dutch imperiled the Japanese. Also, the reopening of the Burma Road by the British made it easier for China to be provisioned, and this was a thorn in the side of the Japanese. Marshall said he believed that the Japanese were going ahead to get in as strong a position as possible, on the assumption that the reluctance of the United States and the reluctance of the British government in its dilemma of the moment would permit them to establish themselves. He thought the Japanese were capitalizing on the belief that it would be very difficult to bring our people into a willingness to enter the war. That, incidentally, was somewhat confirmed by the governmental policy on our part of making certain that the overt act should not be attributed to the United States because of the state of public mind at that time. Of course, no one anticipated that that overt act would be the crippling of the Pacific Fleet. Marshall believed that the Japanese were going to take every conceivable advantage and finally would reach the point where they could safely declare war, involve us in war, and get all the other things they were after. By the fall of 1941, Marshall said he had come to the conclusion that war with Japan was inevitable. Prudence dictated that warnings be sent by the War Department to those officers responsible for the defense of all our areas within reach of Japanese action. However, information available in the War Department led him to believe that any Japanese attack would take place in the vicinity of the Malay Peninsula and the Philippines. He wasn't particularly concerned about Hawaii, especially as he considered it better supplied and better prepared to defend itself than other U.S. outposts. APHB board member General Russell questioned Marshall on various points Kimmel had raised. Marshall admitted to having no recollection of the several advance warnings received in Washington. He did not recall having learned that November 29, Tokyo time, was definitely the governing date for offensive military operations of some nature.
He had no recollection of any messages on November 26, December 1, and December 4, giving specific evidence of Japan's intention to wage an offensive war against both Britain and the United States. Marshall recalled something about a WINS code setup and the alerting of our code clerks to listen for the crucial words. But, he said, Colonel Bratton was unable to find that a our records do not show that a Japanese message using the WINS code was intercepted by the FCC or the Army Signal Corps until after Pearl Harbor. However, he admitted that it did appear from the record that a Japanese message using the WINS code had been intercepted. This indicated, Marshall said, that Japanese-Great Britain relations were to be broken. Marshall didn't mention a possible break in Japanese-U.S. relations. Russell noted this was the Army interpretation. He said, The Navy people say that the execute order, the wins execute, whenever it came in, and they alleged it came in on the 3rd of December, meant that war was coming with the United States and with Britain, but not with Russia. Marshall had understood from Bratton that the intelligence officers in Hawaii were privy to the information about the WINS code message. Another important matter which Marshall did not remember related to the first 13 parts of the Japanese reply to our ultimatum. According to Kimmel's statement, they were received during the evening of December 6. Marshall said he was unaware of this. Responding to Gruner's question as to when on December 7 Marshall had learned the precise time of the attack, he reviewed his December 7 morning movements his early horseback ride, his arrival at his War Department office about 11 a.m., his meeting with Miles, Garrow, and Bratton, his discovery of the long 14-part Japanese message, and finally, the 1 p.m. message. Something was going to happen at 1 p.m. It was quite evident to us. After digesting all this material, Marshall drafted the message that went out to the field commanders at noon. According to Marshall, he had come to the conclusion about November 1 that war with Japan was inevitable. Concerning the top-secret information known to top Washington officials, he admitted that to have sent this intelligence to the commanding generals of the overseas departments, by courier or otherwise, thereby avoiding the danger of exposing the codes that I was striving so diligently to protect, would have been both practical and feasible. On the morning of December 7th, when confronted with incontestable evidence that Japan was planning some definite action that very day at 1 p.m. Washington time, Marshall said it would have been possible to notify the commanders by a more rapid method than the coded radio message actually dispatched at noon that day. But he felt then that that would have been unwise. Moreover, Marshall was convinced that Short had been sent sufficient information and that he had adequate weapons, ammunition, and other means for the discharge of his defensive mission in the protection of the island of Oahu. Marshall apologized for not being better prepared to answer the board's questions, but as chief of staff, he had been busy with the war with Japan and Germany and had not been able to keep up on the Pearl Harbor situation. There were still more questions the board wanted to pursue with Marshall, who pleaded pressure of other business, appointments with a Chinese official, the combined chiefs of staff, the U.S. chiefs of staff, the ambassador going to France. And confidentially, he was leaving for France himself the next Tuesday. Brunert said, if it appears necessary, the board might ask Marshall for another hour early next week. The next day, Saturday, September 30, the board sent Marshall still more questions. In the meantime, two important witnesses testified, Army Courier Colonel Rufus Bratton and Navy Captain L.F. Safford. Colonel Bratton testifies about Japanese intercepts. At the time of the attack, Colonel Rufus S. Bratton had been Chief, Far Eastern Section G2, and Army Courier. 
When testifying before the APHB, he referred to a memorandum written December 10 detailing the events of December 7, and to a summary of Far Eastern documents, based on documents from 1937 to 1941, and compiled August 1943 by the Far Eastern Section Intelligence Group and by War Department's G2. It had been compiled for submission to the Army Chief of Staff and the President. Bratton was conversant with the Japanese language, although he had not been involved with the actual interception and decoding of the Japanese messages on which that summary had been based. That had been the responsibility of the Army's Signal Intelligence Service, SIS, and the Navy's Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI. He had seen all secret messages relating to the Japanese situation received by the War Department. In August 1940, U.S. cryptographers had succeeded in deciphering the Japanese diplomatic code, which became known as Purple. And ever since then, we had been reading many, if not most, of the Japanese intercepts transmitted in this code. The intelligence derived from this source was considered so valuable that it had been codenamed Magic. Much of the information Kimmel referred to that had not been furnished to Pearl Harbor commanders had come from Magic. According to Bratton, tight security maintained in the distribution of the Japanese intercepts. As to the intercepts and translations of Japanese intercepts, they were handled in a special way. In 1941, certainly in the latter part of it, I was the custodian and the disseminator of this type of intelligence. The translations made either in the Signal Corps SIS section or in the corresponding section of Naval Communications were sent to me in sextuplet, six copies of each one. Out of the massive materials, say 10 to 20% was of intelligence value. The remainder dealt with administrative or personal matters. And that material I destroyed by burning. The remaining flimsies containing military intelligence of value to our government officials was arranged in cardboard folders, which in turn were placed in locked dispatch cases. One for the Secretary of State, one for the Secretary of War, one for the Chief of Staff, one for the AC of S, G2, and one for the ACFS WPD. I delivered these pouches in person to the officers concerned who had keys to the pouches. I collected all of these pouches on my next visit or on my next round the following day and destroyed the contents of them by burning and retaining in my file a complete copy of everything that had been seen by all of these officials. The critical messages sent by G2 in November and early December 1941. The translated intercepts you refer to are on file in G2 or Department. During this period, Bratton said, the President, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of War, the Chief, the AC of S G2, and the Chief of the War Plans Division all saw the same material. They all read the same translations as fast as I could get them to them. These materials did not go out to the field. We felt considerably hampered in G2 by two restrictions that were placed upon us. The first I have mentioned as the policy which prevented us from giving out intelligence to G2s in tactical units or an overseas department, which might have the effect of bringing about operational results. The other restriction was imposed on us by the Navy, who refused to allow us to send any of this intercept intelligence out to any of our people in the field over Army Net using any Army code cipher. Fear of the Japanese breaking our Army code and finding out that we were reading their own, it was a security measure. Bratton testified that on the morning of December 7, between 8.30 and 9 a.m., he had received the short Japanese-English language intercept relating to the destruction of the code machines and the delivery of the ultimatum. He realized this was about the most important message he had received during this period and immediately phoned Marshall's quarters. 
Bratton was told Marshall had gone horseback riding. He requested this, Marshall's, orderly to go out and find him at once and ask him to call as soon as practicable, as he had an important message to deliver to him. In spite of the urgency of the message, it was not until sometime between 10 and 11 that Marshall returned Bratton's call. Bratton then told Marshall that he had a message of extreme importance, which he should see at once, and offered to bring it out to Marshall's quarters. Marshall told him to report to him in his office. Marshall arrived in his office at about 11.25. Then finally, almost three hours after this message of extreme importance had been received, Bratton was able to show it to Marshall. Marshall discussed it with Bratton, Miles, and Garrow, who were present. They thought it probable that the Japanese line of action would be into Thailand, but that it might be into any one or more of a number of other areas. Marshall then radioed the Army field commanders by the fastest possible safe means, giving the Philippines first priority, advising them of the 1 p.m. deadline and telling them to be on the alert accordingly. This was the message that reached Pearl Harbor in the afternoon, hours after the attack had ended. The APHB wanted to know whether or not the WINS code setup had ever been executed, i.e. implemented. Bratton had known that the FCC had been looking for such a message, and he remembered talking about weather messages with Colonel Sadler, Navy Lieutenant Kramer, and Navy Commander McCollum. But his memory was vague. He did remember talking with Sadler on the morning of December 5, who said something about a message that had come through indicating a break between Japan and Great Britain. Bratton did not remember seeing before the attack an implementation, a WINS code execute, with reference to a Japanese-United States break. However, he did remember, vaguely, seeing a WINS execute referring to a Japanese-U.S. break in relations after the attack. APHB members Russell and Grunert then asked Bratton how it would affect the Japanese if they learned then, 1944, that we had intercepted a WINS execute message in 1941. He did not believe those code words were being used by the Japanese today. He was then asked if the Japanese knew we had intercepted these messages and had broken that code before the war. Would it give them any information as to whether or not we had broken the code they are using today? Bratton stated, Oh, yes, sir, it would, because these code phrases are a code within a cipher. The whole message about this WINS signal was in a very secret cipher. Grunert replies, And they are continuing to use that cipher. Therefore, the danger that any leak of this thing might affect the war efforts exists now as it has in the past? Bratton answers, yes, sir. On this point, Navy Captain Safford flatly disagreed, as the APHB soon learned. Captain L.F. Safford describes the Japanese WINS code intercepts. As head of the Communications Security Division, Naval Operations, in 1941, Safford had been much involved with naval intelligence information. He remembered many details from 1941. However, when testifying before the APHB on October 2, he consulted a record of the intercepts prepared more recently, November through December 1943, and January through March 1944, from original sources borrowed from OP-20G, i.e. the Communication Intelligence Section or Communication Division of Naval Operations. Russell asked Safford about a statement before Hart's investigation that we had received on November 26 specific evidence of Japan's intentions to wage an offensive war against both Britain and the United States. Safford replied that this message, SIS number 25392, said that Japan would announce her intentions in regard to war or possibly breaking off diplomatic relations with Russia, England including the Netherlands East Indies, and the United States 
by means of a word sent five times in the middle and at the end of their information broadcast. Safford continued, On November 28, 1941, we read another message, giving a WINS code to be used in their voice broadcasts. We had verification of this WINS code setup from our other sources. Art, Manila, Singapore, Batavia, NEI, and our intercept station in the state of Washington. Russell stated, Tell us about the follow-up on this code. Whether or not, on or about December 4th, you did receive information which indicated that the Japanese Empire had employed this code, and the intercepted messages indicated final decisions affecting the United States, Russia, Britain, one or more of these powers. Safford replied, Yes, sir, we did. That was received in the morning of Thursday, December 4, 1941. It was received about 8 o'clock, by teletype. I saw it when I first came to the office. The writing at the bottom in lead pencil in Kramer's handwriting, War with England, War with America, Peace with Russia. The message, as received, was not the way we expected it, because they had mixed up their voice procedure with the Morse code message. Distribution of this wins execute was made, not only in accordance with the special arrangement set up by noise of naval communications, but also in the usual fashion through the War and Navy Departments. And also I know that in the Navy Department, that copy was distributed around noon in connection with a daily routine distribution of translations, and that went to the Chief of Naval Operations, Stark, Assistant Chief of Naval Operations, Ingersoll, Director of Naval Communications, Noyes, Director of Naval Intelligence, Wilkinson, and the Director of War Plans Division, Turner, also went to the State Department and to the White House. Safford was positive as to the date when the Winds Execute came in because its receipt had prompted him to send four messages that very day, between 3 p.m. and 3.19 p.m., to the naval attachés at Tokyo, Peiping, Bangkok, and Shanghai, directing them to destroy all secret and confidential files, except those essential for current purposes, and all other papers which in the hands of an enemy would be a disadvantage to the United States. Safford believed that all the Army SIS messages he had been describing were in the custody of the Army's G-2, general staff, and that the same messages, filed by their Navy numbers, were at 20G, the Navy's communication annex, except for the implementation of the WINS code. Unfortunately, we cannot find any written record of the WINS execute message, in spite of having looked now for more than six months. And there was no way to trace it because all the station logs, unfortunately, had been destroyed sometime during 43, which was more or less standard operating procedure when a government office moved or expanded. More important in Grunert's view was that the winds execute itself was whether the war effort in 1944 would suffer if the Japanese learned that we had intercepted and deciphered this message in 1941. Russell described the dilemma. The board is debating the effects on the war effort of a public disclosure of the contents of the winds message. Assuming that the Japanese Empire knew that the American government was in possession of those facts, which are contained in that winds message, would it, caused them to make changes which would make it more difficult for us to obtain Japanese information now. When questioned, Bratton had said it would. Safford disagreed. No, sir, not the winds message or this other so-called hidden word or stop code message. The setup for those two was sent in what they call a low-grade cipher held by all their consoles. Everybody was solving that. The Dutch solved it, the British solved it in Singapore, and we solved it ourselves. Both of them and they must know that we have been reading those messages. And I believe that that particular system is not in use anymore anyhow. It is not the high-class machine, which is a literal goldmine at the present time. The other stuff it would be very bad to let public.
By this other stuff, Safford meant the declaration of war, i.e. the 14-part reply to our ultimatum that the Japanese sent December 6-7, through 7, and their December 7, 1 p.m. message, that Safford said is in their high-class purple machine, which they think no one can read, and they are still talking their full heads off in it, particularly from Germany. Even though the wins execute had been sent in the low-grade cipher, Saffer said it was extremely significant. By announcing the imminence of a break in relations or of an outbreak of war with the United States and Britain, Japan was explaining the reason for her November 25 deadline, later changed to November 29. And the deadline showed that the break in relations it portended was not just talk. Thus, the wins execute made the deadline message mean a lot more. And the deadline message made that, the wins code execute, mean a lot more. Safford told the APHB that we knew from Japanese intercepts picked up December 1 and 3, 1941, that Japanese embassies and consulates in London, Hong Kong, Singapore, Manila, Batavia, and Washington had been told to destroy their codes, ciphers, and code machines. This destruction of codes immediately threw the WINS message into prominence, Safford said. Before we couldn't understand why they had this, WINS code set up arranged. It seemed a foolish thing to do, but they had this in mind, I think. Well, all right, one step short of war. They are destroying their codes to play safe, but they are still reserving the decision as to peace or war to come in the wind's message, which was the reason that, from the first on, we thought the wind's message was so highly important. And yet that information did not get out to either Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet or Commander-in-Chief Asiatic Fleet until 48 hours after we had the news. Safford had recognized the significance of the wind's code execute at the time. However, his responsibilities were limited to communications security. The evaluation of a message was out of my hands, and that is a function of naval intelligence. Thus, Safford had focused his December 4 messages to the naval attaches necessarily on the issue of security. Gruner then turned to another subject. Safford had indicated that at some time in the not-too-distant past, it was not intended to give the Navy Court of Inquiry and the Army Board certain secret information. Had special instructions been issued to that effect? That was rather a long story, Safford said. He explained that Kimmel had asked to see the Hart Report. On the basis of information revealed there, Kimmel had requested permission for his counsel, Captain Lavender, to inspect all the files out at 20G, Communications Intelligence Files, to see what information had been in existence in the Navy Department. Lavender had been permitted to see the files and had then asked for copies of about 60 messages. The department had assembled the intercepts, turned them over to the Director of Naval Communications, and notified SIS. SIS had protested. The Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Ralph A. Bard, had also disapproved of their release. But when Navy Secretary Forrestal, then in London, returned to Washington, he reversed that decision and directed that the intercepts be made available to the NCI. But the APHB had not obtained copies. Safford suggested they put in a request to the Secretary of the Navy. Marshall defends government's policy of secrecy, doesn't recall important documents. On Monday, October 2, 1944, Marshall returned once more to the APHB to answer questions posed in the board's September 30 letter. He explained that it was considered essential, at all cost, to prevent the enemy from learning that Japanese intercepts were our source of secret information. Warren Navy Department policy concerning secret, ultra-secret information directed that no action is to be taken on information herein reported, regardless of temporary advantage, 
if such action might have the effect of revealing the existence of the source to the enemy. According to Marshall, there have been cases where convoys have been permitted to go into the most serious situations rather than diverting them from the assemblage of the so-called wolf packs because of the fear that that would convey to the Germans that we had some means of knowing just how this was managed. Apparently, Marshall continued, the Japanese thought we were obtaining knowledge of these convoy movements from spies and observation posts. So as long as they did, we felt free to go ahead. But if there is any danger of our giving away our sources, then we would have to hold off somewhat on seizing each opportunity for fear we would lose tremendous long-term advantages. Marshall believed he had been kept fully informed by the State Department on the development of the relations between the Japanese Empire and the American government. Even so, he couldn't remember some important events. He didn't recall the department's November 26, 1941 memorandum or the ultimatum rejecting Japan's proposal for a modus vivendi. Nor did he remember Secretary of State Hull's remark to Secretary of War Stimson the next morning to the effect that Hull had broken off discussions with the Japanese. I have washed my hands of it and it is now in the hands of you, Stimson and Knox, the Army and Navy. Marshall admitted, however, that he must have known on the 26th of November that the negotiations were nearing an impasse because Admiral Stark and I evidently directed the preparation of a draft of the 27th of November warning on that day, the 26th. Marshall didn't remember the War Department's November 27 warning to Short, number 472, advising that negotiations with Japan appear to be terminated and asking Short to report measures taken. Nor did he remember Short's sabotage alert reply number 959. And he had not realized that his failure to respond to Short's sabotage alert, admittedly inappropriate for defense against attack, meant that it had obtained during the entire period, 27 November to 6 December inclusive. Marshall was forced to admit that Washington's November 27 warning did not accomplish the desired results of defending Pearl Harbor against attack. Perhaps most astonishing of all, however, was that Marshall still maintained that he had heard nothing at all prior to the morning of December 7 about the Japanese reply to the U.S. November 26 ultimatum. This in spite of the fact that the first 13 parts of that reply had been delivered to the White House and the State Department and were in the hands of some agency of the War Department during the evening of December 6. Marsha believed that it was not until I was before the Navy court here recently that I knew this had come in, had been made available to the Secretary of State, the larger portion of that message, the night before. Russell pointed out to Marshall, the evidence which is before the board at this time is to the effect that as early as 8.30, possibly not later than 9 a.m. on the morning of December 7, the message which indicated that the ultimatum would be delivered by the Japanese ambassadors at 1 o'clock on that day and the code machines were being destroyed was in the hands of a colonel, Bratton of G2. Bratton's energies from the time he received that message were devoted exclusively to trying to locate Marshall and Miles, yet Marshall couldn't be reached for a couple of hours not until he finally arrived in his office at about 11.30 a.m. The situation was further complicated by the fact that the Army apparently had no clear plan for handling emergencies when Marshall was not available. Moreover, this was a message, APHB member Frank commented, where the time of its delivery by two hours would have made an awful lot of difference. Marshall offered no explanation for his inaccessibility that Sunday morning except to describe his activities. I remember very distinctly the message from Colonel Bratton because it came to me as I was coming out of a shower, as my habit was to ride at 8.30 on Sunday morning, and it takes me about 50 minutes to go around the only available loop to ride in. It takes me about 8 or 10 minutes to get a shower and dress. 
and when the message came from Colonel Bratton, he wanted to come out there, and I said, no, I am on my way down to the War Department, and it couldn't have been more than five or ten minutes at the outside before I had left to come down here. I have a very clear recollection of that because naturally I thought about it at the time. I was not aware of the fact that this message had been available the night before. Marshall concluded his testimony with a further comment on the importance of secrecy. Everybody that is concerned with this top-secret thing is very cagey about saying anything about it. This, he implied, explained the reluctance of the War Department to release top-secret intercepts to those investigating the Pearl Harbor attack. Army Courier Bratton reports his deliveries of Japanese intercepts. Now that more information about the Japanese intercepts had come out, Bratton returned twice more to testify, October 2 and 6. He said the secret Summary of Far Eastern Documents, copies of the translated Japanese intercepts documenting the summary, together with an appendix containing many of the crucial Japanese intercepts were on file in G2, War Department, being held in tight security and will be made available to you later. Bratton had been convinced on December 3 that war with Japan was imminent. On that day, a December 2 message from Tokyo directing the Japanese embassy in Washington to burn its codes, to stop using their code machine, and to destroy it completely, had been translated. After the receipt of this translation, Bratton said, any further intercepts that were brought to me would simply contribute toward the climax that I saw coming. This was it. He had a feeling that further warnings or alerts should be sent out to our overseas commands. Garrow felt that sufficient warning had been sent. Miles thought he couldn't go over Garrow's decision because of the War Department policy then in effect that War Department G2 intelligence should not send out any intelligence to the G2s of tactical commands or overseas departments, which might produce an operational reaction without the complete concurrence of the War Plans Division. Bratton still felt uneasy and thought further warning should be sent out. He went to the Navy Department to see Commander McCollum, head of the Far Eastern Section in ONI. McCollum felt as Bratton did and was going to write up a warning and try to get the Chief of Naval Operations to dispatch it. McCollum told Bratton also that the Navy's SIS man in Honolulu, a Commander Rochefort, had all the information that we had and was listening for this Japanese winds weather broadcast. McCollum suggested that Bratton instruct Army's G2 in Hawaii to talk with Rochefort at once. As in a short period of time, Rochefort could tell Colonel Fielder, our G2, exactly what was going on and what we knew. Thus, Bratton tried by this indirect route to communicate his fears to Army's G2 in Hawaii. When delivering the Japanese intercepts, Bratton's usual practice was to go first to Marshall, Miles, and Garrow, and then to the State Department. He had followed this procedure the evening of December 6 when delivering the first 13 parts of the Japanese reply. Bratton said he very seldom delivered the locked pouch of intercepts to Marshall in person. That evening, he had left the locked bag containing Marshall's copy with the secretary, Colonel Bedell Smith, advising him that it was an important document and that the chief of staff should see it right away. Bratton had then made delivery in person to G2's Miles, with whom he had discussed the message at some length. He had left the copy of the message for Garrow with his executive officer, Colonel Gailey. Then, at about 10 or 10.30, Bratton had gone with a 13-part message to the Department of State where he had delivered the locked pouch to the watch officer in the State Department with the request that it be gotten to Mr. Hall immediately. The next morning, after receiving the last installment of the Japanese reply and the 1 p.m. deadline message at about 8.30 to 9 a.m., Bratton spent a couple of frantic hours trying to locate Marshall. When he finally reached him by phone, Marshall asked Bratton to wait for him at his office. Marshall arrived at 11.25 a.m. 
Bratton was sure of the time because he kept looking at the clock on the wall and at my watch. The long Japanese reply was on Marshall's desk when he came in. Marshall read it, and then a discussion of the entire communication ensued. Bratton urged the APHB to obtain not only the Japanese reply to the U.S. November 26 ultimatum, but also the 30 or 40 other messages which preceded it, that is, the exchanges between the ambassador in Washington and the foreign minister in Tokyo. And consider the picture that lay before all of our policy-making and planning officials, from the Secretary of State down through the Secretary of War to the Chief of the War Plans Division. They all had the same picture, and it was a picture that was being painted over a period of weeks, if not months. APHB obtains Japanese intercepts, finally. On October 6, 1944, the board gained access to the 45 to 50 intercepts requested. After it actually had the intercepts in hand, it questioned a few final witnesses, and then its proceedings were concluded. The Army Pearl Harbor Board Report The APHB's hearings and those of the NCI had run concurrently. The NCI from July 24 through September 27, 1944. The APHB from August 7 through October 6. The NCI report was dated October 19th, that of the APHB October 20th, 1944. The APHB issued a detailed report describing the background of the attack, the situation in Washington and in Hawaii, and the responsibilities of the several officials. It had brought out in the course of its hearings several significant points not previously covered in depth. A. The Army was clearly responsible for the defense of the fleet when it was at its home base in Pearl Harbor. B. Given the instructions he had received, Short appeared justified in ordering alert number one for sabotage. C. Short's Washington Superior Commander Marshall was obviously familiar with Short's system of alerts and should have notified Short if his order for a sabotage alert, issued in response to Washington's November 27 warning, was not considered adequate. D. Short had been told very little about the crisis that Washington officialdom knew was looming. E. The attack on Pearl Harbor apparently took everyone by surprise, not only in Hawaii but also in Washington. Officials both in Washington and Hawaii had expected the first Japanese strike would be in the Western Pacific or Southeast Asia and, quite likely, the Philippines. F. Two witnesses, Kimmel and Safford, revealed that, as a result of decoded Japanese intercepts, Washington officials had had access to considerable intelligence concerning Japanese intentions, which was not furnished the Hawaiian commanders. The APHB was impressed by the quantity and quality of the intelligence available in Washington. The record shows that from informers and other sources, the War Department had complete and detailed information of Japanese intentions. Information of the evident Japanese intention to go to war in the very near future was well known to the Secretary of State, the Secretary of War, the Chief of Staff of the Army, the Secretary of Navy, and the Chief of Naval Operations. It was not a question of fact, it was only a question of time. The next few days would see the end of peace and the beginning of war. If it be assumed that for any reason the information could not have been given to the Hawaiian Department, then it was a responsibility of the War Department to give orders to Short what to do and to tell him to go on an all-out alert instead of a sabotage alert. The Board was especially concerned about the warning sent Short, his sabotage alert response to the November 27 warning, and the failure of Washington to respond. Having asked for a report of what he was doing, the War Department placed itself in the position of sharing the responsibility if it did not direct Short to take such measures as they considered adequate to meet this serious threat. However, the APHB pointed out Short had two threats, 
yet he only took measures as to one. The message on which he particularly relied as to sabotage came from G2 on November 28. The report said, After he had made his decision to go to alert number one, this last message does not in any way change previous messages. Short should have known as a trained soldier that a G2 message is informative and is of lesser authority than a commanding message from the chief of staff. After the conflicting Navy and Army dispatches of November 27 and the additional November 28 sabotage messages from Army G2 and from the adjutant general, Short had only silence from Washington. He was given no further clarification of this conflict amongst the messages. There is no explanation why Short was not told of the so-called November 26 ultimatum. It was known to the Japanese because it was handed to them. In its report, the APHB discussed the intelligence available in Washington and Hawaii, the amiable relationship between Short and Kimmel, the warning that had been sent to Hawaii, the Hawaiian commander's defense plans, the Army's radar facilities, Short's sabotage alert, the shortage of planes in Hawaii for long-range reconnaissance, and so on. As had been repeated so many times, there was positive evidence in the War Department that it was only a matter of days before war would ensue, and the War Department had noticed that Hawaii was on only a sabotage alert, inadequate for full warfare. Had a full war message, unadulterated, been dispatched, or had direct orders for a full, all-out alert been sent, Hawaii could have been ready to have met the attacks with what it had. What resulted was failure at both ends of the line. Responsibility laid both in Washington and in Hawaii. Among other things, the APHB report criticized Marshall for not providing an arrangement by which another could act in so critical a situation when he could not readily be reached. No accounting for this was made, even though the evidence indicates that the manner in which authority to act was delegated or not delegated had its influence on this situation. The chief of staff had three deputies, Generals Bryden, Arnold, and Moore. None of these three was given the secret information concerning the known Jap intentions. Complete authority to act in General Marshall's absence does not seem to have been given to any one subordinate. Had there been an officer either with authority or with courage to act on the information that was in the War Department on the evening of December 6, and had he sent a message to Short, Hawaii should have been fully alerted. The board report attributed the extent of the Pearl Harbor disaster, primarily to two causes. Number one, the failure of the commanding General Short of the Hawaiian Department adequately to alert his command for war. And number two, the failure of the War Department, with knowledge of the type of alert taken by the commanding general, Hawaiian Department, to direct him to take an adequate alert, and the failure to keep him adequately informed as to the developments of the United States-Japanese negotiations, which in turn might have caused him to change from the inadequate alert to an adequate one. The board cited several factors that contributed to the disaster. The failures of, number one, the Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, Number two, the Chief of Staff of the Army, General George C. Marshall. Number three, Chief of War Plans Division, War Department General Staff, Major General Leonard T. Garrow. And number four, Commanding General of the Hawaiian Department, Lieutenant General Walter C. Short. The APHB report then detailed the extent to which each shared in the responsibility. The report was submitted to Stimson only a couple of weeks before the November 7 presidential election. The APHB had been critical of Short, who was no longer on active duty. But it had also criticized Secretary of State Hull, Army Chief of Staff Marshall, and General Garrow, all of whom were still actively involved in the administration and the war. The report's release could prove an embarrassment to the administration, the president, and the war effort. 
When Stimson received the report, it was announced in the press that it would not be released until it had been reviewed for security by appropriate military authorities. Then on December 1, after Roosevelt had won his election to a third term, Stimson announced that it would be highly prejudicial to the successful prosecution of the war and the safety of American lives to make public during the war the report of the Army Pearl Harbor Board or the record on which it is based. Thus, both secretaries, War and Navy, refused on the ground of national security to make the real story of Pearl Harbor, as revealed in the NCI and APHB reports, public until the war had ended. Chapter 23, The Navy Court of Inquiry, July 24 to October 19, 1944. On July 13, 1944, the new Navy Secretary, James V. Forrestal, ordered the convening of a Navy Court of Inquiry, NCI, for the purpose of inquiring into all circumstances connected with the attack made by the Japanese Armed Forces on Pearl Harbor, Territory of Hawaii, on 7 December 1941. Three retired admirals were appointed to the court, Orrin G. Murfin, President, Edward C. Kalfbus, and Adolphus Andrews. Commander Harold Beismeyer was named Judge Advocate. The court opened its doors on July 24 and took testimony over 32 days. Admirals Harold R. Stark, Chief of Naval Operations at the time of the attack, Claude C. Block, Commandant of the 14th Naval District, Hawaii, and Husband E. Kimmel, who had been Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet, were named interested parties, entitled to attend the hearings, have counsel, and cross-examine witnesses. The court began by exploring the situation at the time of the attack and thus covered much of the same territory as had the Robertson Hart investigations. The jurisdiction of the NCI was not limited to investigating Navy personnel only. It was to inquire into all circumstances connected with the attack made by the Japanese armed forces on Pearl Harbor. Moreover, as Captain L.F. Safford had located the Japanese intercepts and had had copies replaced in the files by the summer of 1944, these intercepts were available to be introduced to the NCI. Kimmel was determined that they be made a part of the record, but obtaining NCI access to them would not be easy. Japanese Intercepts Located Kimmel brought the subject of the intercepts up at his first opportunity. He said he had been branded throughout this country as the one responsible for the Pearl Harbor disaster. He was anxious that this investigation should go far enough to disclose all the facts in connection with the matter. It should call witnesses from the Army, from the State Department, or from any other federal department in order to establish the facts that are necessary to refute the utterly false and misleading statements made through the Roberts Commission. Unless the intercepts were introduced, Kimmel maintained, it would be impossible to properly assign responsibility for the disaster. Judge Advocate Bismeyer asked Forrestal on August 1 for access to the Japanese intercepts. No answer. On August 4, Bismeyer was told that the letter had been misplaced. Then, apparently, it was found and returned to Bismeyer with a request for a change in its classification from secret to top secret. Finally, on the morning of August 8, due to the purely fortuitous circumstance that Admiral Ernest J. King was acting Secretary of the Navy that day, Bismeyer received Forrestal's permission for one of Kimmel's attorneys to examine the secret files. Mr. Knox promised you access to all the files, King said, so I can see no reason to refuse. Thus, Navy Captain Robert A. Lavender of Kimmel's legal staff was given the chance to inspect the secret files. He made his inspection that very afternoon. When Lavender was ushered into the room where he was to examine the intercepts, he was astounded to see a stack two and a half feet high of intercepted messages. He had only a limited time to look through them, but Safford had given him the numbers of the most important intercepts, so he was able to make his examination rather quickly. 
Lavender became physically nauseated, he said, when he realized what the information in his hands would have meant to Kimmel and the men of the fleet who died. He selected some 43 messages that he thought should have been sent to Kimmel in Pearl Harbor and had them copied and authenticated. That evening, attorneys Rugg and Hanafi dined with Lavender. Lavender was still so sickened by what he uncovered that he could not eat. The next day, General Joseph McNarney, then Deputy Chief of Staff of the Army, and an FDR appointee to the Roberts Commission, which had heaped opprobrium on Kimmel and Short, protested to Naval Communications that Lavender's access to the secret files violated orders. When the Director of Naval Communications said he had received no such orders, McNarney backed down. However, Admiral King, who had agreed to Lavender's examination, told Kimmel later that he would not recommend making the information available. And then, Naval Communications refused to turn over to Lavender the copies of the intercepts he had selected. But Kimmel did not let the matter rest. He asked the judge advocate to pursue the matter with Navy Secretary Forrestal, who replied on August 10 that it was not in the public interest to introduce this type of material and evidence. However, Kimmel's men had seen the intercepts, so Kimmel persisted. During the court's first 19 days, Kimmel made requests almost daily to have the secret Japanese intercepts introduced as evidence. Finally, on the 20th day, August 28, Kimmel's efforts bore fruit. The file copies of the selected documents, duly authenticated under official seal, were placed in the NCI's record at the request of the judge advocate of this court. The remaining days of the inquiry, therefore, dealt with this new material. However, before getting to that, we should first review briefly the situation before the intercepts were introduced. CNO Harold R. Stark doesn't recall pre-attack details. The court's first witness, Chief of Naval Operations Stark, offered no startling revelations. Stark held that he had sought to keep Kimmel informed, so far as we thought he could have a vital interest. Did he know of any important development preceding the attack of which Kimmel had not been advised, as Kimmel had requested, by the quickest secure means then available? Stark replied, I have searched my brain, my conscience, my heart, everything I have got, since Pearl Harbor started, to see wherein I was derelict or wherein I might have omitted something. There is only one thought that I regretted, that was the dispatch which was sent by the Army on the morning of December 7, that I had not paralleled it with my own system, or that I had not telephoned it. That is the one conscious realization I remember and regret. The Japanese intercepts had not been actually introduced into the record, but Kimmel used what he had learned about them from Captain Lavender in questioning Stark. Kimmel asked Stark if he had received information that the Japanese government regarded November 25 as an absolute immovable deadline for the negotiations then being conducted between Japan and America. Stark replied, No, I don't remember that. When Kimmel tried to refresh Stark's memory by referring to Safford's testimony before Admiral Hart, Bismeyer objected. It was an attempt to show in the form of a question that there was certain evidence before the Hart examination, what the evidence was, and the fact that the evidence was given under oath. Kimmel tried another tack. Between December 1 and December 4, had Stark received information that Japan was going to attack Britain and the United States and maintain peace with Russia? Stark replies, not that I recall. Kimmel asks, do you recall the phrase, wind's message? Stark replies, I don't recall such a message, not the slightest recollection of a discussion of the so-called wind's message. And more in the same vein. Bismeyer objected. Kimmel then asked Stark if he recalled receiving any important intelligence on December 6, the evening before the attack. Stark replies, I couldn't say what I was doing that evening. My remembrance is, I think I was home, but I couldn't say. I don't recall clearly. I haven't the slightest recollection of any message bearing on this or any other subject being given to me between the time I left the office and the next morning. 
Stark did remember a discussion with Marshall Sunday morning, December 7th, about the message asking the Japanese ambassador to call on Hull that day at 1 p.m., but otherwise he recalled nothing of significance about that message. Admiral Shorman, Navy Liaison with State Department, Evasive Rear Admiral R.E. Shorman, who had been Director of Central Division, Office of Chief of Naval Operations, and liaison with the State Department, was not much more responsive. In answer to Kimmel's repeated questioning, Shorman hesitated and replied only that it would involve the disclosure of information detrimental to the public interest. He claimed his privilege against revealing state secrets. Finally, after being recalled to testify after the court rescinded its earlier ruling restricting questions on subjects not previously in evidence before the court, Sherman admitted having known about the Japanese deadlines November 25 and 29. He also said the dispatch directing the Japanese ambassadors to deliver their reply to Hull on Sunday, December 7, at precisely 1 p.m. Washington time, had been available by 9.30 a.m. when Stark reached his office. And Sherman also recalled the Marshall-Stark telephone conversations concerning the last-minute message to the field commanders. Washington's Advice to Pearl Harbor Commanders, Confusing, Conflicting General Short, the Army's commander at Pearl Harbor at the time of the attack, was NCI's next witness. Like Kimmel, Short had been under a cloud of suspicion ever since the publication of the Roberts Commission report. One of Short's most telling points was that the planes which had been en route to the Philippines via Hawaii the planes that had arrived over Hawaii during the attack, had been sent out from California unarmed. As late as 1.30 a.m. in the War Department on December 7, when the planes were dispatched from California, Short said, they did not believe there was any danger of air attack at Honolulu, or they never would have been so rash as to send planes out in those conditions. Whoever sent them out felt that the hazard of carrying the ammunition was greater than the hazard of a Japanese attack. In other words, he, the dispatcher, considered that there was no probability of an air attack at Pearl Harbor on the morning of December 7, or the planes would not have been started from Hamilton Field in that condition as late as they were. Then Kimmel himself spent three days on the witness stand August 15-17. He spoke about the Army's responsibility for the defense of the fleet when in port, his training procedures, the possibility of a submarine attack, and so on. Before the attack, he had made frequent requests to Washington for information and had received repeated assurances that he would be kept informed. However, Kimmel felt sure that there must be details known in Washington about which he was not informed, details about which he could only guess. Kimmel had known that both Marshall and Stark had recommended against our issuing an ultimatum to the Japanese. However, he did not know that when he received the November 27 war warning, the State Department had issued Japan an ultimatum the day before. He had simply assured that one of the primary causes for the war warning dispatch was, as stated, that negotiations had ceased, and that U.S.-Japanese relations were reaching a breaking point. Kimmel received no later message from the CNO canceling or modifying the November 27 war warning. As a result, when later press reports indicated that further conversations were continuing between the Japanese ambassadors and the State Department, the warning lost much of its force. Kimmel was asked about the last-minute December 7 Marshall-Stark dispatch stating that the Japanese ambassadors were presenting at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today what amounts to an ultimatum. Marshall had closed this dispatch by saying, Just what significance the hour set may have we do not know, but be on alert accordingly. This message did not reach Short and Kimmel until well after the attack. Devastated by the disaster, Kimmel had told the courier then that it wasn't of the slightest interest to me at that time, and I threw the thing in the wastebasket.
Asked what difference it would have made had he received the warning before the attack, Kimmel said two other factors were more significant. One was that an ultimatum was being delivered. The other was that the Japanese ambassador had instructions from his own government to deliver it at a specific time. Kimmel had been under orders to permit Japan to commit the first overt act. Technically, Kimmel said, I could not fire a shot at a Japanese fleet until after they had first shot at us. And also, technically, had I sent out patrol planes armed, I would have had to wait until the enemy fired at these patrol planes or committed some other overt act before I could do anything more than protest. The war warning dispatch had given Kimmel an excuse to do something that I had wanted to do for several months, to bomb submarine contacts. Kimmel considered his orders confusing. Just the day before the war warning, Stark had advised him that the Army had agreed to station 25 Army pursuit planes at Midway and a similar number at Wake. Short had received a War Department message along the same line asking him to relieve the Marine infantry units on the outlying islands with Army personnel. The proximity of these two messages in point of time to the war warning message lessened the force of the war warning message. Apparently, Kimmel said, CNO Stark was willing to temporarily upset to a considerable degree the defenses of Pearl Harbor as well as of the outlying bases to reinforce Wake and Midway, especially as the Navy was being asked to transport the planes, ground crews, essential spare parts, tools, and ammunition. Now, Kimmel said, the difficulties of reinforcing the outlying stations were undoubtedly well known to the Chief of Naval Operations, so that the War Department's message indicated a conflict betwixt the ideas of the War Department and the Navy Department at that time. Pearl Harbor, U.S. Fleet's Base, Vulnerable to Attack The NCI questioned Admiral James O. Richardson, Kimmel's predecessor as Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Fleet at Pearl Harbor. Richardson's testimony revealed that he had also encountered difficulties in obtaining men and material, in conducting reconnaissance, and in acquiring reliable information to guide him in planning, training, and preparing for defense. Richardson had also objected to basing the fleet at Pearl Harbor and had recommended that it be headquartered on the West Coast, except a detachment to remain in Pearl Harbor that could be adequately cared for by the facilities there. He said, The operating areas were not adequate, either for surface ships or air. There were no airfields adequate to care for the planes that were on carriers and could not be trained from the carriers because of the shortage of fuel. The only safe anchorage was Pearl Harbor, and it was entirely inadequate to handle the fleet. The distance from the West Coast increased the cost and the delay and the difficulty of maintaining and supplying the fleet, that there were no recreational facilities, that in time of peace the men and officers could not see any reason for remaining for such a long time away from home, that they were 2,000 miles nearer a possible enemy that we were unprepared to undertake offensive operations from Pearl Harbor, and that if we were involved in war, it would be necessary for us to return to the West Coast for stripping and mobilization and preparation for war, and that our presence in the Hawaiian area, when we were absolutely not trained, couldn't make any military people believe that we were planning offensive operations. In spite of Richardson's objections, Stark had directed him in May 1940 to announce to the press that the fleet would remain in Hawaiian waters at Richardson's request to carry out exercises that he had in mind. Asked if he knew why Stark had ordered the fleet held in Hawaii, Richardson replied, for the restraining influence it might exercise on the action of the Japanese nation. When Richardson was still commander of the U.S. fleet, he had been warned several times that war was possible. He had received an increasing number of warnings. They were not clear-cut. They were in personal letters, the general tenor being, I hope you will keep ever present in your mind the possibility that we may be at war tomorrow. The first warning had not come from the Navy Department, but rather from the War Department to the Commanding General of the Hawaiian Department, probably on June 19, 1940. 
When Richardson asked the chief of naval operations for information regarding it this warning, he received no reply. Kimmel agreed, in general, with Richardson as to the inadvisability of basing the fleet at Pearl Harbor, and he had discussed Richardson's objections with Stark. However, when he took command, he had not made any formal protest. He had accepted the situation. Later, he had pointed out the dangers that existed so long as the fleet was in Pearl Harbor. The single entrance might be blocked. It took a long time for the fleet to sortie, and the oil stocks were vulnerable. In view of these dangers, Kimmel had requested, repeatedly in correspondence, that he be kept informed of developments. In order to reach their own conclusions, the NCI went over much of the same material covered by the Roberts and Hart investigations. And it inquired about the radar facilities in Hawaii at the time of the attack. Commander William E.G. Taylor, U.S. Navy Reserve, radar expert on temporary duty with the Pacific Fleet, testified that the Army radar operators themselves were well-trained, although given the technology available at the time, it was impossible to decide whether the plots picked up by the radar station were a Japanese raid, an air group from one of our own carriers, or some planes being ferried in from the United States. The two men who had actually manned the radar station on Oahu on December 7, Joseph L. Lockard, radar operator, and George E. Elliott, told of having picked up a cluster of blips on the radar screen indicating an unusually large flight coming in from almost due north at 130-some miles. When they reported this to the information center, it was assumed these blips were from B-17 bombers being ferried to Hawaii from California, so their radar report was not passed along to higher authority. Admiral P.N.L. Bellinger, who on December 7th had been commander of Hawaiian Base Patrol Wing 2 in liaison with the Commandant of the 14th Naval District, testified, I was surprised to find that there in the Hawaiian Islands, an important naval advance outpost, we were operating on a shoestring, and the more I looked, the thinner the shoestring appeared to be. Moreover, according to a letter from NCO Stark, it appeared that there was no intention to replace the present obsolescent type of patrol planes in Patrol Wing 2 prior to Year 1, and that Patrol Wing 2 would practically be the last wing to be furnished new planes. This, together with the many existing deficiencies, led Bellinger to conclude that the Navy Department as a whole did not view the situation in the Pacific with alarm, or else is not taking steps in keeping with their views. There were by no means enough men and equipment to carry out the kind of continual long-range surveillance that would have been required to guard against a surprise attack. Naval Court of Inquiry Gains Access to Japanese Intercepts Finally, on August 28, the 20th day of the inquiry, Kimmel's efforts to have the Japanese intercepts introduced bore fruit. Bismeyer introduced 40 or 50 items selected from among the secret Japanese purple intercepts known as magic, received from November 26 to December 7, 1941. The intercepts were not actually entered into the text of the hearings, but would be available to the court for reference. They were extracted from the record and deposited with the Secretary of the Navy in the interest of national security and the successful prosecution of the war. Stark objected strenuously. Should the secret classification of the proceedings of this court be removed, or should a copy of those proceedings or information gained therefrom come into the possession of persons unfriendly to this country, while the present war with Japan is still in progress, these certain questions might suggest enough to the enemy to be definitely injurious to our present and continuing war effort. In due time, he said, Proceedings of this court and all of the evidence it might have secured will be a matter of open record available to the public. Therefore, as a responsible naval officer and as a former chief of naval operations, with knowledge of many of the intelligence activities of my subordinates, Stark urged that, that part of the record which would in any way identify material now held so secret that it has been denied this court, 
be taken out of the record and placed in a top-secret status, which will absolutely preclude any leak and reference thereto. Judge Advocate Bismeyer concurred. As a result, substantial blocks of NCI testimony referring to secret intelligence were deleted from the record and filed in a secure place with due reference to them, so that they may be seen by proper authorities on demand. Sherman was called back again to testify. Now that the magic intercepts had been introduced, he was somewhat more, although not much more, responsive. He did not remember some documents. His recollection of the message setting up the WINS code was quite hazy or extremely hazy. When asked about the December 6, 13-part Japanese reply to our November 26 proposal, he asserted without hesitation that he was not acquainted with the contents on the 6th of December 1941. Sherman did admit discussing some of the November 26 to December 7 messages with Admiral Stark. Sherman replies, Yes, sir, I did discuss the situation, but when it came down to pointing out certain messages, you ask if I made a particular point of discussing that particular message with the Admiral, and I just don't remember. There was a general feeling, Sherman said, that everybody recognized that there was a very tense situation, that diplomatic relations were in danger of being severed, but that a severance of diplomatic relations did not necessarily mean that war was going to result. He could not speak for others, but my own opinion was that Japan would go her own way in East Asia and would put up to the United States the onus of using force to oppose her. Captain Safford relates many warnings contained in Japanese intercepts. At the time of the attack, Captain L.F. Safford had been in charge of the security section of naval communications, which was concerned with security proper, that is, codes and ciphers, and surveillance over their use, also communications intelligence, CI. The name was used in peacetime, Safford explained, purely to mask the major mission of the section collecting information from enemy or prospective enemy nations through their communications. Most of the section's efforts at that time had been concentrated on Japan. Safford had been in charge of the intercept stations, direction finder exchanges, and decrypting units. Safford's testimony was forthright and factual. He identified the selected Japanese intercepts that had been made available to the NCI, asked what information, if any, had been received in the CI unit in Washington prior to the evening of December 6th, that indicated a break in relations between the United States and Japan. Safford discussed several intercepts other than those available to the NCI, with which he was familiar because of his duties in communications intelligence. He pointed out that on November 5, the Japanese set a November 25 deadline for the signing of the agreement the United States and Japanese ambassadors were working on. On November 14, the Japanese advised their Washington ambassador, should negotiations collapse, we will completely destroy British and American power in China. On November 16, Tokyo wired that the fate of our empire hangs by the slender thread of a few days. On November 22, Tokyo postponed the deadline to November 29, advising Nomura, there are reasons beyond your ability to guess why we wanted to settle Japanese-American relations by the 25th. But if within the next three or four days you can finish your conversations with the Americans, if the signing can be completed by the 29th, and in short, if everything can be finished, we have decided to wait until that date. Safford testified about other Japanese intercepts that gave still further indication of impending war. On December 1, we translated and read a November 30 dispatch from Tokyo to the Japanese ambassador in Berlin advising him, The conversations between Tokyo and Washington now stand ruptured. There is extreme danger that war may suddenly break out between the Anglo-Saxon nations and Japan through some clash of arms, and this war may come quicker than anyone dreams. Also on December 1, we read a long intercepted message from the Japanese ambassador in Berlin to Tokyo 
reporting that German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop had said, Should Japan become engaged in a war against the United States, Germany, of course, would join the war immediately. Tokyo also advised its Washington ambassadors on December 1 that London, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Manila had been instructed to abandon the use of code machines and to dispose of them. Tokyo advised Sinking, Changchun, Manchuria, on December 1. In view of various circumstances, it is our policy to cause Manchuria to participate in the war, in which event Manchuria will take the same steps towards England and America that this country will take in case war breaks out. On December 2, we translated and read a November 28 dispatch to Tokyo from Sinking. In the event that war breaks out with England and the United States, persons to be interned. A. British nationals, 339. B. American citizens, 81. D. Nationals of the Soviet or other third powers observed to be obnoxious characters with pro-British and American leanings are to be suitably taken care of. We had intercepted several messages to and from Tokyo and the Japanese consul in Honolulu concerning surveillance of the ships at Pearl Harbor. On December 3, we read a Tokyo message to Honolulu dated November 15, asking them to make your ships and harbor report irregular, but at a rate of twice a week. On December 4, we learned that on November 20, Tokyo had told the Consul General in Honolulu to investigate comprehensively the fleet bases in the neighborhood of the Hawaiian Military Reservation. Safford testified, on December 5, we learned that Tokyo had instructed the Consul in Honolulu on November 29. In the future, report even when there are no ship movements. During the hard inquiry, Safford had testified about the wind's code, but the Japanese intercepts had not then been available. Safford brought the subject up again. The Japanese message setting up the wind's code had been sent from Tokyo, Safford said, on November 19. It provided for inserting false weather reports, each containing a secret meaning, in the middle and at the end of the daily Japanese-language shortwave news broadcast permitting the Japanese government to reach her representatives around the world in the event it could no longer communicate in normal code. Safford testified that his first indication the code setup had been implemented and that a WINS code's execute had actually been picked up came on December 4 around 8 a.m. He had not seen a copy of the translation since about the 15th of December 1941. But to the best of his recollection, the translation had said, War with America, War with England, and Peace with Russia. This WINS Code Execute, the Navy Department Communications Intelligence Unit, had then regarded as definitely committing the Japanese government to war with the United States and Britain. Safford was asked, Captain, in a previous answer you stated that the copy of the intercept using the WINS Code which you saw on the morning of 4 December 1941 indicated a break in diplomatic relations between the United States and Japan and Japan and Great Britain and war between these nations. Was there anything in the establishment of the code originally which would indicate war as contrasted with a mere break in diplomatic relations? Safford said, The Dutch translation said war. The Japanese language is very vague and you can put a number of constructions or interpretations or translations on the same message. In very important documents, it was customary for the Army and Navy to make independent translations. The general facts would be alike. However, the people in communications intelligence and the people in signal intelligence service and the people in the far eastern section of naval intelligence as well as the director of naval intelligence considered that meant war, that it was a signal of execute for the Japanese war plans. Safford continued, Immediate distribution of the Winds Code Execute was made to the regular people before 9 a.m. that morning. It went to the director of naval intelligence, Wilkinson, the director of war plans, Turner, the Director of Naval Communications, Noyes, 
the Assistant Chief of Naval Operations, Ingersoll, and the Chief of Naval Operations, Stark. Copies were also sent to the State Department, the White House, and the War Department. And, Safford said, this message was included in the routine distribution which was made around noon each day. Safford's dogged search for the pre-attack intercepts located most of them, including the November 19 Winds Code setup message. However, in spite of repeated searches since mid-November 1943, he said he could find no trace of its implementation. Thus, doubt was cast on whether the Japanese had ever actually used a WINS code execute to communicate with their overseas officials. A great many messages and other material were misplaced during frequent moves consequent to the growth of the Naval Intelligence Organization, Safford said. Although he thought all the Japanese messages intercepted had been located or accounted for, except this WINS code execute. Even the Army's Signal Intelligence Service had failed to locate a single copy. This wins message, Safford said, is very conspicuous by its absence. He continued with his testimony about intercepts not given to the court. On November 26, 1941, the United States had rejected the Japanese proposal for a modus vivendi. Tension and uncertainty prevailed among top Washington officials. The State Department was on the qui vive. On November 28, when our State Department officials read the intercepts saying that Tokyo would reply in two or three days to what they called our humiliating proposal, the department realized the Japanese government was not going to agree to our terms. Japan's ambassadors were told by their government that negotiations will be de facto ruptured, but not to give the impression that the negotiations were broken off. Merely say to them, the U.S. officials, that you are awaiting instructions. Thus, those privy to the intercepts knew that, in the words of Stanley K. Hornbeck, Special Assistant to Secretary of State Hall, there would be no further negotiations between Japan and the United States. Safford testified that Tokyo serial number 901, the pilot message announcing the impending arrival of Tokyo's number 902, the 14-part reply, in English to the American note of November 26, 1941. Safford continued, On this weekend, December 6 through 7, we handled about three times the normal messages for a busy day. The most important was a very long 14-part message which contained the Japanese declaration of war. Up to this time, the language implied had been very courteous. Because of the harsh and abusive language used throughout this, the Japanese reply, there was no doubt in the minds of the men who were on watch at the time that the Japanese meant war and that this was their declaration. Safford was asked if he knew whether any information concerning the messages which you have outlined was sent to Kimmel or Block in Hawaii. Safford replies, the only information sent him was with reference to the Japanese destroying their code machines. Safford was then asked specifically about the message translated and read in Washington on December 1, in which Tokyo notified Berlin that war may suddenly break out between the Anglo-Saxon nations and Japan. The time of the breaking out of this war may come quicker than anyone dreams. Safford replies, that was not sent, neither to Kimmel nor Hart in Manila. Safford knew of one attempt to disseminate intercept information to Kimmel and Block. Commander McCollum, chief of the Far Eastern Section of Naval Intelligence, wrote up a long message about four or five or six pages long, approximately 500 words, giving a complete and brief and very forceful summary of developments up to that time, up to 4 December 1941. On the afternoon of December 4, Safford had been in the office of Admiral Lee Noyes, Director of Naval Communications, when Captain Theodore S. Wilkinson, Director of the Office of Naval Intelligence, came in with McCollum's message for Kimmel and gave it to Noyes to read. As Noyes finished a page, he handed it to Safford to read. According to his testimony, it was a very complete summary of what had happened. 
It began with the withdrawal of Japanese merchant ships from the Atlantic and Indian Oceans in July. It mentioned the evacuation of Japanese nationals from Malaya and the Netherlands East Indies. It included the fact that diplomatic relations were at an impasse, that neither party would yield, and it had a direct reference to the wind's message, and said that we consider that this was the signal of execute of the Japanese war plans, that we expected that war was imminent. According to Safford, McCollum had done a very thorough job. When Noyes finished reading, Wilkinson asked what he thought of it. Noyes responded, I think it's an insult to the intelligence of the commander-in-chief. According to Safford's testimony, Wilkinson disagreed, saying, Admiral Kimmel is a very busy man and may not see the picture as clearly as you and I do. I think it only fair to the commander-in-chief that he be given this information, and I am going to send it if I can get it released by the front office. Wilkinson then left, Safford presumed, to see Admiral Royal E. Ingersoll, assistant CNO, and to have the message released. Until November 1943, Safford had assumed that it had been sent, but it hadn't. CNO Admiral Stark's memory is poor. Admiral Stark was then called back to the witness stand and asked about specific messages. His November 24 message to the field commanders may well have been based upon or certainly had taken into consideration the Japanese intercepts. It had warned that a favorable outcome of negotiations with Japan very doubtful. A surprise aggressive movement in any direction including attack on the Philippines or Guam is a possibility. Moreover, the November 27 war warning message announced negotiations with Japan have ceased and an aggressive move by Japan is expected within the next few days against either the Philippines, Thai, or Kra Peninsula or possibly Borneo. In his messages to the field commanders, Stark had not mentioned any of the Japanese announced deadlines in his dispatches. He had become leery of dates. If I had set a date of the 25th, for example, he said, and nothing happened on the 25th, it would have, in my opinion, been bad ball. Again, if I had sent a date of the 29th and nothing had happened, again, it would probably have weakened the dispatch which we did send, and which, in my opinion, covered the situation. Judging by what is now perhaps hindsight, I am glad that I did not include the dates. Stark's memory appeared poor. He did not recall seeing the document mentioning the wind's code. According to him, the setup intercept translated November 28th added nothing to what I had already sent in the war warning dispatch of the 27th. He did not recall the Japanese ambassador's two-part dispatch of November 26th, summarizing for their government's benefit the U.S. proposal of that day. Nor did Stark remember seeing, in the form in which it was presented to the NCI, the Tokyo message of December 1 reporting that the situation continues to be increasingly critical, but that, to prevent the United States from becoming unduly suspicious, we, the Japanese government, had been advising the press. The negotiations are continuing. It may very well have been discussed at that time, but in any event, he said, it added nothing to what had been sent out formerly. Stark did not remember specifically the Tokyo requests for reports relative to ships in Pearl Harbor, nor did he recall Tokyo's request about ships by specific areas there. When asked if he remembered the message translated December 6, relative to the movements of American warships in Pearl Harbor, the course is taken and speeds maintained, he answered, no, I do not. Was any information concerning the ships in harbor messages sent by you to the Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet? Stark replies, no, I think not. And Stark did not recall seeing the pilot message intercept. Asked if he had seen or been made acquainted with the contents of Japan's 14-part reply before the attack, Stark said he had not seen it and didn't have the slightest recollection of having seen its contents. 
When asked later if he knew on December 6th that 13 parts were at the Navy Department, he replied, I did not know it. Many messages were received in Washington during the weeks before the attack on Pearl Harbor. It was physically impossible, Stark said, for him to have read or even have seen all the intercepts. He explained the Navy Department procedure for delivering classified information to him as CNO. Some I saw directly, some came to me with evaluations, sometimes some came to me with a general picture, sometimes orally, sometimes on a written memorandum. To take a single dispatch with a specific question, we may read into it now, in the light of hindsight, what we couldn't see then. Stark said, however, that he was in complete touch, at least that I assumed I was in complete touch, with the broad general trend. We were unquestionably continually talking things over. And, he said, he always aimed to keep the commanders in the field advised of their conclusions. We did not send them every specific document. The general tenor of Stark's remarks throughout his testimony was that he believed he had conveyed to Kimmel all the information he needed. Army Chief of Staff General Marshall's memory is poor. General Marshall appeared before the NCI. Since that tragedy occurred, he said, his whole attention had been turned to other things from that instant, and I didn't see a record or look at a thing until, as a matter of fact, the last day or two, trying to get something for this board. He had considered the pre-attack events simply water over the dam. Marshall testified at length about the problems of supplying men and material to the outlying military posts, Hawaii, the Philippines, Panama, and the Pacific Islands, while at the same time supporting Great Britain in the Atlantic and Africa, and continuing the training of men here at home. Our relations with the Japanese appeared to degenerate progressively through 1941, he said. In February, the Army and Navy departments decided to take all the women and children out of the Philippines. According to Marshall, in July and August, the situation became conspicuously critical. That was the time of the enforcement of the economic sanctions against Japan. He had thought for some time that war was imminent. He and Stark were trying to do all in our power here at home, with the State Department or otherwise, to try to delay this break to the last moment, because of our state of unpreparedness and because of our involvement in other parts of the world. Marshall continued, The information that we obtained from the Japanese actions in China, and particularly as they approached Indochina, as well as from our most secret sources, pointed to an evident intention to move into Thailand. It seemed to us that they were definitely going to take some action to cut the Burma Road, possibly closing the port of Rangoon. It seemed evident to us that Malaysia, the Malay Kra Peninsula, was very definitely threatened. It was plainly evident to us that they were accumulating supplies to go into Indochina and apparently were going into Thailand. We had no specific indications of their intentions regarding the Philippines other than those which automatically suggested themselves to us geographically. We had reports of movements of convoys down the coast of Indochina. Marshall recalled no indication of any Japanese plans in preparation for an assault on Hawaii. With respect to the intercepts, Marshall did not recall the Tokyo message setting November 29, 1941, as the deadline by which the Japanese ambassadors should complete their negotiations with the United States, although he was reasonably certain that he had seen or been informed about it. He had a very dim recollection of the WINS code setup intercept, but didn't recall any information about any part of the WINS code having been put into effect. Marshall had no definite recollection of being on the alert, expecting a Japanese reply to Hull's November 26 note to the Japanese. Asked whether, on Saturday, December 6, he had been acquainted with the fact that Japan had sent to our ambassadors 13 of 14 parts of a message or note to be delivered or transmitted at some later date to our Secretary of State. He replied, I do not recall that I was aware of such information. 
Was his failure to receive this information Saturday due to some failure in the echelons of command in transmitting the information to him? Marshall, I couldn't say offhand. It would depend on where I was, which I do not recall on that particular Saturday. I might have been quite a number of places. I do not know where I actually was. Question, and you have no recollection of where you were on Saturday night? Marshall replies, no, I haven't. Marshall stated flatly that until Sunday morning, December 7, he had received none of the 14-part Japanese reply. Marshall was willing to talk about Sunday morning, December 7. He had been horseback riding and had come into the War Department immediately after the ride. There he had found a long reply from the Japanese government. This was a most unusual message, he said. He read it through, naturally, carefully, and some parts of it several times to get the full significance of it. As I finished it, I found another page which was the message referring to 1 p.m. as the specified delivery time. Marshall then told about the last-minute message he had drafted, which he and Stark sent to the field commanders, advising them that the Japanese had been instructed to deliver their reply to Hull that day at precisely 1 p.m. Washington time. This message, coded and sent as a radiogram, left Washington about noon on December 7. It apparently went through without delay to the Philippines, Panama, San Francisco. But for some reason, possibly unusual air turbulence, Hawaii couldn't be raised by radio. So the dispatch to Hawaii was delayed. It was sent from San Francisco via Western Union. After 24 days of hearings, the NCI transferred its operations to Hawaii. Kimmel's pre-attack decisions and actions were generally defended by his fellow officers. It was recognized, however, that because of the shortages of men and material, there was inevitably a need for compromises between preparing for war and conducting surveillance. Navy Courier Commander Kramer's Memory Sharp and Clear By far the most significant testimony taken by the NCI at Pearl Harbor was that of Commander A.D. Kramer. Kramer, a Japanese-language scholar, had been stationed in Washington at the time of the attack. He had been attached to the Office of Naval Intelligence, Navy Department, Washington, on loan to OPG-20, Office of Naval Communications. He became head of the translation section of the Communications Security Group and was responsible for translating all decrypted traffic obtained from intercepts. Kramer's translation section had a staff of civilian civil service translators. He normally looked over the important messages and edited the translations before they were typed up. He translated only an occasional message himself. As a Navy courier also, Kramer had delivered many of the crucial decrypted and translated intercepts to Navy officials and others authorized to see them. Soon after Kimmel's counsels, Lavender and Hanafi arrived in Pearl Harbor. They encountered Kramer in the corridor as he was getting off an elevator. Kramer had only just arrived from duty in the Southwest Pacific. The two lawyers introduced themselves and said, There is probably one question, Commander Kramer, that you will be asked. Do you recall the wind's code? He said he did. Then, do you recall whether or not there was ever an execute of the wind's message? Kramer's answer was immediate. Yes, Higashi no Kazayame, East Wind Rain. Right like that, Hanafi reported later, without any hesitation. Here was a man just in from the Pacific, and he was that definitive about that formulation. When Kramer testified before the NCI, he was just as open and forthright in his testimony before the court, as he had been in responding to Hanafi and Lavender's informal questions. He described the procedure for processing and delivering the large volume of Japanese intercepts picked up in the weeks preceding the attack. He discussed specific dispatches, the Japanese instructions to their overseas diplomatic offices to destroy their codes, the ships in harbor messages, the winds code execute, and the December 6-7 through 7 delivery of the Japanese reply to the United States November 26 ultimatum. The greatest percentage of the traffic in the fall of 41, Kramer said, 
had to do with two main types of material. One was the Japanese-U.S. negotiations, and the other was the circuit from Berlin to Tokyo. These two categories of traffic were being followed with considerable interest and detail by all the senior addressees. They therefore wanted to see those things as promptly as possible. The skill of the U.S. cryptographers was such that, in spite of the daily adjustments made by the Japanese to their purple code machine, the U.S. cryptographers were often able to decrypt the Japanese intercept and have it translated an hour or two before the Japanese ambassador was to meet Secretary of State Hull to discuss it. To speed up the delivery of this material to Hull and our other top officials, Kramer said he didn't take time to write summaries during the final weeks, as he had done earlier, but would only indicate subject matter by attaching clips to the messages in the folders of most immediate interest. Although the intelligence gleaned from the intercepts was necessarily incomplete, Kramer noted many clues to Japan's intentions. The Japanese were negotiating for Thailand to enter the conflict on their side. On November 30, they reported to their German allies on the status of their negotiations with the United States. They asked their specially trained espionage man in the United States, Terasaki, mistakenly called Takahashi by Kramer, to leave the country. On December 6, Japanese ships had been sighted moving down the coast of French Indochina and rounded its southern tip approximately a day's run from Kotobaru, north of Singapore on the Malayan Peninsula near the border of Thailand. And the Japanese were very concerned about what action we were taking, where our fleet might be, what action we might take in case the Japs did make a move against the British. Kramer testified that the Japanese had wired their ambassador in Berlin. There is extreme danger that war may suddenly break out between the Anglo-Saxon nations and Japan through some clash of arms, and the time of the breaking out of this war may come quicker than anyone dreams. Kramer said he prepared a special paraphrased version of that for Mr. Roosevelt, which he retained. Otherwise, neither the State Department nor the White House were ever permitted to retain any of these dispatches. Kramer remembered the WINS code is set up clearly. On receipt of this particular message, on the instructions of the Director of Naval Communications, Admiral Noyes, Kramer prepared some cards with the expressions contained in this exhibit and the meaning. Higashi no Kazeame, East Wind Rain, Japan-United States Relations in Danger. Kitanokaze Komori, Japan-USSR Relations in Danger. Nishi no Kazehare, West Wind Clear, Japan-British Relations in Danger. Noise indicated that he had intended to leave these cards with certain senior officials of the Navy Department. According to Kramer, Noise arranged with Captain Safford, the head of Op-20G, the section of communications that handled this material, to have any message in this phraseology handled promptly by watch officers, not only in Op-20G, but through the regular watch officers of the communications section of the Navy Department. All that Op-20G organization were very much on the qui vive looking for that warning, Kramer testified. Kramer also remembered the WINS code execute. He said he was shown such a message by the GY watch officer, recognized it as being of this nature, walked with him to Captain Safford's office. When this WINS code execute came through on December 3 or 4, Captain Safford took the ball. Kramer did not handle its distribution himself because of the fact that this was a plain language message and because of the fact that special arrangements had been made to handle it. Kramer believes Safford took the message directly to Admiral Noy's office. He knew that Admiral Noyes was highly interested in that particular plain language code because of his previous instructions to me, Kramer, to make out these cards so that he could leave it with certain high officers and the secretary, all with a view of getting the word to those people promptly, whether it was any time of day or night. Kramer recalled the Japanese language words, Higashi no Kazayami. Their literal meaning, he said, is east, wind, rain. That is plain Japanese language. 
The sense of that, however, meant strained relations or a break in relations, possibly even implying war with a nation to the eastward, the United States. It could be inferred to imply as including an actual rupture of relations or possibly even more. Kramer continued, We knew they were planning something against Britain. We knew, too, that the Japs were very much aware of the fact that we were doing a great deal for the British in their war and working closely with them. In fact, it was almost a joint front as regards negotiations with the Japs. That note that we had handed the Japanese on 26 November had only been given to them after consultation, with Japanese knowledge, with the Dutch and Chinese as well as the British. Consequently, the Japs were very concerned about what action we were taking, where our fleet might be, what action we might take in case the Japs did make a move against the British. Kramer testified about relaying information to Stark and occasionally even discussing it with him. The majority of times, Kramer said, the folder of Japanese intercepts was left with his aide. Just how much Stark read, Kramer didn't know, but Kramer said he made a point of pointing out to his aide, his flag secretary, which were the things of most immediate importance or interest to the admiral. Occasionally, I would indicate that the admiral should see them at once or as soon as possible. At other times, when a particular hot item came in, I would request permission to see the admiral directly and would take it in. That happened quite frequently during the fall of 41. By frequently, Kramer meant two or three or four times a week. When asked whether Stark had seen one of the intercepted Tokyo-Honolulu ships in harbor messages, Kramer couldn't be positive whether the chief of naval operations actually saw it, but it would have been in a folder that was left in his office. Had Stark received the November 28 intercept stating that, with the Japanese government's reply in two or three days to the State Department's note of November 26, the negotiations will be de facto ruptured. This message was delivered, Kramer said, as all the negotiation messages were delivered to the Chief of Naval Operations. Kramer was as certain as he could be that all these important messages were delivered to the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations. Among the most important messages Kramer handled was this Japanese reply to our November 26, humiliating, according to the Japanese, proposal. On December 6, we intercepted the pilot message, announcing to the Japanese ambassadors that Tokyo would soon be sending their government's reply to the United States' November 26 proposal. This reply would be in English and would be very long, 14 parts. In the middle of the afternoon, Kramer became aware that this message was coming in. In guarded language, he explained to Admiral Wilkinson the nature of the message. Then he proceeded to the White House. From there, he went to Knox's apartment and Wilkinson's home. Kramer was unable to reach Stark that evening, although he believed Wilkinson was in touch with him or his aides. The next morning at the Navy Department, Kramer said he found the final part of Japan's reply, as well as one or two other messages. He put part 14 plus the other 13 parts and other new messages in a folder that he left in Stark's office at about 9 a.m. When Kramer returned to the Navy Department at approximately 10.20, a message directing the Japanese ambassadors in rather emphatic language that delivery of the Japanese 14-part reply be made to the Secretary of State at 13.00, 1 p.m., had been received. Also received was a series of other messages addressed to the Japanese ambassadors. One directed, final destruction of Japanese code still on hand. There was another message thanking the ambassador for his services, another addressed to the embassy staff, and one or two others of like nature. That material was delivered within 10 to 15 minutes to Admiral Stark's office. Kramer delivered the new intercepts to the State Department where Hull, Stimson, and Knox were meeting. In giving them to Hull's secretary, Kramer emphasized the 1 p.m. delivery time, 7.30 a.m. in Hawaii, fearing that Knox, a civilian, would miss its significance.
Admiral Turner, War Plans, had anticipated the attack. Admiral Noyes, Communications, Equivocates. The NCI stopped in San Francisco on their return trip from Hawaii to Washington to question Director of War Plans Admiral Richmond K. Turner and Director of Naval Communications Lee Noyes, both of whom had been stationed in Washington before the attack. Turner was asked what he knew about Stark's knowledge of the Japanese intercepts. He said he had discussed the super-secret decrypted message with Stark frequently, although they hadn't talked about the importance of transmitting their contents to Kimmel. As a matter of fact, Turner got the impression from what Stark said that Hawaii had facilities for decoding these messages, and that they were actually doing more of the decrypting in Pearl Harbor than we were in Washington. According to Turner, a war plan, Rainbow 3, was issued in January 1941 that envisaged a major attack, a major line of effort of Japan against the Philippines, and either Borneo or Malaya, ultimately both, depending on the direction of the strength that they had available. We considered that any attack of that nature would almost surely be accompanied by an attack on the Hawaiian Islands and the fleet of one or more forms of attack, air, submarine, fleet, or a combination of any of those. Turner testified that he had anticipated a Japanese-United States war even before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. He realized that British and United States relationships had become very close, although he knew nothing about what assurances were given by the president to Great Britain. He was convinced then that if Japan attacked Britain in the Far East, that the United States would immediately enter the war against Japan. Turner believed a certain section of the Japanese hierarchy were very anxious to keep the United States out of the war, that is, keep the United States from assisting Great Britain, but many of the moves that had been made against Japan during 1940 and 41 were made by the United States. When the Japanese assets in the United States were frozen by executive order in July 1941, Turner said he had expressed the opinion previously, and I again expressed it, that that would very definitely bring on war with Japan. There was no possibility of composing matters after that unless Japan made a complete backdown, which it was very apparent she was not going to do. Turner had helped draft the Navy's November 24 message warning the field commanders that a surprise aggressive movement by the Japanese in any direction including attack on Philippines or Guam is a possibility. By that time, he was personally convinced that they were going to go into Siam and also into the Malay Peninsula as the initial move and also attack the Philippines. Turner recalled discussing with Stark the substance of the U.S. note, the so-called ultimatum of November 26. According to Turner, Stark said at the time that there wasn't any possibility that Japan would accept it. Turner said, Mr. Hull kept Admiral Stark very well informed at all times. Their relations, Turner testified, were very close and cordial. So Stark's November 27 war warning message to Kimmel had been based on Hull's advice over the inter-office phone that to all intents and purposes, the thing was all over as far as negotiations were concerned. Turner wrote the November 27 war warning, discussed it with Stark, and it went out with Turner's recommendation. Turner was asked, why was it that the Hawaiian Islands were not included in that message as a possible objective for Japan? Turner replies, the objectives which were put in there were the strategic objectives. We did not believe that Japan would launch an amphibious attack against the Hawaiian Islands. However, Turner had felt an attack was coming and I was not at all surprised at the air attack. I knew our carriers were out and with the warnings which had been given, I felt we would give them a pretty bad beating before they got home. We had done what we could do to take precautions against the attack carrying through. The order was issued to deploy the fleet in a defensive deployment. According to Turner, that order meant to send scouting forces out of different kinds, to deploy submarines in threatened directions, 
to put the fleet to sea and in a covering position for the Hawaiian Islands and a supporting position for Midway. Turner said he believed that the December 7th 1 p.m. delivery time indicated an attack by the Japanese against the United States or Great Britain. Uncertainly, the Kara Peninsula, Turner said, a landing in Siam and attacks of one nature or another, air probably, on the Philippines, because we had scouting planes out there and some form of attack in Hawaii. Turner considered that an air attack against the Hawaiian Islands was one of the possibilities, even a probability. The question, were you surprised on the morning of the 7th when Japan made an air attack on the Hawaiian Islands? Turner replies, not in the least. At the time of the attack, Admiral Noyce had been serving in Washington as Director of Naval Communications. According to him, the handling of communication intelligence was a joint affair between Office of Naval Communications and the Office of Naval Intelligence, then headed by Wilkinson. Naval Communications was responsible for the mechanics of cryptoanalysis, including interception which could be done by naval means. As intelligence was developed, it was turned over to the Office of Naval Intelligence to handle according to their usual procedure. However, Noyce pointed out, the intercepts were not handled by the usual procedure as they were considered. Most secret, a much higher degree of secrecy than the ordinary designation secret, due to the fact that it is useless if any inkling reaches the enemy of the fact that we are able in any way to read his communications. Noise proved a reluctant witness. He avoided issues or limited his response to the obvious or irrelevant. When asked, were you acquainted with the contents of this, war warning, dispatch on or before 7 December 1941, he replied, these are my initials on the draft, those are my initials. The question, were you present at any conference or discussion regarding this dispatch prior to its having been released? Noise replies, Admiral Turner showed me that dispatch before he took it in for release. These are his initials. These are mine. It was prepared by Op 12, which was war plans. Noyes couldn't remember what had sparked the November 27 war warning that negotiations with Japan have ceased. It wasn't based on any information that came through me. Whatever the statement was, I assumed at the time it was correct. I hadn't any doubt it was correct. I will be glad to express an opinion. It is purely my recollection, a general recollection. It may not be correct. I think that at the time Nomura and Karusu stated that they were through. The United States hadn't accepted what they had proposed and negotiations were supposed to be over. Afterwards, they were reopened like all diplomatic situations. It was a case of bluff at the time, a diplomatic bluff in regard to the ceasing of negotiations. But that is purely my memory and that wasn't anything that I had any official knowledge of. The judge advocate tried to determine if there was some special reason for sending, on December 4, the dispatch directing the naval station Guam to destroy all secret and confidential publications. That was when Safford said the WINS code execute had been received. Noise replies, This was one of a series of dispatches sent, directing the destruction of all secret publications in the Pacific that could be spared in view of the imminence of war. I prepared it. It was sent on the 4th of December. This is my handwriting, and I prepared this dispatch, which is one of some others. Judge Advocate Bissmeyer pursued the matter. Imminence of war with what country, Admiral? Noyes replies, Japan. Bissmeyer pressed on. Why did Noyes believe a war with Japan was imminent? Noyes replies. The seriousness of the situation in the Pacific. I couldn't give you the exact items as they came up between the 27th, the date of the war warning, and the 4th. Things had gotten progressively worse. The judge advocate says, but you have not yet told us the developments between 27 November and 4 December 1941, which made you think this dispatch was necessary. Noyes replies, 
No, I don't think I could give you the exact sequence of events between those two dates. Ambassador Nomura and I expect Ambassador Caruso were in Washington, and the negotiations were apparently not proceeding well. There was no specific event that occurred on the morning of the 4th that caused me to send this dispatch. When Bismeyer asked Noyes whether he had seen the Winscoat setup intercept on or after November 28, Noyes said he had and that he took steps to get immediate notice from our intercept stations to cover this point. This response was consistent with Kramer's testimony that Noyes had had cards made up with the Winscoat words on them. However, when asked later about the cards, Noyes couldn't say. Had Noyes known before the attack of the Secretary of State's November 26 proposal to the Japanese? Noyes replies, I couldn't say whether I was familiar with this particular paper or not. That is three years ago. I can't say on what day. This traffic which has my initials and things that I prepared I am glad to testify to, but I cannot say exactly when I saw or if I did see many of these hundreds of dispatches. The question, we have testimony before this court, Admiral, from subordinates who were in your office as of this period immediately preceding 7 December 1941 that all personnel were on the alert for the receipt of some very important or a very important answer from the Japanese government. Do you have any knowledge of this situation? Noise replies, From the time of the 27th of November, gradually getting more acute, we were making every effort to obtain any information possible. I couldn't say that we expected any particular message. The question, But were you expecting any information of importance immediately preceding 7 December 1941 from the Japanese government? Noise replies, I might say we were hoping, I couldn't say we were expecting. Had Noyes seen or been informed about parts 1 to 13 of the Japanese reply intercepted, decoded, and delivered to top Washington officials during the evening of December 6? He said he had not seen or been informed of the subject matter before December 7. He did not know where he was after working hours on the night of December 6, nor did he know whether he went back to the office or stayed home. The question but your present recollection is that you have no knowledge of having seen that document, parts 1 to 13, on the night of 6 December 1941. Noyes replies, that is my recollection. Asked about part 14, he replied, this message wasn't translated until the 7th of December. The question, had you ever been informed of it at any time, and if so, when? Noyes replies, I will have to say I don't remember. Noyes said he did not see the 1 p.m. message instructing the Japanese ambassadors to deliver their government's reply to the Secretary of State at that time until after 7 December. Asked if the Navy had facilities in Pearl Harbor for intercepting information in the Purple Code, which was usually sent by cable, Noyes replied, at the time there were no legal facilities in Pearl Harbor for intercepting cable. The question, do I understand your answer to mean that they were not receiving these cable dispatches transmitted in the Purple Code? Noise replies, I should say they probably were not. The question, did you ever inform the chief of the War Plans Division, Captain Turner, that the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet was decrypting intelligence information of a character similar to what you were receiving in the Navy Department? Noise replies, no. When Noise was asked whether any of the code words as set out in Document 15, the Winds Code Setup Message, were received in the Navy Department, either in Japanese or in plain English, that is, whether there had been a wins code execute, he replied, they were not. Testimony had been presented before this court to the effect that the execution of the wins code system was received and that a thorough search in the Navy Department files had failed to reveal a copy of the execution signal. Noise was asked about that. Would the Director of Naval Communications files be the normal place in which that record would be kept? Noise replies, if it was received by naval means, yes. 
otherwise the Office of Naval Intelligence. Question. The testimony before this court was that it had been received by naval intercepting means, and therefore the record of this message would naturally be kept in the files of the Director of Naval Communications, would it not? Noyes replies, yes. Can you explain why this document is missing from the files of the Director of Naval Communications? Noyes replies, I don't think that any such message was received by naval means. The question, then at no time did you learn from anyone of the execution of the wind's message in any form, and at no time did you tell anyone of the execution in any form of the wind's message. Is that the way you want to leave your testimony on that subject? Noyes replies, that is right, yes. To the best of my remembrance, no execution of the so-called wind's message was finally received. At the conclusion of Noy's questioning, he apologized for not having been able to answer the questions more specifically, but he reminded the court it had been three years since he had handled any of these messages, and there had been thousands of them. September 21, 1944, found the NCI back in Washington with only a few more witnesses to be heard. Information on Ship Movements At the request of Stark, 16 messages between Tokyo and Manila, Tokyo and Seattle, Tokyo and Singapore, and Tokyo and San Francisco, concerning the movements of U.S. ships into and out of those harbors, were introduced into the record. Admiral Joseph R. Redman, Assistant Director of Communications, was asked if there were other similar reports to Tokyo. Redman replied, Why the general tenor of the Japanese traffic was in a searching expedition all over the world as to the movements not only in United States ports, but also in those of foreign countries. It had been going on for some time. During the several months preceding December 1941, it was intensified. Redmond admitted that the November 16 Honolulu to Tokyo message concerning the location of ships in Pearl Harbor had been more specific than the other Japanese messages he had seen reporting on ship movements, even more specific than any answer from Manila, because this apparently referred to some particular chart upon which he was reporting. Redmond was asked, Can you give the court any reasons why that diplomatic traffic should not have been transmitted to all commanders in the Pacific, including the coastal frontier commanders on the Pacific coast. After some discussion of the difficulty of retaining security if messages were recorded word for word, or if they were sent by airmail, Redmond finally admitted that the information could have been sent by courier, but a courier wasn't used, or it could have been briefed, encoded, and then sent with little threat to security, but that hadn't been done either. Kimmel Reviews Pre-Attack Pearl Harbor Situation Admiral Kimmel said he had received none of the secret Japanese intercepts introduced to the NCI that had been received in Washington between November 1 and December 7, 1941. He had, of course, received the November 27 war warning dispatch. In response to that, on November 30, he set forth in a memorandum the action which we would take in case hostility should suddenly break out. He thought that it was well to be prepared and ready to take action immediately. These plans were revised as necessary from time to time, and on December 5, a new memorandum was prepared and approved and put in the hands of the staff duty officer, so that he would know exactly what to do in case of an emergency. Kimmel reviewed again the situation at Pearl Harbor in the months preceding the attack. During the months preceding the attack, Stark sent Kimmel a number of rather general warnings concerning the Japanese threat in the Pacific. In Washington, tension was building toward the end of November. Many Japanese messages were being intercepted, decrypted, and translated every day, offered clues to the thinking of the Tokyo government. Those privy to this ultra-secret magic were well aware that the Japanese were planning some kind of aggressive action. 
Yet, in spite of Kimmel's frequent requests to Stark for information, the actual warning sent to Kimmel revealed little of this growing sense of emergency. In Hawaii, Kimmel put into effect all the security measures that I thought we could put into effect and still continue the training at anywhere near a satisfactory condition. The war warning of November 27, as well as the warning he had received earlier, Kimmel said, followed a pattern that had continued for some time. He felt that before hostilities came that there would be additional information, that we would get something more definite. When the attack actually came without his having heard anything more specific, he was inclined to blame myself for not having been much smarter than I was. But when I found some time later that the information was in fact available in the Navy Department, that the information which, if it had been given me, would have changed my attitude and would have changed the dispositions, I ceased to blame myself so much. Hindsight is always better than foresight. Yet Kimmel believed that if he had known what was in the November 26 State Department note to the Japanese government, and that the Navy Department thought this note would prove entirely unacceptable to the Japanese government, his outlook would have been affected very considerably. Moreover, the ships in harbor messages inquiring as to the disposition of ships inside Pearl Harbor itself, wanting to know which ones were in areas, the report of the Japanese consul, giving in detail the courses taken by those in the harbor would have indicated to me that they, the Japanese, were not only interested in the ships that were in the Pearl Harbor area, but that they were interested in exactly where they were in Pearl Harbor proper. There were only two effective forms of attack against ships in Pearl Harbor itself. One would be for submarines actually to enter the harbor. At that time, Kimmel would have discounted largely that possibility because he didn't know they had midget submarines. He would also have discounted the possibility of an aircraft torpedo attack. He would have considered that about the only thing that could get in would be a bombing attack. Therefore, if he had known about the Japanese messages asking about the specific locations of ships in the harbor, he would have concluded, well, they probably are going to make an air bombing raid here. Kimmel could not see any other conclusion you can draw from it unless you put it down to Japanese stupidity in wanting all this information. And Kimmel did not think they were so stupid. With respect to the Winds Code message, Kimmel said he did not want to appear to be so wise now that everything has happened. But still, he said, he had a right to an opinion. The definite fact that Japan, at least, was going to break off diplomatic relations and, at most, was going to war with us would have had a very great effect on me and all my advisors. That would have been something definite. What would Kimmel have done if he had been privy to the intelligence available in the secret intercepts that had been introduced to the NCI? He said that was a very difficult question to answer after the fact. However, he was sure he would at least have alerted all shore-going activities in the Hawaiian Islands, including the Army. He would have, in all probability, had the fleet put to sea, probably 300 miles west of Oahu, in an intercepting position for any attacking force that would have come either to the northward or to the southward. He couldn't put them too far away, for he had to consider their fueling, but he would have put them just far enough so they couldn't be readily located. He was torn betwixt a desire for the security of the fleet and for preparations to make the initial moves in case of war with Japan. Any fleet which sits and waits to be attacked, Kimmel added, labors under an enormous handicap. However, he thought it fair to say that he would have alerted everything on shore to its maximum that could be maintained over a long period. He would have instituted the reconnaissance to the best of our ability, and I would have had the fleet put to sea. Kimmel added, however, that it was well within the realm of possibility that had I taken the fleet to sea, the losses could have been greater than they actually were from submarine and air attack in the harbor.
However, you must also realize, he said, that you presuppose then that they would have found our fleet and they would have been able to deliver an attack. It is not impossible that, had the fleet gone to sea, the Japanese would not have attacked at that time at all. They might have deferred the attack. We all know how difficult it is to locate a fleet at sea, particularly if they do not want to be located. All this is in the realm of conjecture, but I think it is fair to say that there are some things to be said for keeping the fleet in port, and the only change we would make would be to go to a little higher state of alert than we had at that time. The efficiency of the Japanese Air Force was, Kimmel thought, a surprise to the Navy Department as well as to the people in Hawaii. We had on the ships no adequate anti-aircraft defense, nor did we have sufficient patrol planes to maintain an adequate patrol over a long period of time. A patrol out to 300 miles or less is of very doubtful value, Kimmel said, particularly against air raid. It was almost useless, he added. Kimmel wanted it clearly understood that giving the orders to the planes was his responsibility. He had used them to protect operating areas and in training and preparation for war. He believed that, by my doing so, we were employing them to the very best advantage. Of course, had the patrol planes plus all the army bombers been out on search, we would have not had any striking force left. To detect a carrier force, it was necessary to know that it was on the way and also its approximate time of arrival at a certain place. To confirm the difficulty of locating an incoming force, Kimmel mentioned several attacks just within the previous three or four weeks, when our own Navy has gone in and made attacks on Japanese-held positions at Saipan, Palau, and Manila. In each case, our planes effected what amounts to a tactical surprise, and this in spite of the fact that the Japanese should have been on the alert for we had been at war for nearly three years. What is so often overlooked in connection with this Pearl Harbor affair is that we were still at peace and still conducting conversations. We were still in the peace psychology, and I myself was affected by it just like everybody else. Navy Court of Inquiry Report The court completed taking testimony on September 27 and issued its report on October 19, 1944. In the course of 19 Findings of Facts, it reviewed the information revealed in the NCI's nine and a half weeks of hearing, July 24 to September 27. The NCI concluded that Admiral Kimmel's decision, made after receiving the dispatch of 24 November, to continue preparations of the Pacific Fleet for war, was sound in the light of the information then available to him. Although the attack of 7 December came as a surprise, there were good grounds for the belief on the part of high officials in the state, War and Navy departments, and on the part of the Army and Navy in the Hawaiian area, that hostilities would begin in the Far East rather than elsewhere, and that the same considerations which influence the sentiment of the authorities in Washington in this respect support the interpretation which Admiral Kimmel placed upon the war warning message of 27 November to the effect that this message directed attention away from Pearl Harbor rather than toward it. The court is of the opinion that Admiral Harold R. Stark failed to display the sound judgment expected of him in that he did not transmit to Admiral Kimmel, Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet, during the very critical period 26 November to 7 December, important information which he had regarding the Japanese situation, and especially in that on the morning of 7 December 1941. He did not transmit immediately the fact that a message had been received which appeared to indicate that a break in diplomatic relations was imminent and that an attack in the Hawaiian area might be expected soon. Finally, based upon the facts established, the court is of the opinion that no offenses have been committed nor serious blame incurred on the part of any person or persons in the Naval Service. The report was promptly presented to the Secretary of the Navy Forestall. 
The presidential election was less than three weeks off. Roosevelt was running against Republican candidate Thomas E. Dewey for an unprecedented fourth term. The war was still going on. The report dealt with an extremely sensitive topic, the reading of the Japanese codes that were still helping the United States in its struggle against Japan. Moreover, it had exonerated Kimmel, who had been blamed for the extent of the catastrophe, and hastened into retirement on the basis of the findings of the presidentially blessed Roberts Commission. Then, too, the NCI's criticism of Stark, a close friend and advisor of FDR's, could prove dangerous in the political campaign. Forrestal faced a difficult question. What should he do? Chapter 24. 1944, A Political Year In politics, as in war, crisis is the normal state of affairs. In 1944, with the nation at war, the Germans and the Japanese were doing their utmost to create crises for the United States forces overseas. The people of this country, united in the war effort, were working hard. Our factories were booming. Weapons, ships, and planes were coming off assembly lines at unprecedented rates. Yet politics doesn't take time off for war. Although the people were patriotic and united in the national war effort, they were divided politically between pro-administration Democrats and anti-administration Republicans. And in politics, one can be sure of one thing. Both parties will try to create crises for the other. The Presidential Nominations On June 26, the Republican National Convention meeting in Chicago nominated as its presidential candidate the vigorous 42-year-old Thomas E. Dewey, a lawyer and former district attorney for New York County, who had won acclaim as a crime buster, had put mob leaders Legs Diamond and Lucky Luciano behind bars, and had been elected, and was then serving as governor of the state of New York. President Roosevelt had already broken the traditional two-term limit by running for a third term in 1940. Although many people suspected he would run in 1944, even his closest associates did not know for sure. Finally, on July 11, with the Democratic Convention little more than a week away, July 19 through 21, he answered the question reporters had been asking. He read to them from a letter he had written the national chairman of the Democratic Committee, Robert E. Hannigan. I do not want to run. All that is within me cries out to go back to my home on the Hudson River to avoid public responsibilities. But, he continued, as a good soldier, I will accept and serve in this office if I am so ordered by the commander-in-chief of us all, the sovereign people of the United States. It was no surprise, therefore, that Roosevelt was nominated on July 20 to run on the Democratic ticket for a fourth term. FDR was 62 years old. Although he had lost the use of his legs in 1921 through infantile paralysis, he had always been vigorous, healthy, and resilient. By 1944, however, he was showing the strain of almost 12 years of heavy responsibility as the wartime commander-in-chief. He looked thin and gaunt. His doctors insisted that he reduce his hours of work and get plenty of rest. But FDR and his political advisors did everything they could to make him appear well and vigorous. Roosevelt took several long trips during the campaign. Travel for President Roosevelt was not strenuous as it was for common folks. Rather, it was a time of rest and relaxation on trains in comfortable private cars, or aboard luxurious ships in fresh ocean air and sunshine. The Democrats' Dilemma In political campaigns, both parties expect crises. However, FDR and his administration faced two potential crises of which the American people were completely unaware. Both concerned the super-secret Japanese magic intercepts. In the first place, the administration feared the reaction of the voters if they learned at this juncture, in the middle of the war, that Washington officials had been intercepting, deciphering, and reading secret Japanese messages as early as 1940, 
and that therefore they had known a great deal about Japanese intentions before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Why then, the people would ask, hadn't Washington officials adequately alerted the Hawaiian commanders? Why hadn't they seen to it that the fleet at Pearl Harbor was better provided with the information, men, weapons, and planes needed to resist attack? After having lost thousands of loved ones at Pearl Harbor, and after having lived through almost three years of war, how would the voters feel toward the president and his fellow Democrats? Would they feel revulsion at having been deceived and betrayed? And would they express that revulsion at the ballot box in the coming election? Would they vote for the Republican candidate and against FDR? In the second place, the administration feared the consequences for the war effort. What if the Japanese learned that the United States was able to decipher some of Japan's super-secret codes? Codes she was still using to send messages to her diplomatic and military personnel throughout the world. If Japan realized that the United States was continuing to read many of her most private communications, she would change her codes immediately. Our armed forces would lose a valuable source of intelligence, and the fighting and killing would be prolonged. Republican Presidential Candidate Dewey Silenced The Republican Party had learned that U.S. cryptographers had deciphered some Japanese codes and had been reading some Japanese intercepts since before Pearl Harbor. As research director for the National Republican Party in 1944, I learned that Dewey wanted to make a speech on Pearl Harbor and Washington's knowledge of the Japanese intercepts. When Army Chief of Staff Marshall got wind of this, he considered this matter of such a highly secret nature that he felt compelled to prevent Dewey from speaking on the subject. On September 25, he wrote a top-secret letter for Mr. Dewey's eyes only and had his emissary, Colonel Carter Clark, hand deliver it to Dewey, then on the campaign trail in Oklahoma. Marshall wrote Dewey that he was contacting him without the knowledge of any other person except Admiral King, who concurs, because we are approaching a grave dilemma in the political reactions of Congress regarding Pearl Harbor. What I have to tell you below is of such highly secret nature that I feel compelled to ask you either to accept it on the basis of your not communicating its contents to any other person and returning this letter or not reading any further and returning the letter to the bearer. Dewey read no further before handing the letter back to Clark. He felt he could not accept the proviso that he not communicate its contents to any other person. Marshall discussed the situation with Clark and General Bissell, head of Army Intelligence. They concluded that the matter was so important that we must make it a matter of record. So Marshall again sent Clark, traveling in civvies, to see Dewey, by then in Albany. Clark phoned Marshall from Dewey's office, saying Dewey was unwilling to read the letter unless he could share the information with at least one advisor and be permitted to retain the letter in his files. Marshall agreed. Dewey then read the letter. Marshall wrote that he would have preferred to talk to you in person, but I could not devise a method that would not be subject to press and radio reactions as to why the Chief of Staff of the Army would be seeking an interview with you at this particular moment. The most vital evidence in the Pearl Harbor matter consists of our intercepts of the Japanese diplomatic communications. Over a period of several years, Marshall wrote, Our cryptograph people had succeeded in reproducing a copy of the Japanese encoding machine so that we could decipher the Japanese diplomatic code. The Japanese were still using the same code, and this source was providing us with a great deal of valuable information. It had helped us to win victories at Midway in the Aleutians. It told us of movements of Japanese convoys and helped us in raiding Japanese shipping. Marshall told also of the serious consequences when the OSS had secretly searched the Japanese embassy in Portugal. As a result of that incident, the Japanese had changed their military code all over the world, thus depriving us of an invaluable source of information. 
You will understand from the foregoing the utterly tragic consequences of the present political debates regarding Pearl Harbor, disclosed to the enemy, German or Jap, any suspicion of the vital sources of information we possess. As a patriotic American, Dewey honored this request. Shortly after this, Republican Senator Homer Ferguson of Michigan, unaware of the reason for Dewey's silence, also scheduled a speech on the pre-war reading of the Japanese codes. Dewey called Ferguson to Albany and asked him not to say anything about it. There was no further reference to the matter during the political campaign. One crisis for the administration was safely over, but another loomed. APHB and NCI reports completed two weeks before November 7 election. While the NCI and APHB investigations were going on, FDR became worried for fear there would be an adverse report by the Grunert Committee, APHB, just before the election. Stimson was worried too. The forces in Congress which had led to the inquiry were largely political, he said, and were trying to embarrass the president. So Stimson had spent considerable time preparing for his appearance before the board in the hope of showing how baseless the charges are that we people in Washington were negligent in any way. FDR wondered whether it, the APHB, could not be asked to adjourn its hearings until after election. On October 13, Stimson conferred with the Navy as to what we should do in regard to the two Pearl Harbor boards. Whether or not they tried to persuade the Grunert board to discontinue its hearings temporarily is immaterial. It didn't. The NCI and the APHB reports were submitted to Navy Secretary Forrestal and Secretary of War Stimson on October 19 and 20, respectively, only a couple of weeks before the November 7 election. As FDR and Stimson had feared, the two reports shifted the burden of blame from Pearl Harbor to Washington. The NCI effectively absolved Kimmel of responsibility by concluding that the steps he took had been adequate and effective, that his action in ordering that no routine long-range reconnaissance be undertaken was sound, and that his decision to continue preparations of the Pacific Fleet for war was sound in the light of the information then available to him. Then, after letting Kimmel off the hook, the NCI had charged Chief of Naval Operations Stark with having failed to display the sound judgment expected of him in that he did not transmit to Admiral Kimmel important information which he had regarding the Japanese situation. The APHB's allegations against General Marshall, who is, in Stimson's words, invaluable in the war, disturbed Stimson especially. To be sure, the APHB had placed a share of the blame on Short's failure adequately to alert his command for war. However, it criticized Washington officials severely, Secretary of State Hall for having issued the ultimatum to the Japanese on November 26, in spite of the efforts of the War and Navy Departments to gain time for preparations for war. Also, Marshall and Garrow for not having kept short adequately informed. On receipt of these reports, the two secretaries faced a dilemma. To make the reports public would reveal to the Japanese that we had broken their codes. To refuse to make them public would lead people to think the administration had something to hide, especially in view of the rumors circulating that the reports would absolve the two Pearl Harbor commanders of blame and shift the responsibility to Washington. The immediate response of the secretaries was to refuse to release the reports at that time. Parts of both reports were classified secret and top secret, so they pleaded reasons of security. Forrestal acknowledged receipt of the NCI report to Admiral Orrin G. Murfin, President of the Naval Court. He would personally examine the report and record of the Naval Court after they had been examined and approved by the Judge Advocate of the Navy as to legal form. He would consult also with Admiral Ernest J. King, Commander-in-Chief of the United States Fleet and Chief of Naval Operations, 
to ascertain how much of this material sufficiently affected present military operations as to merit a security classification. In the meantime, pending inspection, the report would not be made available to the public. The War Department proposed a commission to rule on the top-secret issue. Forrestal and Stimson consult Army and Navy legal experts. Even as Forrestal was announcing that the NCI report would not be made public, information about it was being leaked. The same New York Times story that reported Forrestal's intention to keep the report confidential told of reports that had come from some quarters in recent months and sometimes with a political background that revelation of all details of the Pearl Harbor attack would clear Rear Admiral Husband E. Kimmel and Lieutenant General Walter C. Short of suspicion and, on the other hand, cast discredit on the administration. This in direct contradiction to the findings of the pro-administration Roberts Commission. Thus, the release of secret or top-secret information might not only endanger the military, but if the reports really did clear Kimmel and Short and cast discredit on the administration, could prove a serious embarrassment to the administration in the coming presidential election. Forrestal asked the opinion of the Navy Senior Legal Officer, Judge Advocate General T.L. Gatch, and of Commander-in-Chief Atlantic Fleet, King. The Army consulted its top legal advisor, Judge Advocate Major General Myron C. Kramer, who wrote a long memorandum for the Secretary of War. These men concluded that certain portions of the report should not be released in any case. Kramer, Gatch, and King all went over the APHB and NCI hearings and reports. In reporting to Forrestal and Stimson, they held that the two boards had been in error in maintaining that insufficient information had been supplied the Hawaiian commanders. In commenting on the APHB report, Kramer referred to Marshall's testimony to the effect that the scrambler telephone was not considered because it would have been too time-consuming to serve as a rapid and reliable means for transmitting an urgent warning. As to General Marshall, Kramer wrote, the conclusions of the board are unjustified and erroneous. And short, Kramer held, had been adequately advised of the imminent rupture in diplomatic relations between the United States and Japan, of the imminence of war, of the probable momentary outbreak of hostilities by Japan against the United States, and of the possibility of sabotage and espionage. Short's failure stemmed from a mistake of judgment on his part. He had adopted wholeheartedly what was apparently the viewpoint of the Navy, namely that there was literally no chance of a surprise air attack on Pearl Harbor. According to King, Kimmel could and should have judged more accurately the gravity of the danger to which the Hawaiian Islands were exposed. Concerning the NCI report, King warned that if the necessary deletions were made, a disjointed picture would be presented, full of unexplained gaps, which would lead to a demand of Congress and by the press for more information on the ground that the part made public was incomplete and that withholding of any information is indicative of a desire on the part of the Navy to whitewash high naval officers. A situation such as this might well lead to discussions that would inadvertently disclose just the information that we feel is vital to keep secret. King pointed out that the law calling for the NCI does not obligate the Secretary of the Navy to make any public statement of what the Court of Inquiry has ascertained. Therefore, he concluded, there is no necessity for making anything public. Stimson worried a great deal about how to handle the APHB report. He resented Congress for having quite unnecessarily thrown on him this wretched piece of labor, the most wearing and rasping thing that I have had in the four years that I have been here. He referred to this task in his diary variously as his cross and as the miserable Pearl Harbor business. 
He had had to spend his time stopping rat holes because of the confounded Pearl Harbor case. The analysis of the APHB by Kramer and of the NCI by Gatch and King provided Stimson and Forrestal with a the rationale they needed to reverse the APHB and NCI findings, to once more place the blame for the extent of the disaster on the Hawaiian commanders, and to vindicate the acts of Washington officials. Stimson considered Kramer's analysis a very fine job, really a humdinger, a very good help. He handled the Pearl Harbor board without gloves and had analyzed very carefully and yet fairly all their mistakes. Sooner or later, of course, official statements about the Army and Navy reports would have to be issued. But from the point of view of the secretaries, later was better than sooner. They agonized for weeks over how to word their releases. They consulted. They composed several draft statements. And they agreed that their announcements should be coordinated and issued simultaneously. But they disagreed as to how frank they should be. Navy Secretary Forrestal, apparently under the influence of King, leaned toward making no mention at all of any NCI criticisms of Washington officials. Secretary of War Stimson felt that he should at least acknowledge that the APHB had criticized Washington officials, including Marshall. But Stimson expected to explain, at the time of making such an acknowledgement, that the charges had not been justified. However, his recommendation for acknowledging the APHB criticism of Marshall met opposition in the War Department. Stimson reasoned that, if we do not take the initiative ourselves and publish the fact that Marshall has been criticized at the same time with a vindication of it, why it will leak out in a much more disadvantageous way from the enemies who are already in possession of the secret. According to Stimson, Marshall, who has most to lose by the publicity which would come out of it, favored Stimson's version as altogether the wisest thing. Unfinished Army and Navy Business Neither the Army nor the Navy was willing to let the findings of the Army Pearl Harbor Board and Navy Court of Inquiry stand as the final word. They both authorized follow-up in-service investigations. On the oral instructions of Marshall, Carter Clark was asked to explore the manner in which top-secret communications were handled. Stimson directed Major Henry C. Clausen to investigate unexplored leads in Pearl Harbor investigation, and Admiral Ken H. Hewitt was asked to conduct further investigation of facts pertinent to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stimson and Forrestal's stalling tactics succeeded. No releases about the reports were issued before the election. On November 7, FDR won re-election for a fourth term. FDR decides how and when to release NCI and APHB reports. The president was to cast the decisive vote on how the NCI and APHB reports were to be presented to the press. Finally, on November 21, Stimson had a chance to talk with FDR and to show him his draft announcement about the Army's Pearl Harbor report. The president had evidently already seen and approved of Forrestal's proposed non-committal release. FDR thought the less said the better. Stimson said the War Department could not afford to go ahead and be frank when the Navy was not being frank. And he thought the best hope for keeping off a congressional investigation was to make such a disclosure as I propose to do. Stimson showed Roosevelt the conclusions of the Gronert Board, and FDR read them carefully. When he saw the names of the persons the Army Board had criticized, he said, Why, this is wicked. This is wicked. FDR then read Stimson's paper and praised it. But he still adhered to his view that the safer plan was to follow as nearly as possible the Forrestal method. We must take every step against Congress getting hold of the papers and the facts. We must refuse to make the reports public, he said. They should be sealed up and our opinions put in with them 
and then a notice made that they should only be opened on a joint resolution of both houses of Congress, approved by the President after the war. This resolution, FDR said, should say that that was in the public interest. In spite of the fact that no news release concerning the Navy Court's conclusions had as yet been issued, the New York Times of November 26, 1944 reported that the Army and Navy Journal had suggested that as a result of the recent Naval Court of Inquiry, Rear Admiral Husband E. Kimmel might never be court-martialed for the Pearl Harbor disaster and that his Army associate at Hawaii, Major General Short, would be vindicated. The Times quoted the journal as saying, There will be no court-martial for Admiral Kimmel under the findings of the Court of Inquiry headed by Admiral Murfin, according to gossip in well-informed Washington circles. As to the Army Board, which simultaneously investigated the disaster, it also is said to support the findings of the Roberts Board in the matter of the failure of officers of the War Department to comment to General Short upon the measures he had reported he took to guard the base in accordance with the instructions given him. In the unlikely case that General Short should be court-martialed, his friends are convinced that he would be vindicated. Finally, on November 30, after Stimson and Forrestal had made some further revisions, the President approved their respective statements and authorized their release. Stimson and Forrestal planned to issue them simultaneously within the next two or three days. On December 1, the Army and Navy released to the public their statements on the findings of the APHB and NCI investigations. According to the New York Times, December 2, 1944, Stimson and Forrestal revealed that they had found no evidence to justify a court-martial of Major General Walter C. Short and Rear Admiral Husband E. Kimmel. Both secretaries were careful to speak on the evidence now available and promised further investigation to obtain every bit of testimony. On the ground of national security, both secretaries refused to make the real story of Pearl Harbor public until the war had ended. Mr. Stimson considered it highly prejudicial to war prosecution and the safety of American lives to disclose it beforehand. The Navy Department said tersely that the record of the Court of Inquiry will not be made public while the war continued. In their individual statements, Secretary Stimson and Forrestal conceded errors on the part of unnamed officers at Pearl Harbor and in Washington. These officers, Mr. Stimson stated, did not perform their duties with the necessary skill or exercise the judgment needed. Mr. Forrestal sponsored a statement that there were errors of judgment by officers of his service. However, Mr. Stimson and Forrestal made it plain that no prosecution of any officer was contemplated now. Press reports note contradictions between NCI APHB reports and earlier Roberts' conclusions. The respected journalist Arthur Crock of the New York Times commented on the Forrestal and Stimson releases. He pointed to a fundamental conflict of finding between the reports on Pearl Harbor of the commission headed by Justice Roberts and of those composed of admirals and generals as reviewed by their departmental superiors. If Admiral Kimmel and General Short were guilty of dereliction of duty, as the Roberts Commission concluded, then it cannot equally be true, as the secretaries of Navy and War appraised their officers' inquiries, that on the basis of available evidence, no grounds exist for the court-martial of the area commanders or any others in the service. Dereliction of duty is basis for a court-martial, and the Roberts Commission imputed this to both Kimmel and Short. The fact, Crock said, when contrasted with the negative results of the official inquiries by the Army and Navy, makes an unsatisfactory situation for everyone concerned, including the Pearl Harbor commanders, who were removed, reduced in rank, and refused the court's martial for which they repeatedly applied.
Were Kimmel and Short guilty of dereliction of duty and liable for courts-martial? Or weren't they? Brock believed Congress would want to see these contradictions resolved. Many members of Congress have expressed this dissatisfaction, and their statements indicate revival of the suspicion that the fault for the surprise element in the air attack on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese rests more heavily on Washington than any published report has indicated. Congress forced the Officers' Board of Inquiry on the administration, which clearly wanted to let the entire controversy await the end of the war. Now Congress, unless the continued investigation promised by Secretaries Forrestal and Stimson, disposes of the conflict between the two reports and fixes responsibility on the basis of persuasive evidence, can be expected to try to find out the facts for the public and for itself. Brock recognized, however, that such an investigation would have to await war's end. To reveal the evidence required to resolve the conflict, as Dewey had learned during the presidential campaign, would have been to invite a charge of imperiling security and the prospects of the Pacific War. The editorial board of the venerable New York Times came to essentially the same conclusion. The secretaries of the War and Navy Departments and their advisors have decided that on the evidence now available, courts martial of any officers are not indicated. If the Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Navy, both honorable men, both loyal and devoted Americans, both vitally and successfully engaged in the prosecution of the war, give it as their considered judgment that full publicity and a public discussion now of the many ramifications of the Pearl Harbor attack would be inimical to the successful prosecution of the war, then that opinion must be heard with respect. Admiral Kimmel and General Short are entitled to a full and open inquiry into all the circumstances of their preparation, or lack of it, to meet a Japanese attack. They are entitled to an opportunity to give a public explanation. But first things come first. Winning the war is the paramount duty now before every official and every citizen. The best interests of the country will be served if the question of responsibility for the disaster of Pearl Harbor is put aside for the duration. The next day, December 6, an unpleasant account about the Pearl Harbor investigation by muckraker newspaper man Drew Pearson appeared on the front page of the Miami Herald. Stimson considered it unfortunate that the president had thwarted his original plan for giving a full and frank statement, and he confided to his diary that he had warned the president that the thing was sure to leak, and here Drew Pearson had gotten hold of so many facts that it looked as if all of the rest would probably come out. Fortunately, Marshall's name was not mentioned, and some of the things that Pearson said were entirely inaccurate and wrong and can be denied. Chapter 25. Administration-Directed Supplementary Investigations. Clark, Clausen, Hewitt. Each of the three supplementary investigations was unique. The first of these three supplementary investigations, the Clark investigation, was launched at the request of Army Chief of Staff Marshall, while the APHB was still underway to help him prepare for the next appearance before that board. The second investigation, the Clausen investigation, was instigated by Secretary of War Stimson, to look into unexplored leads in the Pearl Harbor situation from the Army's point of view. The third investigation, the Hewitt Inquiry, dealt primarily with the Navy situation and was ordered by Navy Secretary Forrestal, who had found the NCI investigation had not exhausted all possible evidence. Implicit, if not explicit, in the directives setting up the Clausen and Hewitt investigations was a desire to uncover information that might contradict, discredit, or at least cast doubts on the findings of the Army Pearl Harbor Board and Navy Court of Inquiry, which the administration had found unacceptable. The Clark Inquiry, September 14 through 20, 1944. After the APHB learned of the Japanese intercepts, Marshall was again called to answer questions. 
In preparation for that appearance, Marshall asked Colonel Carter W. Clark to explore the manner in which certain top-secret communications were handled. Marshall hadn't been able to recall the extremely important Japanese reply to the U.S. November 26 ultimatum prior to the morning of December 7. Yet several witnesses had reported that the first 13 parts of that 14-part reply had been received and delivered to top Washington officials the evening of December 6. Marshall was also interested in reviewing the events of the morning of December 7 and his response to the radiogram advising the Japanese ambassadors to deliver their government's reply to Secretary of State Hull on December 7 at precisely 1 p.m. Washington time. Clark interviewed 11 witnesses who had been involved with the receipt and distribution of the intercepts. Marshall had Colonel Rufus S. Bratton, Army Intelligence, G-2, recalled from the European Theater where he was then serving. Bratton had been responsible for the pre-Pearl Harbor distribution of intercepts to Army personnel. Bratton described the procedure for distributing various Japanese intercepts to the top military and civilian officials in Washington, including President Roosevelt, Marshall, and the Secretaries of State, War, and Navy. Bratton was also asked about the November 27 war warning to Short and about what intelligence had been sent to Hawaii. Bratton believed that Japan's 14-part reply started coming into the Navy on the 6th, and his recollection was that he transmitted a copy to the Secretary of State that night. When testifying, Bratton referred to a memorandum he had prepared shortly after December 7. He described his efforts to locate Marshall that morning. Marshall's arrival in his office at 11.25 a.m., the discussion then of the significance of the 1 p.m. message, Marshall's decision to notify Short, his consultation with CNO Stark, and the transmission of the last-minute warning. Clark then questioned Colonel Edward F. French, Army Communications Service, who had actually transmitted Marshall's last-minute December 7 message to the field commanders. Its transmission was delayed, French said, as Marshall's penciled draft was rather difficult to read, and it had to be typed, verified, and authenticated before being encoded. Our channel at Honolulu was out due to atmospheric conditions. To avoid the risk of any garbling or error in relaying the message via Army facilities through San Francisco, French decided the quickest method of dispatch would be via commercial service, so the message to Hawaii was handled directly to San Francisco via the Western Union and on a tube relay of this message to the RCA office in San Francisco. Major General Garrow, Assistant Chief of Staff, War Plans Division, presented Clark with a memorandum he had prepared December 15, 1941 concerning the 1 p.m. message. On Sunday, December 7, 1941, about 11.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, General Marshall called me to his office. Bratton was there and was directed to take Marshall's pencil draft to the message center and have it sent immediately by the most expeditious means to the Philippines, Panama Canal, Hawaii, and the West Coast Command. Garrow told Clark that G-2 Army Intelligence, not his War Plans Division, was to advise Hawaiian G-2 with respect to sabotage. Therefore, any reference to subversive activities in sabotage had been stricken out of the November 27 war warning. Garrow had considered that message a definite warning to be on the alert, not only against sabotage, but also against a possible enemy offensive. Garrow admitted Short's response left no room for misunderstanding. He had definitely taken all the necessary precautions against sabotage and sabotage only. General Miles, acting Assistant Chief of Staff G-2, also testified for Clark. Miles was thoroughly familiar with the magic intercepts, but his memory was very hazy about whether the WINS message had been implemented. He did not remember seeing any document on it, any written statement on it. According to Miles, Bratton, chief of the Far Eastern Section during this period, 
selected the important ultra information for Marshall. Miles had known we were watching for the Japanese reply to the November 26 U.S. ultimatum very eagerly. He learned during the evening of December 6 that it was in, and he had the whole 14-part reply when he got to the office the next morning. Signs that war was coming had been apparent everywhere, and the War Department, Miles said, had even made plans for putting censorship into operation and was training censors. In addition to questioning the witnesses separately, Clark held a roundtable discussion with Miles, Brigadier General Hayes A. Croner, Chief Intelligence Branch, Military Intelligence Division, Colonel John T. Bissell, Chief of the Counterintelligence Group of Military Intelligence, and Bratton, to iron out any little differences that may have appeared in their testimony. For instance, Bissell and Croner had said that the ultra-secret intelligence derived from magic had not been made available to them prior to Pearl Harbor, but Bratton said it had been through memoranda concerning subversive activities. Bratton reported that magic was regularly distributed to the top administration and military officials. These four men, all concerned with some aspect of pre-war military intelligence, discussed their pre-attack view of the Japanese threat. Although Croner hadn't seen magic himself, he knew Bratton and Miles were handling it and insisting it be kept secret. When news of the attack came on December 7, Croner had actually been reading Miles' November 29 estimate of the Far Eastern situation so he remembered distinctly that that estimate did not include in the lines of action open to Japan an attack on Pearl Harbor. According to Miles, the bulk of our information, all of it including magic, indicated the major probability of a Japanese move to the south, Indochina, Siam, Thailand, perhaps the Dutch West East Indies, perhaps Malaya. We did not exclude war with the United States since we specifically mentioned the Philippines as being part of the Japanese southern push and in a war with the United States, of course, there was a possibility, particularly with the Japanese, that a surprise attack might be made anywhere, certainly including Hawaii, which had been armed and prepared for such an attack for 20 years. Bratton believed that initially any attack against an American installation in the Middle or Eastern Pacific would be in the nature of a diversion and having as its objective the immobilizing of any force that we might call in to help the Dutch and British in West and Southwest Pacific. But their primary initial objective was the destruction of Great Britain's power in Southeast Asia. Clark questioned witnesses about the elusive Winds Execute. Cryptanalysist Friedman had no direct knowledge of a Winds Execute himself. He had only learned of it comparatively recently in talking with Colonel Sadler and Captain Safford of the Navy. But he had known monitoring stations had been alerted to watch for a Winds Code implementation. Further, he said, a diligent search, if not a completely exhaustive search, had failed to find a single bit of evidence to indicate that an Army station actually intercepted a Winds Execute message. Colonel Otis K. Sadler, chief of the Army Communications Service at the time of the attack, told the inquiry he heard from Admiral Noyes that the message is in, meaning that the Winds Execute had been received, and it said war would be declared between Japan and Great Britain. He didn't say with the United States also, but he couldn't verify that for he didn't know the word in the Japanese text. War was expected in the Netherlands East Indies too. By December 5th, the Dutch had ordered the execution of the Rainbow Plan, A2 for U.S. naval participation, a part of the joint Abduken plan only to be taken in the event of war. Clark presented his findings to Marshall on September 20, 1944. When Marshall returned to the APHB September 29 and October 2, his memory was refreshed. The Clausen Investigation November 23, 1944, to September 12, 1945. The APHB report concluded that Marshall, Garrow, and Short had failed in the performance of their duties. Both FDR and Stimson had been shocked, 
They much preferred the Roberts Commission's finding that Kimmel and Short were responsible for the extent of the Pearl Harbor disaster. Thus, Stimson directed Major Clausen, an attorney who had served as assistant recorder for the APHB, to look into unexplored leads in the Pearl Harbor situation. The investigation was to be limited strictly to matters which have a bearing on the part that Army personnel, organization, or action may have had in the disaster. Clausen's assignment was classified an emergency war mission. He had an unlimited expense account, permission to travel in and out of the war theaters. Persons interrogated by Clausen were to answer his inquiries fully. All papers, secret or top secret, were to be furnished him, any present directives to the contrary notwithstanding. His investigation appears to have been aimed primarily at exploring the procedure for distributing magic in order to discover who was responsible for delivering to Marshall the crucial December 6-7 through 7 intercepts, and if they had not been promptly delivered, why not? Lawson's questions also indicated concern with the information provided or not provided to Short. For almost 10 months, November 23, 1944 to September 12, 1945, Clausen traveled over 55,000 miles by air and interviewed 92 Army, Navy, and civilian personnel, 52 of whom presented their recollections of pre-Pearl Harbor events in sworn affidavits. From time to time, Clausen reported to Stimson's special assistant, Major Clausen was promoted to lieutenant colonel by March 24, 1945. One of Clausen's first interviewees was Colonel Carlisle C. Dusenberry, Bratton's assistant. Dusenberry said he and Bratton alternated in assembling and delivering these intercepts, daily about 50 to 75 of these intercepts, sorted to about 25 for distribution. Dusenberry recalled that the 13 parts of the Japanese reply started coming in on the night of 6 December 1941. He and Bratton were both on duty. Dusenberry said Bratton remained until about half of it had been received. Thereupon, he left and went home at about 9 p.m. Dusenberry stayed and waited for the remainder. The 14th part, being the final part of the message, was received about 12 that night. Thereupon, I left and went home. None of these parts comprising this intercept was delivered before the morning of 7 December 1941, because the first half had been received while Colonel Bratton was on duty, and he had seen this and had not had it delivered that night. I did not wish to disturb the usual recipients who were probably at home asleep, as I did not see the implications of immediate hostilities. Dusenberry's affidavit contradicted Bratton's previous testimony before both the APHB and the Clark investigation. Bratton had told Clark that he had transmitted to the Secretary of State a copy of the first 13 parts the night they were received. Two weeks later, he had told the APHB that he had also delivered the 13 parts to the Office of the Chief of Staff Marshal and the AC of S, G2, Miles. Then a few days later, he had told the APHB that he recalled that Marshall, Miles, and Garrow got their copies the evening of the 6th. It was his practice, Bratton said, to deliver to them their copies of the Japanese intercepts before I went to the State Department. In March, Clausen secured the affidavit of Brigadier General Charles K. Gailey, a major, and Garrow's executive officer on December 6. The affidavit signed by Gailey, but unquestionably drafted by Clausen, stated that it was Gailey's customary practice to deliver to Garrow, as soon as practicable, the deciphered and translated Japanese intercepts received from Bratton or Dusenberry. Gailey did not recall having perceived any pouch or intercepts from Colonel Bratton or Colonel Dusenberry, or from any other source, on the evening of December 6. Gailey was certain that if Garrow hadn't received any intercepts that evening, they hadn't been delivered to him. As if they had been, I would have given them to him. Garrow. Clausen then flew to the Pacific Theater, Guam, and Honolulu. 
He was in the Philippines on VE Day, and from there he flew to Germany, France, Italy, and England. In June, at Mainz, Germany, Clausen tackled Walter Bedell Smith, who had been Marshal Staff Secretary in December 1941 and had risen rapidly in the ranks. By then, he was a Lieutenant General and Eisenhower's Chief of Staff. On December 6 through 7, 1941, Bedell Smith and his assistants were supposed to maintain a 24 hour watch outside Marshall's office, know where Marshall was at all times, and see that important messages reached him promptly. Clausen summarized for Bedell Smith Bratton's testimony before the APHB. Bedell Smith then gave Clausen an affidavit setting forth not his recollection of the pre attack situation but rather his usual practice for handling the pouches of sensitive material intended for Marshall. When instructed that the contents should reach him at once, the duty officer of the General Staff Secretariat would take the pouches to General Marshall at his quarters or wherever he happened to be. Both I myself and the Assistant Secretaries understood that these pouches contained information of such value and importance that they should be shown to the Chief of Staff without delay. Bedell Smith had no recollection of having received or known of an urgent delivery on the evening of December 6. To the best of my recollection, he swore, I left the office at the usual time on the evening of 6 December 1941, that is about 7 p.m., turning over to the night duty officer. Bedell Smith was quite certain that I was not at the office after 10 p.m. If the intercepted radio message referred to by Colonel Bratton was delivered either to me or to the night duty officer, it would have been delivered in the locked envelope to the chief of staff in accordance with our usual procedure, either by the officer on duty or by Colonel Bratton himself. In his role as secretary to the chief of staff, Bedell Smith had several assistant secretaries. One of them must have been on duty that night. But Clausen interviewed only one, John R. Dean, who had not been on duty that night. Garrow had been chief of Army War Plans in 1941. When Clausen secured Garrow's affidavit at Cannes, France, Garrow was both positive and direct. During November and December 1941, he had received and reviewed the magic intercepts in their raw, unevaluated form, and had always returned them promptly to G2. He recalled seeing the request from Tokyo for reports on ship movements at Pearl Harbor, but as these related especially to Navy, I assumed that the Navy was fully cognizant and would interpret this information. However, Garrow did not consider Pearl Harbor to be Japan's only interest. He recalled similar inquiries made of Japan's consuls at Manila and Seattle. Garrow did not remember conversations with either Bratton on December 4 or Sadler on December 5 concerning alarming Japanese intercepts, at which time Garrow had replied that sufficient warnings had already been sent to the overseas commanders. In his opinion, however, the War Department had sent ample warnings to the overseas commanders, including General Short. General Short at no time informed the War Department that he was not in full agreement with War Department estimates and plans for the defense of Oahu. Concerning the magic messages, Garrow again warned that it was necessary to guard most carefully against compromising the source of this extremely valuable intelligence. He did not recall seeing the 13 parts of the Japanese reply to our ultimatum before the morning of December 7. In July in Paris, Clausen interviewed Bratton. He showed Bratton 10 affidavits he had collected bearing on the WINS code message and delivery of the 13 parts of the Japanese reply to our ultimatum. The five already mentioned, Duesenberry, Gailey, Bedell Smith, Garrow, and Dean, and five others by Army officers who said they couldn't recall details of pre-attack events. These affidavits did not really differ from Bratton's APHB testimony, for most of the officers didn't answer Clausen's questions directly. Only Duesenberry's affidavit actually conflicted with Bratton's previous statements, 
And when Duesenberry aired, Bratton pointed that out. Clausen usually typed the affidavits, sometimes retyping them when an interviewee requested changes. At the Joint Congressional Committee, Bratton recalled, I dictated what I thought I should say, making corrections as we went along. Finally, we got it all in shape in pencil. Then he, Clausen, put a piece of paper into the typewriter and typed the affidavit. Bratton made some further suggestions and corrections. Only after Bratton was satisfied that the affidavit represented his best recollection did he sign it. The Japanese reply to our ultimatum, Bratton said in his affidavit, started coming in from the Navy the evening of December 6. He and Dusenberry were on duty together. Bratton's account differed from Dusenberry's. After receipt of the 13th part, Bratton determined from SIS that the 14th part was not likely to come in that night. Bratton and Dusenberry then assembled the 13 parts in preparation for delivery to the authorized recipients. Bratton directed Colonel Dusenberry to deliver the set for the Chief of Staff Marshal to his home at Fort Myer that night as Colonel Dusenberry went to his home in Arlington. This was about 10 p.m. Bratton said in his affidavit that the only set he delivered that evening was to the Secretary of State between 10 and 11 p.m. to the State Department night duty officer. The sets for Miles, Garrow, and Stimson, Bratton said, were not delivered the night of 6 December 1941, but were delivered the next morning, 7 December 1941, with the 14th part. Bratton concluded his affidavit, Any prior statements or testimony of mine which may be contrary to my statements here should be modified and considered changed in accordance with my statements herein. This affidavit now represents my best recollections of the matters and events set forth after having my memory refreshed in several ways and respects. Early August found Clausen back in the United States. In the affidavit, Colonel Sadler, a Signal Corps officer at the time of the attack, signed for Clausen in August in Washington, D.C. He discussed a possible Winds Code execute message that Noyce had given him on December 5, 1941. Sadler was already alarmed by the series of Japanese diplomatic and consular intercepts which I had been reading over a considerable period of time and the mounting tension and the information which Admiral Noyce had just given me. After conferring with Miles and Bratton, he had gone to his office and personally typed a proposed warning which I intended to recommend be sent to the overseas commanders. According to Sadler's recollection, it read substantially as follows. CG, PI, Hawaii, Panama. Reliable information indicates war with Japan in the very near future. Stop. Take every precaution to prevent a repetition of Port Arthur. Stop. Notify the Navy, sign Marshall. Sadler hadn't shown his draft warning to anyone in 1941, and he had made no copy at the time. However, he testified he had talked with Garrow and Bedell Smith after drafting it. However, in June 1945, neither Garrow nor Bedell Smith remembered such a conversation with Sadler, and after reading the Garrow and Bedell Smith affidavits, Sadler believed they were correct in saying that he had not talked with them about it in December 1941. Moreover, Garrow didn't believe that Sadler, purely a Signal Corps officer, should be concerned with the dissemination or interpretation of magic. Sadler also denied he had ever urged General Sherman Miles, G2, or any other representative of G2, to send any warning messages to the overseas commanders. He denied that he had made further efforts to obtain the Winds Execute message mentioned by Admiral Noyes, and he denied Friedman's statement to Clark that he, Sadler, had material in a safe deposit box concerning the Pearl Harbor disaster. Lawson was in Washington on VJ Day, his investigation almost over. But he went to Boston to interview Major General Miles, Brigadier General and Chief of Army Intelligence in 1941. 
Miles said that, on the instructions of Marshall transmitted through General Osmond and Colonel Clark of G2, he had said nothing to the APHB about the top-secret magic sources. He had known about the 13 parts of the Japanese reply on the evening of December 6, because he had been dining that evening at Admiral Wilkinson's home. Admiral Beardall, FDR's aide who was there also, had brought it to Wilkinson's attention, and Wilkinson had shown it to Miles. Miles had been under the impression that before December 7, the Navy in Hawaii had been intercepting, decrypting, decoding, and translating Japanese diplomatic and consular messages. Back in Washington, Clausen met with Marshall. In his affidavit, Marshall said that when he first appeared before the APHB on August 7, 1944, he had informed the voting members in a one-hour closed session of the character of information which had been derived before 7 December 1941 from top-secret sources then called magic. In that brief meeting, Marshall said, he did not explain the nature of the information gleaned from these sources, except to say that neither this information nor the source thereof should be made public because it would result in at least temporarily, if not permanently, extinguishing that source. According to Marshall, it was not until it developed that the magic papers were being disclosed before the Navy Court of Inquiry that Army officers concerned with magic had been authorized to go into all the details regarding magic. Marshall stated that it had been his understanding that, in the period preceding 7 December 1941, the commanding general of the Hawaiian Department, Short, was aware of and was receiving some of this information from facilities available in his command. In this, Marshall was mistaken. Marshall told Clausen that he had advised Short by correspondence, February 7 and March 5, 1941, of the risk of sabotage and the risk involved in a surprise raid by air and by submarine. At no time did General Short inform me, or to my knowledge anyone else in the War Department, that he was not in full agreement with these War Department estimates and plans for the defense of Oahu, which in effect warned him to expect air and submarine attacks as primary threats in the event of war with Japan. Marshall did not say whether he had sent Short any advice or warning later than February or March 1941 concerning the impending crisis. However, Marshall did say that Short's assistant G-2 officer, Colonel George W. Bicknell, had seen a Navy wire sent to Pearl Harbor on or about December 3, 1941, concerning instructions to the Japanese diplomatic representatives in the Southwest Pacific, Washington, and London to burn their codes and ciphers. Lawson's investigation had set out to look into unexplored leads, primarily for Marshall's benefit, about magic and especially about the Japanese response to the U.S. ultimatum. He tried to discover to whom it had been delivered on December 6-7. through 7. Clausen had also inquired after the WINS code and its implementation, the WINS code execute. And he had asked what information had been furnished General Short in Hawaii concerning the impending crisis. Although many questions remained unanswered, the Clausen affidavits did offer two possible excuses for Marshall's failure to notify Short of the developing December 6-7 through 7 crisis. Number one, Braddon and Duesenberry had been remiss in not delivering the important 13-part Japanese dispatch to Marshall on the evening of December 6. Number two, Washington officials, including Marshall and Miles, believed that the Japanese messages were being intercepted and decrypted in Hawaii. The Hewitt Inquiry, May 14 to July 11, 1945. Upon the completion of the Navy Court of Inquiry's report, Secretary of the Navy Forrestal found errors of judgment on the part of certain officers in the Naval Service both at Pearl Harbor and at Washington. The Secretary has further found that the previous investigations have not exhausted all possible evidence and has decided that the NCI investigation should be further continued until the testimony of every witness in possession of the material facts can be obtained and all possible evidence exhausted.
Therefore, Forrestal, on May 2, 1945, appointed Admiral H. Kent Hewitt, U.S. Navy, as investigating officer, with John F. Sonnet as counsel, and Lieutenant John Ford Beecher, USNR, as assistant counsel to examine such witnesses, and to obtain such other evidence as might be necessary in order to fully develop the facts in connection with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. After reviewing the findings of the previous investigations, Hewitt decided his task was to explore further what information was available in Washington and at Pearl Harbor before the attack, to ask specifically about intercepted Japanese telephone and cable messages, especially the WINS code, to find out whether or not Japanese submarines had been operating in and around Pearl Harbor prior to December 7, and also to determine Kimmel's understanding of various plans for the defense of the fleet. With these goals in mind, Hewitt took testimony from 39 witnesses over 26 days, from May 14 to July 11. As the Hewitt inquiry opened, Captain Arthur H. McCollum, who in December 1941 had been the officer in charge of the Far Eastern Section of the Division of Naval Intelligence, Navy Department, reviewed the intelligence then available concerning the Far East. Hawaii was dependent on data derived from direction finders, radio intelligence of fleet activities confirmed later by newspaper accounts, and information from Washington. Before the war started on December 7, they were not permitted by U.S. law to tap telephones or intercept messages to or from the Japanese consul in Honolulu. Hawaii did not have a purple machine, which would have given them access to Japanese diplomatic messages. Messages and other codes that could not be decoded in Hawaii were mailed to Washington for decrypting. After the imposition of the U.S. embargoes on Japanese trade and the outbreak of war in Europe, few Japanese merchant vessels plowed the seas. Few Japanese ships crossed the Pacific to ports in the Americas, and U.S. ships no longer traversed the North Pacific. Thus, we had lost the means of keeping track of the few Japanese ships that were still sailing, as well as the eyes of observer agents at various ports in Asia. Given his position at the time of the attack, Captain McCollum was able to keep abreast of developments in U.S.-Japanese relations. When McCollum appeared before the Hewitt Inquiry on May 15, he brought with him an analysis of the situation as it looked to me at that time which he had submitted on December 1, 1941, to Admiral Wilkinson, Director of Naval Intelligence. He and Wilkinson had then met with Stark and urged that a dispatch of warning be sent to the fleet. Stark assured them that such a dispatch had been sent on the 27th of November, which definitely included the term, This is a war warning. Subsequent to this, McCollum said, The situation further deteriorated. He and Wilkinson did send dispatches out to our naval attachés, and various naval agencies throughout the Far East, directing that they destroy all their codes and ciphers. This was some time after the 1st of December, possibly around the 4th. Regarding the WINS code, there was no doubt that the Japanese government had set up a scheme of weather words with hidden meanings. Yet mystery and confusion surrounded practically every other aspect of the matter. According to McCollum, in one instance, it, the weather code, meant war with Russia. In the next instance, it meant war with England, and another one, it meant war with the United States. Those were the three possibilities. But a literal translation of the Japanese did not actually say war. McCollum went on. Instead of war, the term used was, in case relations are in danger. There is the verbatim translation in Japanese that says, in case there is danger of cutting off our diplomatic relations. When Hewitt questioned Captain Safford about the Winds Code message, Safford insisted, as he had in earlier hearings, that a winds execute had been received before the attack, that it mentioned the United States, that it meant war, that he and Kramer had looked at it together, that it had been delivered to Director of Naval Communications Admiral Noyes, that later he, 
Safford could find no reference to the WINS code execute in the files, and that he had been unable to locate any copies of it at all. Safford couldn't understand what could have happened to them. When Kramer testified before the NCI in Hawaii during the summer of 1944, he had not hesitated to say that the WINS execute had been received and that it referred to the United States as well as to Great Britain. But a year later, before the Hewitt inquiry, he was less positive of that now. Kramer did recall definitely being shown such a message by the GY Watch officer and walking down with him to Safford's office and being present while the GY Watch officer turned it over to him. A brief conversation ensued, and then Safford had taken the message, Kramer assumed, to noise. And that was the last Kramer saw of it. He did not recall the precise wording of that message. He had a rather sharp recollection in the latter part of that week, December 1 through 7, 1941, a feeling that there was still no overt mention or specific mention of the United States in any of this traffic. His recollection was no longer clear. He was under the impression that the message referred to England and possibly the Dutch rather than the United States, although it may have referred to the United States too. If a wins execute was received, as Safford claimed, he was under the impression that it had been turned over to the Roberts Commission. But within the past month, Kramer had told Safford that a copy of the Wins message and other papers relative to the break in diplomatic relations with Japan were not turned over to the Roberts Commission, but were given to Assistant Secretary of the Navy Forrestal about 9 December 1941, while he was acting secretary in the absence of Mr. Knox, who had flown to Hawaii. This is likely because, according to Forrestal's schedule of appointments, he saw both Kramer and McCollum on December 10, 1941. Many argue that the reason no copies of a Wins Execute have been found in the files is because Tokyo did not send one. It may also be, as Kramer informed Safford on another occasion, that no written copy was furnished the Army and no written copy was distributed in the Navy Department in the customary manner because Admiral Noyce had given specific orders not to do so and that he would handle dissemination of this message himself. Safford told Hewitt that he had heard through Friedman, cryptanalyst, that written copies of the Wins message had been destroyed in the War Department by then-Colonel Bissell on the direct orders of General Marshall. William F. Friedman, chief cryptanalyst, had been responsible with his team in the Army Cryptoanalytic Bureau for having deciphered, after 18 to 20 months of hard concentration, the Purple Diplomatic Code in August 1940. Friedman testified before Hewitt on June 22, 1945, Captain Safford indicated that there had been a wins execute message, that no copies of it were to be found in the Navy files, and that nevertheless there had been testimony to the effect that it had been intercepted. His story was that it was intercepted by one of their East Coast stations, he believed, and was promptly forwarded into Washington. He, Safford, indicated that it not only had the affirmative for break in relations between Japan and the United States, but it also had a negative for a break in relations between Japan and Russia. Friedman then said he had had a conversation about a year and a half ago with Colonel Sadler, who had indicated that the Wins Code Execute message had come in sometime on the 4th or 5th of December, that he hadn't himself seen a copy, but that he had been told by somebody that the copy had been ordered or directed to be destroyed by General Marshall. Friedman said he had regarded this as merely hearsay evidence and nothing more than that, highly inconceivable. I probably just passed that story out to Safford as one of those crazy things to get started. Friedman said he shouldn't have done it. He certainly had no idea that he, Safford, would repeat it. As a result of this June 22, 1945 testimony by Friedman, the Clark investigation was later reopened to investigate the charges. Hewitt was interested also in the delivery of the 1 p.m. message. 
The fourteenth part of the Japanese reply was coming in when McCollum arrived at his office early Sunday morning, December 7. While he and Wilkinson were discussing the situation with Stark about 8.30 to 9 o'clock, the dispatch directing the Japanese ambassadors to deliver their reply to Hull at precisely 1 p.m. was brought in. Stark immediately called the White House. At the time, the possible significance of the time of delivery was pointed out to all hands. We didn't know what this signified, but that if an attack were coming, it looked like the timing was such that it was time for operations in the Far East and possibly on Hawaii. Kramer told Hewitt a similar story. While the folders for the recipients of magic intercepts were being made up that morning, he recalled drawing a navigator's time circle to see if this 1 p.m. Washington time tied up at all with the developments in the Malay area, which we had been following in considerable detail the previous week. He was impressed with the fact that 1 p.m. here was several hours before sunrise in the Crow Peninsula area, where we knew the Japanese had been contemplating an attack on Kotobaru with the connivance of the Taiyan chief of staff. That further tied up with the movement of a large Japanese convoy down the coast of China the previous three or four days. When delivering the folder for Knox, who was then at a meeting in the State Department, Kramer also pointed out the time at various points in the Pacific when it was 1 p.m. in Washington. He may have mentioned the time differences to eight or ten others, including McCollum, Bratton, several people in the State Department, possibly Wilkinson, Stark, and, he thought, Safford. All those questioned by Hewitt, who had been stationed in Hawaii at the time of the attack, were well aware that Japan was on the verge of going to war with someone somewhere. Captain Rochefort, who had been in charge of communication intelligence in Hawaii, noted that on December 1, all service radio calls were changed, and that this indicated an additional progressive step in preparing for active operations on a large scale. It was generally agreed that there was a definite offensive moment in the works. The only error made was in the direction. All attention had been turned toward the Far West, the Philippines, Malaysia, and Thailand. Captain Layton, who had been Fleet Intelligence Officer for Pacific Fleet at the time of the attack, also testified before Hewitt that the Japanese Navy had changed all calls only one month after the previous change. Six months had been the usual period. To Layton, service calls lasting only one month indicated progressive steps in preparing for active operations on a large scale. When he learned during the first week of December that the Japanese consul in Hawaii was burning papers, he said, that fits the picture that the Japanese are preparing for something, destroying their codes. Layton said there had been several reports of unidentified submarine soundings in Hawaiian waters. McCollum testified that we had suspected for some time that Japanese submarines were keeping our fleet based in Pearl Harbor under observation. Vice Admiral Charles H. McMorris, who had been War Plans Officer for a sink pack at the time of the attack, told Hewitt he considered it highly important to maintain anti-submarine patrols in the operating areas. He thought an air attack on Pearl Harbor, possible but not probable, and that the fleet should not take as its sole object of existence the defense of itself against a surprise attack, but that it should also carry on other fundamental duties. Admiral Patrick N. L. Bellinger, commander of the Naval Base Defense Air Force, acknowledged that there had been sound contacts indicating the possible presence of submarines, but most such reports were unconfirmed. No submarine was ever seen. Nevertheless, the threat of a submarine raid was widely acknowledged as real, much more real than the likelihood of an attack by air. Many other witnesses conceded that an air attack on Pearl Harbor was possible, but not probable. Himmel's chief of staff, Admiral William W. Smith, testified, we were particularly guarding against their submarine raids in the area. We believed that was Japan's first attack to be made upon us, and we made every effort to guard against it. 
Smith knew of no one in this area who really believed there would be a hostile air attack on the Hawaiian Islands. Hewitt's inquiry revealed that the Naval Base Defense Air Force Operation Plan, submitted April 9, 1941, by a group headed by Bellinger, anticipated a possible air attack by planes, launched from one or more carriers which would probably approach inside of 300 miles. A single submarine attack might indicate the presence of a considerable undiscovered surface force, probably composed of fast ships accompanied by a carrier. This plan of operations pointed out that such an attack at dawn offered a high probability that it could be delivered as a complete surprise, and that it might find us in a condition of readiness under which pursuit would be slow to start. The scenario was followed almost precisely on December 7. The sighting and sinking shortly before dawn of a Japanese submarine by the destroyer Ward was followed very shortly after dawn by the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor by planes launched from carriers about 200 miles away. It was acknowledged that the mission of the Army on Oahu is to defend the Pearl Harbor naval base against all attacks by an enemy. The Navy was assigned the responsibility for long-range reconnaissance. However, there were nowhere near enough planes or crews on Oahu to conduct long-range reconnaissance for any length of time while training and preparing for offensive action in accordance with the war plan, Rainbow Five. In his testimony, Bellinger estimated that he could have conducted 360-degree reconnaissance with the available Navy planes, perhaps four or five days, 128 degrees approximately on a daily basis, until the failure of planes and lack of spare parts reduced the planes to an extent that it would have made it impossible. Perhaps it could have been carried on for two weeks. Perhaps, but this estimate is based on maintaining planes in readiness for flight. Moreover, according to McMorris's testimony, had the maximum search been instituted from Midway and Pearl Harbor on the 27th of November warning, the situation with regard to aircraft engines by the 7th of December would have been in a highly critical situation. If all-out reconnaissance was to be carried out in anticipation of an attack, it was imperative not to start so soon that the planes and crews would be exhausted when the emergency arose. As Hewitt pointed out, when the war warning was received on 27 November, they had no idea that the attack was coming one and a half weeks later, on the 7th. They had no way to time it. They had to make plans for patrol indefinitely. Hewitt Inquiry Conclusions Hewitt's investigation was completed on July 12th. The 134-page report reviewed the previous investigations, discussed war and defense plans, Japanese espionage, naval intelligence, reconnaissance, and the December 7 attack itself. The NCI report had absolved Kimmel of responsibility for the extent of the Pearl Harbor disaster. The Hewitt Report credited Kimmel with being energetic, indefatigable, resourceful, and positive in his efforts to prepare the fleet for war. And it recognized the difficulties he had faced in trying to juggle his limited resources to maintain reconnaissance, training, anti-aircraft defenses, patrols against submarines, and morale. However, the report revived some of the criticism levied against Kimmel by the Roberts Commission. It held that he did have sufficient information in his possession to indicate that the situation was unusually serious, and yet he had not disseminated this information to all of his important subordinate commanders whose cognizance thereof was desirable. The Hewitt Report followed the lead of the NCI Report in attributing some of the blame for the disaster to Stark. The Chief of Naval Operations did not communicate to Kimmel important information which would have aided him materially in fully evaluating the seriousness of the situation. In particular, the failure to transmit the State Department message of November 26 and to send, by telephone or other expeditious means, information of the 1 p.m. message and its possible import were unfortunate. Although various messages of the Japanese Consul General in Honolulu, 
which indicate a Japanese interest in specific locations of ships in Pearl Harbor, were intercepted by radio intercept stations of the Army and Navy and decrypted prior to the attack. This information was not transmitted by the Navy Department to Admiral Kimmel. A thorough appreciation of the danger, the capabilities of the available planes, and the importance of the defense of Pearl Harbor might have justified the allotment by the Chief of Naval Operations of additional patrol planes to the Pacific Fleet. Regarding the existence of a winds execute, the report held unequivocally that no message was intercepted prior to the attack which used the code words relating to the United States. With the Hewitt Inquiry report finished, Forrestal submitted it for analysis and recommendations to the department's Judge Advocate General and Admiral King, Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Fleet, and Chief of Naval Operations. On August 10, Judge Advocate General T.L. Gatch wrote that now that this report is in, the investigation of the Pearl Harbor attack should be considered completed. It appears that there was no lack of appreciation on the part of any of the responsible officers that war was coming, and coming quickly during the critical period immediately preceding 7 December 1941. The point on which those officers fail to exercise the discernment and judgment to be expected from officers occupying their positions was their failure to appreciate, from the information available to them, that Pearl Harbor was a likely target for aerial attack and their failure to take the necessary steps to prevent or minimize such a surprise attack. Each of these officers, in estimating the critical situation, demonstrated a poor quality of strategical planning in that he largely ruled out all possible courses of action by which the Japanese might begin the war, except through an attack in the Western Pacific. I submit that the importance of information from Japanese sources has been overemphasized, for had more basically sound principles had been observed, the Pearl Harbor disaster would not have occurred. The security of Pearl Harbor was the very core of our Pacific strategy, a fact which did not receive sufficient consideration in the strategic concept of responsible officers. Gatch did not recommend court-martialing any officer, although he held that the Navy Department is morally obligated to order Admiral Kimmel tried by general court-martial should Admiral Kimmel so insist. However, no courts-martial should be held prior to the end of hostilities with Japan. Not only would it be highly impractical, but it would also be detrimental to the war effort. In his August 13 endorsement of the Hewitt Report, King held that the evidence is not sufficient to warrant trial by court-martial of any person in the naval service. Admiral Stark and Admiral Kimmel, though not culpable to a degree warranting formal disciplinary action, were nevertheless inadequate in emergency due to the lack of the superior judgment necessary for exercising command commensurate with their duties. Appropriate action appears to me to be the relegation of both of these officers to positions in which lack of superior strategic judgment may not result in future errors. The action has been taken in the case of both Admiral Stark and Admiral Kimmel. No further action is recommended. Clark Investigation, Part 2, July 13 through 17, 1945. The Clark Investigation was reopened in July 1945 at Marshall's request. Its primary purpose was to investigate Friedman's statements before the Hewitt Inquiry, May 14 through July 11, 1945, about the destruction, under Marshall's orders, of Pearl Harbor records, especially of a Winds Code execute, if one had actually been received. According to Army Courier Colonel Bratton at the APHB and Chief of G-2 Military Intelligence, Major General Sherman Miles, file copies of all the Japanese intercepts were supposed to have been held in tight security in both Army and Navy files. Yet no wins code execute could be found. So Clark wanted to clear up that mystery. 
William F. Friedman, chief cryptanalyst, told Clark that he had had conversations with Captain Safford, who said there had been such a winds execute message, and that he believed that a copy of it was still in somebody's safe in the Navy Department, but that all of his attempts to locate a copy of the winds execute message in the official files of OPG-20 had been fruitless. Months later, somebody higher up in the War Department, perhaps General Bissell, directed that a search be made through our files at Signal Security Agency to see if we could locate such a winds execute message, and that was fruitless. Yet Safford was quite convinced that dissemination had been made to the Army, if not to the Signal Intelligence Service, then to somebody in G2. Safford could not explain this mysterious disappearance of all copies of the winds execute message, especially as copies of all the Japanese intercepts were supposed to have been held in tight security in both Army and Navy permanent files. This mysterious disappearance was naturally also of extreme interest to me, and sometime after my first or possibly second conversation with Captain Safford, I learned of the return to Washington for duty of Colonel Sadler. We were old friends. Shortly after he came back, he came over to my office one day, and I don't know whether he had specifically in mind to talk about Pearl Harbor, he may have, but at any rate, in the course of our reminiscences about those days, he told me some very startling things. I asked him about the winds execute message, his recollection was apparently extremely clear, and he certainly was positive about this recollection of the fact that such a winds execute message had been intercepted by a Navy source, because he told me that he was called over to either General Miles' office or Colonel Bratton's office. I recall now that he said that Admiral Noyes called him one morning, and my recollection is that it was on December 4, might have been the 5th, 1941, saying, and this stands very bright in my memory, it's in, meaning that the winds execute message had been transmitted and had been intercepted and that it meant a break in relations between Japan and England and that he had then gone over to either General Miles' office or to Colonel Bratton's office or Admiral Noyes had telephoned the same message or the purport of the winds execute message to General Miles or to Colonel Bratton. At any rate, Colonel Sadler was either summoned or presented himself to G2 and said that the winds execute message had come in and that something should be done right away. Colonel Bratton, the Japanese language expert, wanted Colonel Sadler to tell him what the Japanese word was that had been included in the winds execute message. Sadler said that he himself had not seen the message, he had gotten the information from the Navy source by telephone, and that he therefore couldn't give the Japanese word. When he was unable to produce the message or the Japanese word they said, there was nothing they could do. He being deeply concerned about the threat of negotiations with the Japanese government and noting the tenor of the messages that we were turning out in translation, became extremely apprehensive that war might break out at almost any hour without any declaration on the part of the Japanese. And he felt that somebody high up in the War Department ought to send a message out to General Short warning him, the type of message that he actually prepared in his own hand. Break in relations between Japan and United States may be expected within the next 24 or 48 hours take all necessary steps to ensure that there will be no repetition of Port Arthur. Well, he tried to interest some of the people in the higher echelons. He tried somebody in G2, he tried somebody in Operations Division, the Secretary of the General Staff. I can't enumerate them all now. But at any rate, he said that he got turned down all the way and nobody would pay any attention to him. Well, in the course of this conversation, I asked him, what do you suppose happened to the wind's execute message, which we believe so firmly was intercepted? Well, he said he was told that they were ordered destroyed, and that sort of took me aback, and I said, by whom? And he said, by General Marshall.
My disbelief of the story was discredited by him apparently, because he still remained very firm in his belief that all copies of the Winds Execute message, both in the Army and in the Navy, had been destroyed in order to be destroyed. I am quite sure that it was not of his own knowledge. He was passing on second-hand information. Friedman says, Colonel Sadler didn't impose any secrecy upon what he was telling me. Well, naturally, he trusted to my discretion. I certainly wouldn't have said anything to Captain Safford about it if he imposed some sort of secrecy upon what he was telling me. And of course you understand that, not giving any credence to it myself. I didn't feel that Safford would believe any of it. But to my astonishment, Safford seemed to think there might be something to it. At least he thought there was a Winds Execute message, and now it can't be found. Colonel E.W. Gibson, aide to Clark Inquiry. Mr. William F. Friedman has testified before Admiral Hewitt of the Department of the Navy recently as follows. Then if I remember correctly, I asked Colonel Sadler whether he had a copy, had ever gotten or seen a copy of this message, the Winds Code Execute. And his answer was, if I remember correctly that he hadn't himself seen a copy, but that he had been told by somebody that the copies had been ordered or directed to be destroyed by General Marshall. Colonel Sadler says, I will make an absolute flat denial of that statement made by Mr. Friedman because as far as I know, that message was never in the War Department and I never made any statement that General Marshall ordered it destroyed or that anyone told me that General Marshall ordered it destroyed. Gibson states, At some time did someone tell you that messages pertaining to the Pearl Harbor affair were being destroyed? Sadler says, Yes, sometime during 1943, General Isaac Spaulding at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, told me something to the effect that J.T.B. Bissell had told him that everything pertaining to Pearl Harbor was being destroyed or had been destroyed. Sadler said that he might possibly have told that to Friedman in one of their conversations. Sadler went on to tell about the warning message he had written. After leaving General Miles' office, where General Miles and Colonel Bratton more or less casually threw off this information about the execute of the wind's message, I went back to my office and thought that something ought to be done. The message was typed up and I went to see General Garrow and talked this over for a few moments with him and suggested that he notify them. Garrow's reply to the effect was that they had been adequately notified as I recall it. I then went to see Secretary of General Staff Colonel Bedell Smith and told him what had been done and suggested he send a message. His reply was to the effect that he refused to discuss it further. Sadler states, I never made any statement that General Marshall ordered it a Wins Code Execute destroyed, or that anyone told me that Marshall ordered it destroyed. Sometime during 1943, General Isaac Spaulding of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, told me something to the effect that J.T.B. Bissell had told him that everything pertaining to Pearl Harbor was being destroyed or had been destroyed. Clark and Gibson questioned Spaulding personally about Friedman's testimony about Sadler, having said that Spaulding said certain messages had been destroyed under orders from Marshall and Bissell. Spaulding states, I did not tell him that in substance, answering specifically your question, but I did tell him certain things. But at no time was the name of General Marshall ever brought into the conversation. I wish it to appear in my testimony that it is my full belief that the Secretary of War, Mr. Stimson, and the Chief of Staff, General Marshall, are not involved in any way whatsoever with the testimony which I am about to give, and it is my belief that neither one knew anything of it. We, Spaulding and Bissell, when at Fort Bragg in the summer of 1943, talked about the Pearl Harbor incident. I remember expressing to him my failure to understand how Sherman Miles and the Navy could fail to discover that those Japanese vessels had left home ports. I remember shooting off my mouth about Sherman Miles, for whom I didn't have a very high regard professionally. 
and Bissell said that certain messages had been received and were in the files of G2, and he deemed it most necessary to destroy them. I got the impression that these messages were derogatory to the War Department and that he, Bissell, on his own responsibility destroyed them. I had the impression that they were secret information which it was most desirable that the President, Congress, the public, Mr. Stimson, and General Marshall not know about. I had a feeling that Bissell destroyed them without even General Raymond Lee, the G2 at that time, knowing they were in existence. Bissell having told me that he had destroyed what I would call vital records which, if known, would be very unpleasant for the War Department. Bissell was the only man who ever told me anything that I remember. I hope it is clear in here that I wouldn't want anything I say to transgress the integrity of Mr. Stimson or George Marshall. They are two of the finest men in the world, and they would hew to the line I know. Clark and Gibson questioned Major General Ralph C. Smith. At any time during your service in the War Department in 1941, until you left in March 1942, to your knowledge, were any of the records of G2 destroyed? Smith replies, Categorically, no. I am very certain that no permanent records after January 1941, perhaps, were removed or destroyed. Gibson says, At any time did you ever receive any order from anyone after Pearl Harbor while you were in the War Department to destroy or have any records destroyed? Smith replies, I did not. Gibson asks, As far as you know, are the records of G2 that pertain to Pearl Harbor for 1941 and up until March 1942 complete? Smith replies, To the best of knowledge they are. Gibson asks, Prior to yesterday, had you ever heard any comment made that if certain records in G2 became known, or were made public, that it would be very damning to the Secretary of War or Chief of Staff. Smith replies, No, I had never heard any such comment. Gibson questions, Did Colonel Bissell, to your knowledge, ever destroy any records in G2 in the department? Smith answers, He did not during my tenure of office, and I believe that if he had, I would have known about it from my subordinates. Gibson asks, Did Colonel Bissell ever tell you that he had destroyed some records dealing with Pearl Harbor? Smith replies, he did not. Clark states, Do you know whether or not the chief of the counterintelligence group, Colonel Bissell, had at his disposal all of the information and intelligence which was available to the intelligence group? Smith replies, I have a vague recollection that some point was brought up either shortly before Pearl Harbor or possibly afterward that some sources of counterintelligence data were in existence, but not being exploited to the maximum. I think I can state as a certainty that the counterintelligence branch did not receive the pouch containing the full magic material. I do, however, have a vague recollection that the Far Eastern branch had some contacts with the counterintelligence branch on activities of Japanese agents in this country. Brigadier Colonel John T. Bissell, named by Sadler and Spaulding as having destroyed documents, was then questioned. Gibson states, General Spaulding has testified that, among other things, you told him that certain messages had been received, these messages pertaining to Pearl Harbor, and were in the files of G2, and that you deemed it most necessary to destroy them. Did you ever make such a statement? Bissell replies, no, I did not. Gibson asks, to your knowledge, while you were connected with G2, were ever any records pertaining to Pearl Harbor or anything else destroyed? Bissell replies, not as far as I know. Gibson asks, and once a message was okayed and sent, it was kept. Bissell replies, it went to the file immediately. Gibson, and no files were ever destroyed. Bissell, not as far as I know. Gibson asks, did you tell General Spaulding at any time, in substance, that you had destroyed what you would call vital records, records which, if known to exist, would be very unpleasant to the War Department? Bissell replies, I did not. 
Ibsen states, Did you ever tell him anything from which he might infer such? Bissell responds, No. Clark questioned not only Friedman, but also the four army officers supposedly implicated. Colonel Otis K. Sadler, Brigadier General Isaac Spaulding, Major General Ralph C. Smith, and Brigadier General John T. Bissell. Each, in turn, denied having actually seen a possible Wins Code execute. Clark Investigation Part 2 Summary Friedman was told by Sadler that he remembered hearing that a Wins Code execute had been received on December 4 or 5, and that it had been destroyed on GCM's orders. Sadler told Friedman he had heard this from Spaulding. Sadler later contradicted this testimony. He said he had never seen a Wins Code execute himself. He later made an absolute flat denial of that, because as far as I know, that message was never in the War Department, and I never made any statement that General Marshall ordered it destroyed, or that anyone told me that General Marshall ordered it destroyed. Sadler said he was told by Spaulding in August 1943 that J.T.B. Bissell said everything pertaining to P.H. was destroyed. Spaulding then added, at no time was the name of General Marshall ever brought into the conversation or discussion. Spaulding was told by Bissell that he deemed it necessary to destroy files in G2, implying that he had done this on his own responsibility. Spaulding said further, I hope it is clear in here that I wouldn't want anything I say to transgress the integrity of Mr. Stimson or George Marshall. They are two of the finest men in the world, and they would hew to the line I know. Bissell later testified that as far as he knew, no message pertaining to Pearl Harbor had been destroyed. Once a message was okayed and sent, it went into the file immediately, and no files were ever destroyed. Clark's Report After quoting Friedman's statement before the Hewitt inquiry, Clark stated, I find that Mr. Friedman was told by Colonel Sadler at some time in 1943 that Brigadier General Isaac Spaulding told Colonel Sadler that Brigadier General J.T.B. Bissell had told General Spaulding that everything pertaining to Pearl Harbor was being destroyed or had been destroyed. I find that Colonel Sadler was told by Brigadier General Isaac Spaulding sometime in August 1943 that Brigadier General J.T.B. Bissell had told General Spaulding that certain messages pertaining to Pearl Harbor had been received and were in the files of G2 on 7 December 1941 and that Bissell had deemed it most necessary to destroy them. Clark's Conclusions I find that Spaulding was not told by Bissell that certain messages had been received, were in G2's files, and that Bissell deemed it necessary to destroy them. I find that Sadler did not tell Friedman that Spaulding had told Sadler that certain messages implementing the Wins Code message were destroyed as a result of an order of Marshall. In the end, Clark concluded, I find that no written message implementing the Wins Code message was ever received by G2, Military Intelligence, Army, and I find that no records pertaining to Pearl Harbor have been destroyed by G2 or by anybody connected with G2. He so reported to Chief of Staff Marshall. Stimson Issues Official Report August 29, 1945 As we have seen, Stimson refrained from releasing the APHB report when it was completed in October 1944. However, upon conclusion of Clausen's investigation, Stimson promptly issued an official report regarding the Pearl Harbor disaster dated August 29, 1945. Clausen's affidavits did not really deal with the APHB charges, but Stimson used them and other documents Clausen had assembled to overturn its findings, especially with respect to Marshall, and to reconfirm the findings of the Roberts Commission. In this report, Stimson defended Marshall and Garrow for having adequately alerted Schur to the impending crisis, defending Hull, and placed the primary blame once more on Short. 
Stimson found that insofar as the Army was concerned, short bore the primary and immediate responsibility for the protection of the island of Oahu in Pearl Harbor, and that he was repeatedly advised of the critical events which were developing. Stimson did not find that there was any information in the possession of the War Department, and which was not made available to General Short, which would have modified the essence of the above information, which was sent to him, or which would have affected or increased the duties of vigilance and alertness, thus already imposed upon him. His failure adequately to alert his command to the degree of preparedness which the situation demanded contributed measurably to the extent of the disaster. This failure resulted not from indolence or indifference or willful disobedience of orders, but from a vital error of judgment, due to General Short's confidence that Japan would not then attack Pearl Harbor. To sum up the situation tersely, General Short was warned by Washington that there was immediate danger both of an attack from without by Japan and of an attack from within by sabotage. This warning required him to be alert against both forms of danger. He chose to concentrate himself so entirely upon the defense against sabotage as to leave himself more completely exposed to an attack from without than if there had been no alert at all. To such an error of judgment, it is no excuse that he relied upon assurances from another service, even though he thought that the service was better informed than he was as to the disposition of the Japanese fleet. As to the APHB's conclusions concerning Washington officials, Stimson wrote, Such duties as the War Department in Washington had in the supervision of the defense of Hawaii evolved primarily upon what was then known as the War Plans Division of the General Staff. The Intelligence Section of the General Staff, G2, also had duties of collecting and analyzing information and transmitting information to other sections of the War Department and to the theater commanders. I find that the messages sent to General Short gave him adequate information as to the state of the negotiations with the Japanese and the development of the situation. Furthermore, I do not think that any special and detailed warnings against sabotage should have been considered by General Short as justifying his decision that an alert against any possible enemy action was not also his duty. With regard to the charges against the Warplanes Division, Stimson believed it made a mistake in not transmitting to General Short more information than it did. A more efficient functioning of the division would have demanded that a careful inquiry as to the meaning of General Short's message, reporting a sabotage alert, be made and no room for ambiguity permitted. However, Stimson made excuses for the division. It must clearly be borne in mind that in November and December 1941, the responsibilities of the War Plans Division covered many fields and many theaters. Their conduct must be viewed in an entirely different light from that of the theater commander such as General Short who was like a sentinel on post and whose attention and vigilance must be entirely concentrated on the single position, which he has been chosen to defend and whose alertness must not be allowed to be distracted by consideration of other contingencies in respect to which he is not responsible. Under all circumstances, I find nothing in the evidence as now recorded which warrants the institution of any further proceedings against any officer in the War Plans Division. Stimson was especially anxious to overturn the APHB's wicked, FDR's term, criticism of Marshall. In my opinion, this criticism is entirely unjustified. It arises from a fundamental misconception of the duties of the Chief of Staff and of his relations with the divisions and activities of the General Staff. It is not the function of the Chief of Staff specifically to direct and personally supervise the execution in detail of the duties of the various sections of the General Staff. The shortcomings I have pointed out thus cannot in any fairness be attributed to the Chief of Staff. On the contrary, throughout this matter, I believe that he acted with his usual great skill, energy, and efficiency.
Testimony as to the delivery of magic to Marshall on the evening of December 6 had been contradictory. Bratton, then with War Department's G2, had told the APHB that he had personally delivered that evening the 13 parts of the Japanese reply not only to Hull's duty officer, but also to Miles and Marshall's secretary. However, in his affidavit for Clausen, he corrected his previous testimony and said he had told Dusenberry to deliver Marshall's set to his home at Fort Myer, and further, that the only message he, Bratton, had delivered that night was to the duty officer for the Secretary of State. Stimson ignores these contradictions and simply accepts the statement in Bratton's affidavit. In his official report, Stimson wrote, There is no dispute, however, that General Marshall did not get this information, the Japanese reply, until the morning of December 7. The APHB had suggested also that if Hull had followed a different procedure with the Japanese envoys, he might have prolonged the negotiations until such time as the Army and Navy were better prepared for hostile action. This, Stimson said, amounts at best only to a conjecture. He considered the board's comment in this respect uncalled for. To the apparent satisfaction of the administration, the three supplemental investigations had shifted the major responsibility for the Japanese attack away from top Washington officials, Marshall, Garrow, and Hull, and back once more to Kimmel and Short, with some blame left over for Stark. The administration considered the matter closed. Chapter 26, Safeguarding Military Information By March 1945, the Allies were making progress on all fronts. The Germans, besieged from the east by the Russians and from the west by Allied forces, were pulling back. The Japanese were in retreat in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. After leapfrogging from one Pacific island to another, the U.S. Army under MacArthur had advanced as far as the Philippines. However, more fighting lay ahead. The procedure established to make sure that our enemies did not learn that we were reading their codes seemed to be effective. When the Pearl Harbor investigation started, Army and Navy officers were prohibited from mentioning the intercepts. There had been one leak in the spring of 1941, eventually attributed to the State Department, which had received from the Army, but had not returned a Japanese magic translation. Then in June 1942, the Chicago Tribune's publication of the names of the Japanese ships at Midway indicated that we had access to secret Japanese messages. As noted during the 1944 campaign, Marshall had succeeded in preventing Republican presidential candidate Thomas E. Dewey from speaking out on the subject of the secret Japanese intercepts. Rumors persisted, however, but there had as yet been no public disclosure that we had broken the Japanese Purple Code. For all practical purposes, information about magic had been limited to the few officials privy to the intercepts before and during the war and those involved in the investigations, and the authorities were anxious to keep it that way. Senate Bill S-805 On March 30, 1945, Democratic Utah Senator Albert Thomas, chairman of the Senate Committee on Military Affairs, introduced S-805 to ensure the further military security of the United States by preventing disclosures of information secured through official sources. This bill provided heavy penalties for disclosing without proper authorization information about U.S. or foreign codes acquired when serving in U.S. or foreign armed forces, or when employed or performing services for the United States or a foreign government. Authorization to release such information acquired while working for the United States shall be granted only in accordance with regulations prescribed by the President. Information acquired as a result of performing services for a foreign government could not be released without joint authorization by the Secretary of State the Secretary of War, and the Secretary of the Navy. Admiral Kimmel read a brief five-line notice about this bill in the New York Herald Tribune, March 31, 
and immediately wrote his chief counsel, Charles Rugg, to investigate. Several days later, Rugg finally obtained a copy of the bill and notified Kimmel and Senator Homer Ferguson of Michigan. Rugg said that its passage would close the door to any investigation of Pearl Harbor. Senator Thomas stated that this bill provides for filling a gap in regard to the punishment of persons who may divulge military secrets. The bill is sponsored by both the Army and the Navy. It is a measure which is necessary in peacetime, but at the present time it is extremely necessary. Without any further discussion or debate, the bill was passed by voice vote. No roll call was taken. Kimmel was desperate because if the House passed the bill, that was the end of all disclosures about Pearl Harbor. Senator Ferguson had been out of the country when the bill came before the Senate on April 9th. On his return to Washington, he entered a motion to reconsider the votes by which the bill had been passed. He said it was very important that the Senate should give further consideration to the measure and that it should be amended. Ferguson's motion was agreed to on April 11, and S-805 was temporarily set aside. Peacetime Censorship Kimmel was in Washington on April 12. He went to the Washington Post with the facts and his views about the bill. He also called several members of Congress. The next morning, an editorial sparked by Kimmel's revelations, Raps on History, appeared in the Post. It stated the issue clearly. It is regrettable to note that we can no longer depend upon the Senate to protect the nation against executive deprivations of our liberties. The latest illustration is S-805, which would take away from the American people that very freedom of information, which we are seeking to promote in other countries. The bill was passed on Monday without exciting a ripple, either inside or outside the Senate. Only one hearing was held, and that in camera. It was reported that Army and Navy spokesmen had told the Senate Military Affairs Committee that the bill was merely intended to protect official information, and the committee had accepted the bill on that absurd justification. The Washington Post editorialized, On Monday, no dissentient could be found in a body sworn to uphold the Constitution, either from inertia or somnolence, either from lack of interest or just plain complacence. The senators approved the say-so of Chairman Thomas. Yet this bill would gag anybody who would publish any information which originally took the form of a coded message. And you may be sure, if this bill is enacted, almost everything that it is sought to keep from the prying eyes of the public will first be put in code. To our way of thinking, the need for scrutiny of requests from the armed services has always been present, and it has never been pointed up as it is today. With the approach of the end of the fight for liberty, we are beginning to re-proselytize for it. Freedom of information, specifically, is our immediate crusade. That the Senate on Monday blacked it out in the United States was the worst blackout that the Senate had sustained in our memory. Another Analysis of S-805 On April 13, the New York Times reported on S-805. Fearing that a bill intended to protect military secrets, passed unanimously by the Senate Monday, might interfere with congressional investigation of government departments and suppress legitimate public information, Senators have taken steps to halt the measure and perhaps to re-examine the War and Navy officers who sponsored the proposal. Senator Homer Ferguson, Republican of Michigan, has moved for reconsideration of the bill. Although he sees no sinister design in the measure, he believes that through misuse the legislation could impose a censorship on newspapers and deprive congressional committees of many facts. Disclaiming any desire to interfere with proper protection of military secrets, Senator Ferguson considers the bill so broadly drawn as possibly to suppress many political questions with which the public has a right to be informed. High War and Navy officers stood back of the bill, which it was understood today was submitted by the military authorities in perfect good faith. 
In its report to the Senate, the Military Affairs Committee said the bill had approval of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and was deemed essential in the interests of national defense and security. The Times of April 13 also reported the death of President Roosevelt, which occurred the day before, April 12. He had been at his retreat in Warm Springs, Georgia. FDR's personal physician wrote later that the president had fainted at 1.20 p.m. and died shortly thereafter at 3.35 p.m. Later, when S-805 came before the House committee, action was delayed sufficiently to allow for a thorough investigation. When the bill was finally brought to the floor a couple months later, it was defeated.